Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Hellas. This is being broadcast live and recorded live from the Rio Las Vegas on November 8th, 2021. The time right now, 6.29 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And as you heard, I'm in the World Series of Poker. I did not announce this last week or really at any time until really hours before that I was going to play. But I decided that I was going to play the main this year. I am here for the main event. I have played day one of the main event, and I'll tell you all about that. This is the day after I played day one, and I'll give you a whole lot of main event and World Series of Poker week six stories. A lot of stuff to talk about tonight. We're starting a bit earlier than usual because of the fact that I'm here at the World Series of Poker. So I don't want to start at 9.30 or 10 o'clock. I decided to start the show earlier this evening, which is good for those of you who listen live on the East Coast or even some of you on the West Coast who can't stay up late. So I'm hoping we have some better live listenership numbers tonight, even though the show was not uh, that well announced in advance. Though I, I did give you some notice. This wasn't like a last-minute thing. I've said for a while it's going to be on Monday, November 8th, and that was because I knew I was going to the World Series of Poker, and I was going to be playing on Sunday the 7th. So we have a free roll tonight, and it's 100 bucks. We're giving away $100 of free cash money, $55 for first, 30 for second, 15 for third. That's 55 30 and 15 Thank you to... Country978, who gave 25, Gordman, who gave 50, and BallHawkNet, who gave 25. So that adds up to $100 we are giving away this week in the free roll, which is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. You need a separate account on that poker room. It's separate from the forum. It also needs to be validated and verified in order to play in this tournament. So PM Belly Space Buster on the forum for him to verify you. If you have any trouble, you can get a hold of me in the various ways I'm going to give out, and I can help you get verified as well. But first, try to get him to do it. If uh, that's not successful, then let me know. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll. That's PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll, all lowercase, to understand the rules, which I haven't changed in a while, but the rules are important and you need to know them in order to win the free money, because if you don't follow them, then you won't get paid. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. That started at uh, 6.30, which is one minute ago, but don't panic, because you can get in, because there's 25 minutes of late registration. I know it's not as long as the main event, where you can enter on day two. In fact, you can enter during the first two hours of day two. You can enter after the first two hours of day two, but you do have 25 minutes to start with a full stack in the No Fraud Online Poker Room, because that's the way I have it set. And you can still get it all the way till 6.55 Pacific Time, so you got 23 more minutes, and that's plenty of time to get in there, provided you have an account that is validated and in good standing. If you want to call the show, you know the phone number, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. We also have the Mount Charleston line. Mount Charleston is not that far from where I am right now. Mount Charleston is a mountain that's near Las Vegas. It's about 45 minutes away by car, and it's a nice place to visit, especially in the summer when it's uh, hot in Las Vegas, and Mount Charleston is a nice mountain setting, probably about 75 degrees, a nice break from the heat of Vegas, but right now it's not the summer. It usually is when we play the World Series, but not this year. But in the winter, it gets snow. Now, I don't believe there's snow there right now, but in the winter, there's snow there. You can go there, you can play in the snow, 
There's a ski resort. So the Mount Charleston line is 702-430-1808. It's in a cabin on the top of Mount Charleston that forwards to me wherever I go. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. And that is a separate line into the show. We also have the call to listen line. The call to listen line cannot be used to talk to me, but it can be used to listen to me. It's a phone number you just call up and listen. It's that simple. It'll work from any phone in the world that can dial the United States. And if you can dial the U.S. for free, then it will not cost you anything. Unless you have T-Mobile, then they will charge you one cent a minute, which does not go to me, unfortunately. That phone number is 605-313-0736, or the alternate call to listen line, which works the same way, 641-741-1095. They do not require a smartphone. They do not require a data plan. They don't require an app. They don't require a computer. They don't require the internet. No, 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 no. It won't even use any of your data. And it never buffers and never freezes, unlike other streaming options where it'll just stop if your connection isn't that good. This will never stop. It'll just keep running, running, running. And when we're not live, you can call the call to listen line and it'll play streaming reruns of one of our more than 400 shows we've done since 2012. Pick it randomly, run it in full. And when that's done, it'll pick another again and again until we come back on the air. If you want to listen in the archives, we have a lot of different ways to do so. We have iTunes. We have Google Podcasts. We have Stitcher. We have the TuneIn app. We have Spotify, iHeartMedia. The TuneIn app, by the way, can also be used to listen live if you want. There's the Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen line. If you want to listen to the archives through call to listen, you can do that through the Bullhorn app. And... You can also just download or play an MP3 file of the show, which will work from any device. So just click the MP3 button on the radio page, and it'll take you to the radio forum, where you can click on the episode you want to listen to, and you can just uh, play or download the MP3 file, and that requires no other player. It just works with every device. A lot of different ways to listen. If there's something you want me to add that isn't too much trouble and isn't too much expense, I will do so, because I want to make it easy for you to listen. I don't want to force you to listen in the way that I prefer you listen. I want you to listen in the way that you prefer. So I'm going to do the agenda, and then we'll get going. Remember, we do have a chat room. If you're listening live, you can go in the chat room. If you're not listening live, don't bother, because nobody will be there to chat with. But the chat room works from any device. It does not have a flash component anymore. And I'll try to read it every so often, but I can't really chat or even read it that much, when I'm doing the show. Calwatt might show up at some point. This actually may be too early for him, believe it or not. He's in the East Coast, but uh, he's got a family, so when he's got a chance, then he will call in, I assume. He hasn't promised. I just think he might. But hopefully we'll get him. Hopefully we'll get uh, Traderuski at some point, because this is a earlier time where he hasn't gone to bed yet. He goes to bed pretty early, Traderuski. He goes to bed early, he wakes up early, so... That's why we haven't had him on here recently. He keeps saying he'll come on, but then by the time he wakes up, we're not on the air anymore. So hopefully we'll get him tonight. Here is the agenda, and then we will get going. Of course, we're going to talk about week six of the World Series of Poker, which I have finally participated in. It's my first and only event this year at the World Series of Poker. So I'll tell you about my experience on day one of the World Series of Poker main event. Then, 
I'm going to tell you about a problem that day two may have. Actually, day two and day one may have. On November 9th, tomorrow, there may be a big fiasco tomorrow. So if you are planning to play day 1F tomorrow, which is the final day one, then you may have some bad news. And there's a way out of it. I know some of you might be listening right now from Vegas. Some of you might be listening at the Rio or wherever you're staying and you're planning on playing tomorrow. But there is a way out of this. And I'll explain when I get to that segment. Very important if you're planning to play 1F to hear what I have to say in that uh, second segment we're going to do. I have an update regarding Vanessa Cade. Remember I said that uh, I'm not sure if she's going to play the main event, that she wants to, she thinks she can, that she had COVID, she tested positive for COVID. She definitely had COVID, didn't just test positive. She couldn't smell or taste. 100% she had COVID, there's no question. She was vaccinated, but she got COVID. She got a breakthrough case. So, should she play? Because she she had a breakthrough case in late October. Should she play the main event? I said... No, I said she should not play the main event unless she gets a negative test. Well, she did play the main event. She played day 1C. And I will tell you if she got that negative test, and I will tell you how she was able to play, even though her playing day 1C seems to violate World Series rules. Justin Bonomo is back in controversy. He called out a player who then called out themselves as the one that he was talking about, Chris Hunichen for not notifying him about Chris's COVID diagnosis after they had played together at the World Series. So he was very mad that Chris didn't say, hey, Justin, I have COVID, and I didn't realize that when we played together, so you may want to get tested. So Justin Bonomo posted an angry series of tweets about this, and then Bonomo took some heat himself. So we'll discuss the whole thing, and uh, I'll tell you who I think is right. Some drama on day one of the main event. An employee of Poker Go was tackled and arrested by five police officers, including some undercover, during a break of day 1A of the main event. I will tell you what he did and if it had anything to do with the World Series of Poker. Ryan Lang, who we've talked about before on this show... And I've interacted with him some on Twitter. He seems like a solid guy. I like Ryan Ling. Anyway, even though he had a great World Series, he made a very boneheaded, high-profile play, which was being talked about everywhere this week. And unfortunately, this might kind of define him for a while, which is too bad because he had a good series and he's a very good player. And unfortunately, this play may define him kind of like how the ball that went through Bill Buckner's legs in the 86 World Series ended up defining him. So we'll talk about Ryan Lang's fold heard around the world, what some are saying was the worst fold ever in poker that occurred at the 50K Poker Players Championship, of all things, three-handed. So they were three-handed for a bracelet, and Jungle Man would have busted if Lang did not make that fold, which Lang himself admits was a really, really bad fold. So we're going to talk about that, and we will talk about uh, what that says about Ryan Lang as a player and how people are treating him and whether this is fair. David Williams has brought something up. Yes, that David Williams, the runner-up to the 04 main event and the guy who was in the foot fetish videos, that same David Williams, He brought up that the World Series of Poker should be a one-per-flight rebuy event rather than just a 
traditional freeze-out, where you get to enter once total, and if you bust, then you're gone. I think he said this because he busted. But we will discuss whether that's a good idea, and how it would change the main event if this were to be allowed. Today, the World Series of Poker has kicked off a war on Lammers. This is breaking news. Had I done the show yesterday, then this would not have been a topic, as it just happened today. And it's growing as far as uh, the controversy that this is causing. But the World Series of Poker has decided that the Lammers, which are the prize tokens you get when you win a satellite at the World Series of Poker, cannot be sold or transferred to other players, which is different than the policy has been for the entire time Lammers have existed at the World Series, which, of course, now is decades. So we're going to talk about this change in policy, why they might be doing it, and I'll tell you why it's so outrageous that they are doing it at this point. Finally, as far as the World Series of Poker is concerned, we're going to talk about Landon Teese. I know some people call him Landon Tice. I don't know how you pronounce his name. I call him Landon Teese. But Landon Teese, a young guy. I don't know if he's 22 or 21 now. I think he's 22. But young guy, very uh, enthusiastic. At first, I liked him from reading his tweets. I thought, oh, this is kind of refreshing to see a young guy excited about poker. But then he kind of fell in with the Matt Berkey crew, and he kind of got annoying, and he kind of just constantly seem to be mugging for attention. He started to get on my nerves. Now, he hasn't done anything bad. He hasn't scammed anybody. He hasn't done anything personally bad to anybody. I haven't heard any bad stories about the way he's treated people. So I'm not saying he's a bad guy. He probably isn't. But uh, he's kind of annoying on Twitter, at least to me and some other veterans of the game. But anyway, uh, he had an epic bluff fail on the very final hand of day 1D, the same flight I played, and he finished with the lowest stack in the event, 1,000 chips, (laughs) which is is nothing. You start with 60,000. He finished with 1,000. So we'll talk about his epic bluff fail. He did not have to finish with 1,000. That was his own doing. The bike in Los Angeles paid a six-figure fine, in fact, a mid-six-figure fine, for a massive money laundering incident, and I mean massive, that occurred in 2016. The fine was just announced. That's why we're talking about it now. So I'll tell you about that. And we'll talk about the history of the bike and money laundering. MGM has announced they're going to be selling the Mirage. They're going to be selling the operations of the Mirage. You know, there's a lot of stories these days. Oh, such and such casinos selling. And it turns out they're just selling the land and the property. So it doesn't change any experience of the customer. This is going to change the experience of the customer. It will not be an M-Life property. MGM will have nothing to do with it at this point. So it hasn't happened yet, but they announced that they will be doing that. End of an era for the Mirage. And we'll talk about the history of the Mirage, including what used to be in its spot before it was built in 89. A follow-home murder took place at Parks Casino. We'll talk about what happened there. Always be careful when you're leaving casinos because this does happen. Then we will talk about a burrito, yes, a burrito, which caused a massive multi-day crash of Roblox, which is one of the biggest multiplayer games in the world. This occurred over the Halloween weekend, last weekend, and it cost the company a lot of money, and it was all because of a burrito. So I'll tell you about the burrito that caused one of the biggest multiplayer game crashes in history. Finally... Is Las Vegas a bad influence on Raiders players? Remember, 
The Las Vegas Raiders are the new NFL team in the city of Las Vegas. They play in a uh, beautiful new stadium that was built uh, right off I-15, Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. And uh, now we have two players who are in the news for pretty major things that are not good that happened off the field. One was uh, a very, very bad drunk driving incident, which killed someone, and the other Apparently, the guy had a, a history of a lot of different uh, issues, including uh, threatening to kill someone. So he's been suspended. So the question that we're going to ask is our final topic of the night. Is Las Vegas a bad influence on Raiders players? Because remember, a lot of these guys are young and they suddenly have a lot of money. Is this a bad city for them to be, or would they have gotten in this trouble in any city? So we're going to discuss that as our final topic. So... Our first topic is going to be my playing the World Series. It's going to be all about me. I missed all of the World Series up until now. All of it. And the main reason I missed the World Series was COVID. I was double vaxxed. I had my second shot in April. I had the Pfizer shot, as I've talked about on the show. Anyway, I had the Pfizer shot. And as you guys know, and I've talked about a lot on this show, the Pfizer shot degrades. And at about the five-month mark, approximately, it doesn't happen on the five-month mark, but approximately around the five-month mark, you have a lot less protection from COVID than you did shortly after you got the shot. So for the first few months, the shot's working great, and then it starts to degrade, then it starts to really degrade. So around the five-month mark, you have to start wondering if you're going to get a breakthrough if you put yourself in risky COVID situations. Now, the good news is that it still protects you very well from hospitalization and death. But as far as kind of mid-grade and uh, lower-grade symptoms, it doesn't protect you that well anymore. And that's kind of scary for someone around my age who can get things like permanent lung damage from COVID. It doesn't really protect you from that anymore. It protects you some, but not as much as it did before. In fact, there's some estimates from Israel that after six months, the decline from lower and mid-grade COVID uh, protection is all the way down to 42% from 95 originally. So that's a huge decline if it's only 42% effective at preventing uh, low to mid-grade infection. The World Series of Poker is a place where you go and sit down for many, many hours for several days that could be several weeks with thousands of people indoors. I couldn't think of a more dangerous situation. Now, it turns out that it's not as bad as I thought because I think that vaccinated people are not transmitting very much. Because if they were, we would have had some major outbreaks of the World Series and we just didn't have that. We had some players get it, as we're going to discuss on this show, but it, it really wasn't that many. And I think This is a testament to how the vaccine not only protects you, but also uh, slows down transmission. So it wasn't as dangerous as I thought it would be. But still, look, we have some players who got COVID who were vaccinated, like uh, Chris Hunitin, like uh, Vanessa Cade. They both reported that it was awful. They didn't get hospitalized, but they were both very, very sick, the sickest they'd been in their lives, according to both of them. These were both vaccinated people. Uh, Vanessa... Obviously, not even someone who's old. She's like mid-30s. So I didn't want that to be me for several reasons. So I decided it wasn't worth it. I've been to so many World Series since I first started playing in 05. And I said, you know, I'll wait another year. 
That was my attitude. I'm going to wait another year. Then, you know, regarding the booster, I started th- saying, you know what? If I can get the booster and then wait a sufficient amount of time from when I got the booster to where I'm protected, then I'll feel okay. Because the booster kind of restores you to what protection you had shortly after you the second shot. It's kind of like a reset. So I got the booster when I was eligible to get the booster. And then uh, I actually was eligible to come to the World Series, eligible meaning like I probably was pretty well protected earlier than this. However, because it's fall, it's not the same as summer because I have a kid who's in school. And so I have some family responsibilities related to that. And, uh, and I had some other things going on that I, I won't bother getting into. It just wasn't a good time for me in late October. So then I said, okay, what I'll do is I'll come on Halloween and uh, play the PLO 8 on November 1st, and then I'll play the main a few days later. Well, when they changed the main schedule because they added those two days, that screwed up those plans because then I was going to end up waiting longer to play the main than I thought. And I, again, I didn't want to be away from the family all that time since uh, I do have responsibilities there. So I decided, you know what? I'm just going to play the main this year. The main is really the thing I wanted to play the most. So it'll just be the main in 2021. And I've had that on my mind ever since I got that shot. I didn't announce it yet, but that was my plan. When I got that shot, when I went through those uh, miserable few days when it got me very sick, which it did, and I had a fever of almost 103, and I was dizzy, and I had bad muscle and joint pain, and I couldn't sleep, I had a lot of issues going on. A lot of issues going on from that shot. Worse than the second shot, honestly. But I got that for two purposes. Number one, so I could go to the Dodgers playoffs games. And I I did. I went to the NLCS game against the Braves, the last one that they won. And then I planned I'm going to go to the World Series. Calwet trying to call in, but we lost him somehow. Let me put him back on here. So I did go to the Dodgers, but... uh, this is the second thing. Calwat, right. hello. Can you hear me now? Oh, good. Very good. I was afraid the Rio internet was, was crap, which it might be, but I can hear you. Yes. Oh, fantastic. All right. We got it going. We got it going. I got my new headphone on, too, so it should sound a little bit better. So hopefully we're good to go. Okay, good. I'm glad you're part of it here. So anyway, I I said I'm not going to go through all that and not go to the World Series. Like After those days that I had to deal with there, I said I, I'm going to do the two things I did this for. So the second of which was the World Series, and here I am. I came in basically at the last minute. I came in late at night on uh, November 6th. I ran into some Caesars fail, not with the room. I'll tell you, this room, I haven't had one complaint about it. This room is exactly as it's supposed to be. There's no plumbing problems. There's no door lock problems. There, There's really no fail in the room, which is kind of surprising. Like, the refrigerator's okay, the... Uh, there's not the headboard falling down on the bed like there was one time. We we don't have the moldy shower curtain. Like you, the the usual things that occur at the Rio. I, I guess maybe the AC could be bad, and I just wouldn't know it because it isn't 117 degrees outside. But I'm fine Bro, with the by room. By the way, I did force my wife to listen to the strawberry pie incident <laughs> from the last episode. <laughs> I for I, I forced her to listen to the whole thing, and the first thing she said was. I need therapy now. <laughs> <laughs> after, after hearing $2 pie, $2 strawberry pie, the whole thing. And then, then she said that she thought that at your funeral, 
you're going to be in your casket and they're about to lower you into the ground and you're going to find out how much the the service cost and you're going to rise up out of the grave and start arguing. You know, she's not the first one to say that. Someone else actually once said that I was too cheap to die. I don't know what they meant by that, but maybe that's what they mean. They said, Druff is too cheap to die. I said, okay, I'll take that. (laughs) Anyway, I thought it was pretty fun. (laughs) Yeah, that was, I mean, it's an old story, the strawberry pie story, but it, it, uh, the first time I ever told it on the show, I believe. It's when I had to dig deep to find. Anyway, uh, I found something disturbing when I tried to call the Rio to have them hold this room for me. Because I'm pretty particular about where I get my room in the Rio. I have certain requirements that uh, I've learned over the years of, of what room is best for me. Not for everybody, but for me during the World Series, I have certain requirements of uh, where I'd like the room to be and certain features the room to have. Now, this is not a suite. This is not uh, anything special as far as the room itself. You walked in, you go, oh, it's a regular real room. It is. But it's it's where the room is and certain things about the room. So I've learned certain rooms in the building I really want. And uh, some people kind of also learn this over the years and request them too, but most don't. Anyway, what I do every year... Oh, hold on. Before I tell you, let me throw on another host here. We're going to have two hosts for the first time in a while. Trader Ruski, hello. Yo, buddy. Kawai. Good to hear you, brother. <laughs> okay, so All right. Good to, get, good to get you on, too. Oh, that's fantastic, Trader Ruski. It is fantastic. We actually have uh, two co-hosts with me. It doesn't happen often. So, okay, well, glad it to have you here, Trader Ruski. longer, though, at this point. Like, given how early he gets up now, despite the fact we're on different coasts, this could be a last longer. Between that's true. Us, it, could, it easily could be. Yeah. You're right. I'd probably get up before you, Kawai. <laughs> um but I do have, uh, yeah, and I've got an 8 o'clock meeting, but I'm, Uh-oh. I'm going. I'm going to go till then. Okay. Well, I tried to call the Rio to reserve that type of room. And that's what I do every year. I, I make this call and I say, can you please block off this room? And I always get initial pushback. Oh, we can't do that. Uh, you have to just get it when you check in. And I go, no, I check in very late. I, I tend to come pretty late. So I don't want to get the last choice of rooms. And I explain, like, I shouldn't have to get the last choice of rooms just because I'm coming in late. I'm not paying any less than people who come in early. So eventually I get someone who's willing to do it. And, and I'm a Diamond member, so that helps, too. If I wasn't Diamond, they'd just give me a middle finger. But, yeah, I'm a Diamond member, so between that and getting the right person, they're willing to do it. And this is every single year. And so it, it always goes. It doesn't require a big fight. It always goes with the initial pushback. If we can't do that, I say, yes, you can. You do it every year. Can I have a supervisor? Then I speak to the supervisor, and then they do it. And it's, it, it's pretty much as simple as that. So, anyway, this year, the problem was I tried to call up, and I got something very unfortunate. Can you guess what I got? Voicemail? Close. I got the Philippines. India. India. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, pretty much the same thing. Offshore customer service. Well, they can't do that. Not only do they not understand what I'm trying to explain to them, but even if they did, they couldn't do anything. They're not given the tools to do this. They just tell me, I'm sorry, it's first come, first serve at check-in. And that's it. You can argue all you want. If they were in Missouri, they wouldn't have the tools to do anything about it either, right? You know? Yeah. yeah, They have to be here in Las Vegas to do it in in, in that uh, specific call center. So I say, can you transfer me? Uh, No, they can't. So you're stuck. So I tried over and over and over with all these different phone numbers. Someone even gave me a VIP line, which I had high hopes for. Uh, No, the VIP line, when I called that, 
also forwarded to the Philippines. <laughs> so I go, this is really awful because I'm going to end up with, with a room that I don't want. And I'll tell you guys one of the things I don't want, and that is a connecting door. The Rio, surprisingly has very thick walls and floors as far as uh, preventing sound from traveling. So I like I never hear my neighbors at the Rio, and it's great. It doesn't wake me up, and I never hear people above or below me. They, they built it very well in that way. And the one exception to this, and I've talked about it before on this show, is the connecting door. Those tend to be very thin, and sound travels right through them. So I once had a real hard time sleeping on the night of a 10K event, not the main event, but of a a 10K event, where I couldn't sleep because the people next door had a bunch of people over and were loud and went right through the door. It sounded like they were in the room with me, and then these people would not be quiet. I even called called up there and asked them to be quiet, and they they told me to fuck off and that they're going to do what they want. And I, I battled for a long time getting them quiet. I, I complained that, that the Rio said they'd stop it, then they weren't stopping it. It was a mess. So after that, I said, I'm never getting a connecting door because the Rio does not have a sound problem. Some hotels have very thin walls, and you can just hear the person next door really, really easily. But that's not the case here unless you have a connecting door. So I had a feeling that I'd get stuck with a connecting door and, and other things I wouldn't want regarding uh, the room location here at the World Series. And there was really no way to avoid it unless I could reach someone in Las Vegas. But I tried everything I could think of. I tried to ask for the physical front desk. They couldn't do it. I tried to call all these different departments to see if they could transfer me from those departments over to the front desk. Either no one answered the phone, or they said they had no way to transfer me, or I got the Philippines. I just I had no way to speak to this department I needed to speak to to block the room off. Well, I decided to try another idea and I called up the main number and I hit what I had to hit for the operator which is where you have to start and by the way a new thing for 2021 is the operators in the Philippines the operator was never in the Philippines before so I'm ready for the Philippines what was that can I guess what the solution was you can guess yeah go ahead before you give away what you did well I would have like asked for the poker room or something and then get transferred internally. Well, there is no poker room. They did away with that uh, poker room that's on the side that's by where the buffet is. And the poker room that's associated with the World Series of Poker, you can't call. But that's a good idea, but it, it would not have worked. So, what did I do? Well, when you cannot be skillful... You called up your friend Phil Helmuth, and you had him pull some strings for you. I wish. I, if, I wish that I had been nicer to Phil Helmuth. I probably could have. But when you can't be skillful... You can be lucky. And that's what I was. I called up and I was bracing for the Philippines to come on for the 10th time. And I hear an American voice. And I quickly take it off mute and I say, wait, are you in America? Yes, I am. Are you in Las Vegas? Yes, I am. And oh my God, I felt so good. I, I, this, I just felt like I won the main event before I even played. Now, what if you said, I'm, a, I'm an American, yes, but I'm an expat and I'm living <laughs> in Manila? <laughs> That's actually kind of why I asked if they're actually in Las Vegas physically. But they, they so they said, yes, we're in Las Vegas. And I said, okay, please, you've got to help me. And I explained to them what I needed. And I made sure to be very nice to them because I didn't want, like, if I even slightly pissed them off, this is like my one shot of, of someone who could help me. So anyway, this woman uh, was very helpful. And she got me, uh, she didn't get me to the right department. She did one better. She actually put me on hold and reached someone at uh, 
the actual VIP check-in at the, at the Rio and spoke to that person and said, hey, can you reserve a room with these requirements, actually communicated it correctly what I wanted, and came back and told me, uh, okay, here's the room number that's reserved. And I said, oh, wow, perfect, thank you. So then it was just a matter of whether the room got given away between when I uh, when they did that for me and when I showed up, because that's happened to me before too. Anyway, fortunately, I uh, ran well enough to where they did not give it away. Yet when I checked in, they told me that just about every single room in this tower was checked in. So can you imagine if I hadn't done this, I would have gotten like the worst room in the place. So that boy was that fortunate that I got that one Vegas operator. But this is so ridiculous. Like I understand maybe why this is happening. I was trying to figure out, like, is it because Caesars is cheap? Is it because it's hard to find people to hire these days? Or is it both? I kind of think it's both. What do you guys think? I think it's a, I think it's a combo. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really bad because it's one thing to assign the Philippines to do some kind of routine tasks or take kind of simple phone calls, but to make it where it's impossible to reach anybody on property or even anybody at a Vegas call center is very, very bad. And I thought of a lot of scenarios where you really would need to reach someone. Like, what if, what if you get home, there's a problem with your bill? What do you do? Like, who do you reach? The Philippines not going to help you. So, like, there's a lot of scenarios that were not my scenario, but ones where I thought of, like, where people are going to really need to reach someone in the U.S. on property and just simply can't. So it's it's really getting bad, and I hope this changes back when the hiring issue goes away. But who knows if maybe Caesar will be happy that they've gotten away with it for some time, so they won't bother to bring those jobs back on shore. But anyway, that crisis passed. I got my room. My room was fine. And uh, I had some hard time uh, sleeping the night before the main event. First of all, I wasn't going to get all that much sleep anyway because I got here pretty late. But I also was having a hard time sleeping, which happens sometimes here. I'm not sure why. I'm not one who tends to have a lot of... Whoa, whoa, whoa. One, of one of your secrets, Druff. I remember it. I, I memorized it. You gave away Druff secrets for the World Series. You told everyone if you, you have trouble sleeping the night before just to rub one out. Did you try that? I'm not going to talk about that, but I'm just going to tell you that right. uh, I'm just going to tell you that I had a hard time sleeping and that I was not finding a solution. Uh, I, and I also kept waking up, so I think I'd fall asleep. I'd wake up, I'd fall asleep, I'd wake up. The funny thing is, I felt like I was sleeping the best, of course, like like the final hour before I had to wake up. That was when I really felt like uh, I, I finally had everything feeling comfortable and feeling good, and then I had to wake up. So, fortunately, it didn't seem to impact me. I didn't feel tired throughout the day. I was a little worried I'd feel tired, but I, I didn't feel tired. I was okay during the main event. And uh, I played in the Brasilia room, which is one of the side rooms. The The main room is the Amazon room. The second main room is the Pavilion room. Brasilia is one of the side rooms. I think they started using it in 08. And, you know, it's okay. Uh, surprisingly, it was not cold in there. It, it's very well known at the World Series. It's very cold. But it was not cold. In fact, as the day went on, instead of getting colder, as it tends to do in the summer, it actually got hot in the room. And we discussed this at the table, and I said, I think I know why. I think in the summer, they're just over air conditioning. And because it's November now, they're just not running the AC that much, and maybe they're even turning on the heat at night. So it actually got warm. Not like uncomfortably hot, but it actually got warm at night, where it was warmer at the end of the day than at the beginning. But the temperature was actually the best temperature I've played in overall. It just uh, it, it was fairly comfortable. Where usually you're freezing your ass off in there, especially by the end of the night when a number of people have left the room and there's less body heat that's warming the place up. So that was something that I noticed was different. 
being the Brazilian room, it was a bit of a different feeling than being in Amazon or Pavilion because there's just not as many people in there, and it just doesn't feel as main event ish if I if I can say it that way. But still, uh, I, here, here I was. I was back the first time I played a World Series event in almost two and a half years. The very last one uh, I played was the main event in July 2019. And if you remember, I ran deep in that one and finished 128th. So I was looking forward to playing it again. Now, at the main event, it's very important to get a good table draw, which, of course, you can't control. That's just completely random. You can control a little bit by choosing the starting day you play and theorizing which one is likely to have fewer strong players. However, uh, I didn't have that luxury. This time, I pretty much had to play day 1D, which was by far the most popular day. It did have a lot of pros playing on day 1D. And is that the last day? No, the last days were uh, E and F. E right now and F is tomorrow. Oh, okay. And that's added for the European players because uh, starting today, people from other countries are allowed to fly into the U.S. if they're vaccinated, which before they weren't. So that's why All they right. added these two flights. Remember. Yeah, so, uh, so we didn't have Euros. People talked about how you're not going to have the Euros there. Well, the funny thing was... The complaints about the Euros were, number one, they're much better than average because if they're going to come all that distance, they're, they're usually going to be good players. And number two, that they don't always uh, have very good table etiquette. Like, they tend to be, they tend to tank too much. They, they tend to just really slow down play. If you complain about it, they don't care and just keep doing it. So a lot of people, uh, including Alan Kessler, he was kind of the one who brought it up, but a lot, a lot of others kind of echoed his sentiment saying, yeah, he's kind of right about this. A lot of people don't like playing with the Euros what, what, for these what reasons. What does Alan Kessler not complain about, though? That, that is true. But <laughs> anyway... I'm the, not saying he doesn't have valid complaints sometimes, but he... He's pretty uh, grape-heavy, shall we say. Well, I did think that playing Day 1D, where the Euros could not fly in yet, that at least we would not have any Euros slowing down the game, and then in one of the seats, two to my right, we had a Euro slowing down the game. (laughs) And I mean, like, really slowing down the game. But it wasn't even on purpose. This guy wasn't being a dick. He was just kind of old and confused. But he wasn't, like, really old either. He kind of, like, like... like mid 60s or something so he was substantially older than me but it's not like he was 85 anyway the guy's problem was he had terrible vision and it seemed like terrible vision both distance and uh, and close vision just like like this vision was just awful so to see his cards he actually had to pick them up off the table and uh, and and shove them up uh, sort of close to his face but not right up to his face. He probably couldn't see right up to his face either. But, uh, but, it, but bring them fairly close to his face so he could see the cards. He couldn't just look down like everybody else can. He could not read the board. He'd have to uh, either have the dealer push the board over to him to see it or have people tell him what's on the board. I and if you should have been a good neighbor and just leaned over and said, show me your cards. I'll tell you what you're yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, if someone was was unethical there, they could have had their friends walk behind him and, and uh, give signals. I mean, like, the, the, this guy was not hiding his cards well at all. From others on the table, they couldn't really see, but but anyone walking by could easily see it because he's picking them just way up in the air and putting them in front of his face. Uh, it doesn't sound like he's going to be the shark at the table, though. I mean, He was not, but he had a very weird play yeah. style. And also, in addition to his vision being bad, he also was just kind of confused. So it's not like you have a, a guy whose vision was... Uh, very poor, but other than that, is is totally normal. This guy seemed like uh, he was confused as well. Uh, he 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 never knew when the action was coming to him. Uh, he kept betting like 
way bigger pre-flop than uh, you would think would be uh, correct to do. So, like, the, the blinds would be 200, no, forget what, 200, 400, like 100, 200. And, and then he raises 2,000 without anyone else in the hand yet. So, so just about every time it's like full, 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 full. Like that just terrorizes the pros at the because <laughs> it's like they don't know what to make of it at first, you know. Well, not only that, because people are trying to be conservative because the event is so slow and deep. Like you, you don't want to just gamble against this guy when he's when he's raising two thousand or three thousand into a, a two, two, 100, 200 blinds. So I was waiting to so get some kind of genius draft. Maybe he's adjusted perfectly to <laughs> but, the way you nits are playing in well, the beginning. Well, but here's the funny thing though: is once you were in a hand with him, he was very passive post-flop and and folded pretty easily so in the hands i get into with him uh, it was very easy to bet him off i just didn't want to and and it seemed like just over and over when he did this i kept getting king 10 i must have gotten king 10 offsuit like six times when he did this and he wasn't doing this loosely if he was doing this like every hand king 10 would be like the nuts but he, he was being fairly tight so I figured when he's coming in for 2000 he probably has king 10 crushed so that was the last thing i wanted to do was get into a battle with him, with King-10, uh, when he's not doing this very often, when he's opening so big and it bloats the pot so much. So I was just folding to most of these. Uh, but to show you what I did at the end, at the end he was starting to open up a bit more and, and, and raise more, maybe because he noticed people were folding a lot to his huge raises. So in one of the last hands of the night, not the last hand, but maybe like like six or seven hands before the end, he raised, uh, actually for once not that big, he raised, he made it 2,000, but by then the blinds were 300, 600, and I was in the blind, so I had eight, nine of hearts, and I flatted, just me and him, and the flop came like king, jack, five, two hearts. So I just said, you know what? This guy seems to fold so easily post-flop, I'm just going to fire. <laughs> so I just I just fired uh, 2,500, and he just insta-folded. Like, okay, that was easy. That was nice. Just donked right into him. Yeah, just donked right into him. It was no, no, it's exactly what I thought. I go, I'm going to call this, and if I flop anything, I'm just going to donk into him. And that's what I did, and he folded. So anyway, uh, that was uh it, it was it was funny with him because the, the table was getting annoyed about this whole thing having to constantly tell him what's on the flop having to constantly tell him it's his action sometimes it appeared he was tanking but he actually didn't know it was his turn that happened to me in one hand i was in with him at least i won the hand but like earlier in the day <laughs> i'm sitting and waiting 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 for him to decide what to do after i've bet and i'm thinking he's considering whether he's going to raise me and i had like second pair so i didn't want to get raised and and uh, he's thinking 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 and then Someone says, it's on you. He goes, oh, oh, and then it quickly folds. So all, all that for nothing. Anyway, by the end, people were kind of making jokes about him, but his hearing w- w- didn't seem to be that good either. So he had no idea that people were even talking about him on the other side of the table. And, and someone started these rumors there just to fuck with others at the table and said, you know what? That guy over there, you're not going to believe it, but he won an EPT event. And then the story grew to he won an EPT event and he won a World Series of Poker Europe. And then it became that he actually has uh, three World Series of Poker Europe titles and an EPT bracelet. So it just it just kept going up what this guy's done before. <laughs> and then this new guy came to the table and then he, and he was told this. And people were waiting for that guy's reaction about uh, hearing that this confused old guy there won all this stuff in Europe. Uh, in reality, we had no clue who he was. Plot twist, rough. Plot twist. It ended up being Phil Locke in disguise as an old man, right? He pulled out the old <laughs> trick again that he did before. 
Well, you know, it's it's funny you mention that because someone said, not even realizing that Locke had done this, someone had said, you know what would be really funny? What if this is just some young guy in disguise and he's doing this on purpose to like angle all of us? And I said, well, actually, that was done before. And I told them about Phil Locke and no one knew. That shows you how... Uh, 2008, Phil Locke did it, man. Are you sure it wasn't him just messing with everybody? Yeah, maybe it was a better disguise. I don't know, but if, if, if it was, it was very successful because it, it was kind of... It was just very disruptive at the table, and yet you couldn't be mad because the guy was just kind of old and confused. And and the sad thing was, this guy wasn't a lot of value to the table because, yes, he was very weak pre-flop, but he kept entering uh, post-flop. I mean, but he kept entering pre-flop uh, with with these big bets that nobody really wanted to get involved with, and he wasn't doing it that often. So he was fairly tight pre, except for the very end, and then he'd enter with these. Very big bets. So just about every time, people know they probably have a worse starting hand than him and don't want to put in all this money, and they fold. And then he was basically just slowing down the game. So yes, when you get in a hand with him, then post-flop, he wasn't very good. I'm seeing somebody's video here, by the way. Wh- whose, whose video am I watching? I don't know. I don't think it's mine. Uh, might be. Oh, it, it's... it's uh, there, I see a Trader Ruski. Oh, he took it. I didn't want to see Trader Ruski undressed. That was the reason I, I was going to. I was like, oh, no, 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 please don't. I was going to say, I thought I saw a nipple there for a second. I, I was seeing kind of like oh. the, the shaking camera, and I'm going, I, he better not be getting undressed for bed or something. I, Dear God. I'll have to quit the show. Well, okay, can you imagine if this was actually some kind of a prop bet? It was a pro just dressed like that, and the, the goal was to just, you know, spend $10,000 to see how you, annoying you could possibly be. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, just ruining people's day. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever had a player before at the table that was that annoying that wasn't being a jerk. Like, or wasn't being insensitive in some way. This was just someone who was kind of just old and confused and can't see well. And can't even hear that well. So, uh, he did manage to survive the day. In fact, he wasn't even that short. He didn't do great, but he, he wasn't that short when he uh, finished the day. Mainly from just stealing a million blinds. And uh, on tilt if he outlasts you. I, I would I would have gone on tilt if he was the table chip leader, but at least at least he wasn't that. <laughs> that would be that would be wonderful. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I was never doing that well or badly throughout the entire day. the The theme, other than that weird old guy at the table, the theme of the day for me was average. The table draw I got was average. There was nobody I recognized, but. Most of the table, most of the players there had a clue, and uh, aside from that one weird player, which, as I said, didn't provide all that much value, uh, there was no like outright fish who was going to just spew money. So everybody kind of had an idea of what to do. Some were better than others. You know, there were some good players, there were some okay players, but it, it was kind of like being in like a, a like a two-five no-limit game in Bellagio. It was kind of like that, just w- without any big fish there. That, that was kind of like the vibe of the table. Where you can have some good, some okay, but but no one's that bad. And at the same time, there was no player who was like very difficult to deal with, or very tricky, or very stressful to play with. So, and as I said, there was nobody there I recognized as a, as any kind of crusher online. And as far as the age of the table, remember two years ago, I was the youngest one at age forty-seven by several years when I sat down. That was not the case this time. The guy to my direct left was 33. There was a guy across the table who was 25. And uh, it was mostly middle-aged. Mostly middle-aged. There was that old guy. There were some people who were older than me, but not by that much. And then there were the two younger guys. So I would say it was a very average table. 
It was not a draw that I'm going, oh my god, I got a terrible table draw. It wasn't one like, oh, you you had to see this table. I'm so glad I got this draw. It was right in the middle, in my opinion, as far as uh, what you would expect at the main event. So that was average, and I was never doing all that well or that badly. So I started off losing a little bit, but not that much. Then I went back over uh, starting stack, but not that much. Then I had a little run, which brought me from the starting stack of uh, 60K to 90K, or 94K, actually, shortly before dinner. Dinner is uh, six hours into it. So each level is two hours. We're near the end of the third level. I had 94K. That was my high. I fell back to 90 by dinner. I went to dinner with former... uh, Actually, I say former because he doesn't really post anymore, but uh, daily he played, and uh, I went to dinner with him. And that that was nice to see him again. I came back from dinner, and I was a combination of card dead and just missing everything. And uh, I basically wasn't winning hands, and I slowly went down to this like mid 70s like 76k towards the end and then i had a little bit of a resurgence at the end including that one hand that i uh donk bet into the old guy and won the pot so i finished with 87 87 400 is my end stack now you may wonder how does 87 400 compare to the rest of the field well as i said the theme was average it's average. It's a little bit above average, actually, because we had a lot of people survive. I've never seen this many people survive day one of the main event. And I think it's because people are starting to learn the proper play style at the main event. I think more and more people are becoming aware that on day one, you don't uh, take a lot of crazy chances. You kind of just uh, play carefully and try to slowly chip up. I noticed that from our table and from the number of people that were surviving the day, I have a feeling that this was the theme at other tables as well. So tomorrow we're going to have day 2ABD, which means anyone who was in day 1A the first day, 1B the second day, and 1D the fourth day. Not the third day. We're skipping the third. But 1, 2, and 4, as far as the day 1s, 1st, 2nd, 4th, are going to combine into day 2. And then the second day, two, which will be the following day on Wednesday, will be C, E, and F together. So from A, B, and D, these are the numbers. Day 1A only had 523 players. A is always the smallest field. Of those, 348 survived, which is 66.54% which is a little higher than usual, but not way higher. Usually you're kind of looking at like 63, 64% surviving. Day 1B, 845 people entered, 611 survived, 72.31%. I've never seen that before. Was that an outlier? No. Day 1C, who I'm not going to be playing with, 600 entered, and 433 survived. Again, being around 72%. But... What about D? Well, D was the massive day. 2,550 people entered. 2,550. Of those 2,550, how many survived? 1,939. That is 76%. 76% percent of everybody who entered yesterday is going on to day two. Which means altogether, 2,898 people 
are returning tomorrow for day two out of 3918, which is almost 74%. The average stack is 81K. So I have 87K. As you see, very close. I'm slightly above average, but for all practical purposes, average. We will be playing 400, 800 blinds with an 800 big blind ante, which means the big blind has to post everybody's antes at once, which is 800. And we go from there. Same uh, two-hour levels. I already see who I'm playing with. And interestingly enough, all eight of my opponents also played 1D. I don't know why they're not combining me with people from A and B. It's not like that for everybody. But for my table, it was all people from the D flight. I'm not going to bother reading the names because I don't know any of them. And I don't think any of you will. But uh, there is one actually from Europe. There's one from London. I don't know the guy. And I guess there's one also from... uh, Canada. In fact, the Canadian guy is the one with the big stack at the table. So I'm in seat seven. And then in seat nine is uh, a guy with an Indian-sounding name from Toronto with 206K. So he's got me crushed in chips. The guy to my direct left only has 20. So he's a short stack. And uh, there's really no other big stack at the table other than that one guy from Toronto. Uh, The second biggest stack has about half of what the leader has at the table of uh, 109K in seat five. And then there's a 105K in seat three. So these, and there's a 94K in seat one. So these people are all kind of comparable to me. I'm a little less than them, but it's not a big deal. The, the one who's got the big stack is in seat nine, which is two to my left, which kind of sucks. Now, it's possible this guy just ran well. It's possible he's not a aggressive and difficult player to deal with. It's possible he just uh, won chips because he got in good spots. So I guess I will see. It's someone I haven't heard of before, as I said. So we uh, will let me ask you a question. Speaking of good spots, I know that you your modus operandi for this tournament is to play very conservative early on. What if you, you sat down at the table and an hour into it, there's a guy who's just like, oh, crap, I got to go. And he was just shoving all in every hand. And, he, and he's got you covered. What kind of hand would you need? Assuming it's always folded to you, what kind of hand would you have to look at for you to be like, I call? That's a good question. Um, I if he's really doing he's, it every he's got hand, you covered. Yeah, if he's really doing this every yeah. hand, um, it would also depend what kind of stack I have. If I had a big stack, then I would be a lot more conservative about it. If I've, if it's like this stack, well, let's go with average. Yeah, hmm, that, that's yeah. a tough one. Um, also, it would have to do with whether people have to act behind me. So if I'm the last to act, so let's say I'm the big blind. Let's, let's say you're always the last to act and always folded to you. You know, what kind of minimums are we going to have to have in our hand to where you'd be like, all right, you know, I'll take it. Yeah, I'd probably want to, I'd I'd probably want a pair, an ace, or maybe king-queen. That's probably what I would do. How big of a pair? How big of a pair? You're not going to go with deuces, I assume. No, that's the other thing. Yeah, I wouldn't be deuces because I'd be racing against just just about everything. So So how uh, big of a pair are you going to, are you going to go with? Uh, maybe like sixes. Sixes and up, and then ace, ace rag, ace anything, or you need you need a little bit of something with that ace. Maybe a little higher than ace. That maybe something like ace six or something too. Yeah, but the at least the All ace. Right. So the, you, 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 I was gonna say at least the uh, ace. You're you're gonna win with ace high a lot. Uh, in addition to flopping yeah. it. So. All right. So you triumphantly call after being. After folding to a number of these all-ins from him, you triumphantly call with ace-seven, okay? 
and he's just like, I don't know what I have. And he flips it over, and he's got Jack 5. He spikes the Jack, and you leave the main event. Do you feel fucking stupid, or do you, are you happy with your decision? Uh, no, I, I'd be frustrated, but I, I would... <laughs> I would say I had to. Well, th- this really happened. The guy who was pulling down his pants uh, two years ago, who got disqualified and later arrested, that guy was actually not just going all in, but he was announcing what his hand was. So what was really weird was that oh. someone limped, and uh, then he was next to act, and he said, I'm going to go all in here. I have queen five, and went all in. Mm-hmm. And then it folded around, and it was... People were assuming that the guy who limped was just trying to induce this and probably had some super strong hand. So it folds back around to the guy who limped, who actually folded, which is funny because the the, the pulling pants guy said, I'm going to go all in this hand, and he had done it before. So he said, I'm going to go all in this hand, I'm going to tell you what it is. And he had done it before, so it's not like people thought he was angling. So why limp if you know he's, he is going to go all in? And then and he limped, and it turned out the guy limped with ace five. So that was a crazy thing. He had him crushed. <laughs> People are like, what are you doing? Like, one hundred percent, I would have called the Ace Five there <laughs> so, against so, Queen so, Five. So let's say you did, you know, you you called with that Ace Seven. Would you be more annoyed if you lost to his random two cards or sent packing, or if he flipped over like pocket queens and was clearly fucking angling the shit out of you? Oh, I'd be much more annoyed at that. If if it was just. Uh, Bad luck, I would say. Okay, well, I made the right decision. If, if I got angled, then I say, ah. Because you doing it or because you fell for it? Which it both. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it would really be both. Because yeah. I, at least if if I if he had jack five and I had a seven and then I lost, I'd say, okay, well, at least I made the right call. It just didn't fall the right way. So, anyway, of the seats here, I don't know anybody. I am at a table I think is going to be one of the earlier ones to break, though I'm not sure because they're not always uh, consistent with that, so these may not be the people I'm with for very long. How close am I to cashing? Well, obviously not very close with uh, 74% of the field still making it. They originally projected that the cash will occur early day four, but I don't know about that because even though it occurred at the end of day three in 2019... With how slow the field has been to bust, I'm wondering if we're going to see midday four. So I am nowhere near cashing. Even if I get all the way through tomorrow with a decent stack, I can't even confidently say that uh, I think I'm going to cash. Obviously, I'll be feeling good if I get through tomorrow with a decent stack. But let's say I finish average stack tomorrow. I'll say, okay, well, you know, I'm right there. But at the same time, uh, I, I still have to get through a lot on day three and maybe part of day four. So it's it's a long slog here with the main event, and we were actually discussing this at the table, that even though like you can be annoyed about like little things you wish you did or, or ways certain hands fell that could have been different, by the time you get later in the event, you not only don't you remember it, but it's so inconsequential, because those amounts of chips are nothing at that point. And I'm not even talking about like if you're down to the final 100. I'm saying like just like on day four or slightly before you cash small things that happened on day one really don't really matter anymore. So really the whole point with the main event is just to survive and have decent chips to play with. That's how I feel it is because it's it's so slow and it's different than any other tournament you'll ever play. So whatever you know about other tournaments, you have to get out of your head because this one plays differently. So that was my main event. I, I wish I had more exciting things to say about it, but nothing that exciting happened. I did have one hand that was a bit of an irritant just because of the way it went down. 
wasn't even like a bad beat. It was just kind of irritating because this one I saw really well. And I hadn't played a, a No Limit tournament in two and a half years prior to this. I was a little worried I'd come in and be rusty. I really had not played any No Limit tournaments. Forget the World Series. Any No Limit tournaments for two and a half years. And I could kind of feel that when I was first sitting down and when I was first playing. I, I, I wasn't quite feeling like as confident as, as I normally would. But as it went on, it, it started to feel better. And I got in this one hand. So I'm in the cutoff. It's folded to me. I have ace nine. And I open raise. The button flats me. And the big blind calls me. Three-handed flop is nine eight three two diamonds, and the big blind just fires into me. And having observed the big blind and just some other circumstances, I knew just about a hundred percent in my mind that this guy didn't have my ace nine beat. That he was firing because he didn't want it checking around, and he also wasn't quite sure where he was. So he kind of just wanted the hand to be over, and he didn't love the fact there were all these draws out there with 9-8-3-2 diamonds. So he's just firing. It wasn't 9-8-3. It was 9-8-4. That's what it was. So he fires out. 100% I know it's BS. So he fired out, um, I think, 1,200, and I made it 3,000. The button thinks and flats. Goes back to the guy who fired out. He thinks about it, doesn't look that happy, and flats. I say, okay, I believe that the guy in the big blind has either a weak nine or an eight. And I believe the guy on the button has either jack ten or diamonds. So I go, you know what I really don't want to see on the turn is a queen of diamonds. Really don't want to see a queen of diamonds on the turn. Dealer puts down the turn. It is the queen of diamonds. Don't you love it when you think, I don't want to see this one card, and then that one card hits? Boom. Now, I mean, there's other cards that would have been a problem for me, but like that one covers everything, the Queen of Diamonds. I actually thought in my mind, no Queen of Diamonds, and there's the Queen of Diamonds. So, big blind checks, I check, and the button checks. And right when that happens, I go, I don't believe this. One of these two, especially I think the button, has something big and just is trying to play games here. So, River was uh, something inconsequential. Big blind checks. I check again. I'm not going to be stupid and fire into this. And uh, at that point, the button bet 7K. That's right. It was an offsuited three. That's what it was. So then the big blind thinks about it and calls. I fold. Well, the three actually mattered. The three actually made two pair for the big blind who had eight three. Called with eight three eight three suited. He made two pair on the river, and the button had yeah. king five of diamonds, and he made the flush on the turn. I was trying to get tricky. Yep. I was not going to put anything further into this hand. Like I, I couldn't picture any river that could have helped me, because I said this guy either has jack ten or diamonds. Either way, I'm, I'm drawing dead. So I was not going to put another chip into this damn thing, and. Uh, I was just kind of annoyed because I saw it perfectly. And before that Queen of Diamonds hit, I said, if something safe hits the turn, I'm going to hit this pretty hard on the turn because I'm so I'm so convinced I'm ahead of them. And then, obviously, I put no more in after that. So that, that was just sad because I saw that one really well. I, I really was just about sure that not only was the guy firing into me behind me, but that the guy on the button had a draw. And I was right about both. And instead of winning a nice pot, I lost. I didn't lose a lot because I 
didn't put another chip in after that bad card fell. That was the most memorable hand I had. Uh, other than that, um, the only other memorable hand was where the board was 5-5-6 five, five, against the same guy who had the 8-3. And it was just me and him, and he's in the blind again. And he check-raised me, and then the turn was an 8, and I had pocket 8s. So now I had him crushed. It was 5-5-6, five, five, two hearts. He check-raised me, I called, turn is an offsuited 8. So Then he checks to me, calls a fairly big bet, and then I... Unfortunately, he had a, a weird stack size at that point on the river to where I think he had like 21K left, and I just bet 10K or 11 I think I bet 11K on the turn. So then, like, how, how do I not bet an all-in for him on the river? If I bet half of that, it looks very suspicious because it looks like, like, why would I uh, be not putting him to a decision for all his chips? So uh, he ended up folding. I never knew what he had. But that was kind of a tough one because I wouldn't have bet that big otherwise if it wasn't that he was short anyway. He was kind of just short enough to where if I made the bet to try to get him to call that it wouldn't make sense for, for me to do that. If I'm like, if he thinks I'm trying to get him to fold and he's calling for that reason, it wouldn't make sense for me to bet uh, like half his stack there. So he was getting short. Anyway, that was the only other memorable hand. The rest just kind of, uh, whatever. I didn't get Queens, Kings or aces at any point. I flopped two sets, but got very little action. The second one was disappointing because the guy I flopped it against was just complaining that I'm beating him every hand and he thinks I'm bluffing him. Which sometimes I was, but a lot of times I wasn't. I was just running well against him. This is somebody else who got it in my direct right. And right after he made that speech, he raises, I have tens, I three bet, and the flop comes uh, like king, ten, six. So I'm just waiting for him to just hammer me there. And nope, check fold. So uh, I flopped two sets, both against him, got no action, and that was the only sets I flopped. So a- as you can see, I didn't have a lot of like big hands that were that exciting. I never won any big pots. I never lost any big pots. And whole day was kind of just average. I was just kind of there, finished with average chips. And, uh, you know, that's fine. Be nice if I had a big stack, but I'm, I'm fine going to day two with average chips. And it really matters much more going from there of, of where everything goes. Let me ask you a question. I know that, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, get getting older and everything. Have you found that it's more difficult for you to sit at the tables for eight hours a day? No, no, I'm okay. In fact, when I go play live, I, I play longer than that. So I, I haven't aged to the point where it's become difficult for me. I don't know when that will happen, but but I'm okay. And yeah. Even with the sleep, I didn't do get... Do any kind of... Tra- what was that? I was just going to say, do you do any kind of training? Do you do you stretch? Do you weight lift? Do you run? No. Do you any, anything or just, you know, just exist? No, I just go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that's just how it's how it's been. Like, I have not uh, prepared at all physically for, for the long day. I mean, like, every, honestly, every day at the World Series is long. It's not just the main event. And I'm just used what to it. massage used- girls? you ever get them to come over? To no. Keep, you know, keep you... I had this discussion at the table, too. Someone said, oh, I don't like getting table massages. I just don't enjoy them. And I said, well, I actually might enjoy them a little bit, but uh, there's one part of me that doesn't enjoy them. It's uh, $2 a minute. <laughs> 
So oh I said, God. "Wow!" I said, I'm, "I'm just too cheap. I can't bring myself to do it. No matter how expensive the event is to enter, I can't bring myself to just pay two dollars a minute for a massage." So that's why I, I've never gotten one. And then plus tip, you're expected to tip them too. You know what? I in in some ways I kind of want you to hire some massage girls when you're there, just because I want to hear the stories of uh, of you arguing with them over their service. <laughs> <laughs> Them getting mad at you for not tipping them enough. I mean, you know, something's going to happen. You know something's going to happen, right? Yes. <laughs> it, it it could make for good radio stories. Well, I, I got shorted out of a, a comp massage that was not comped by the massage place. In, uh, it was what in the ring What if I buy you one? What was that? What if I buy you a massage? Um, I, I still couldn't bring myself to do it. It's just, <sighs> it's just, for some reason, it would just bother me to pay this much I, I don't think anything exciting would happen too like like uh i ha- because i haven't seen others have issues really for the most part you just kind of get the massage you pay them you tip them and that's it like wh- where there was much more likely to, where there was much more likely to be issues is where you go to an actual massage place I, i'm talking about like a legitimate one not like one that's really uh a hand job place and, and the massage is the cover. But like what happened to me at the Rincon where I, I had a comp massage, but it was comps being paid for by, uh, by, by casino marketing. So the massage place was getting paid the same thing and it's, it's a different budget. And they shorted me just because they, uh, they, they wanted to squeeze in more appointments than they could. So I had a 90 minute massage and they, they turned off the clock so I couldn't see and they shorted me. And then I realized it and, and, and I complained and, uh, they tried to deny it, and, and they used all these dumb excuses, and it was clear the whole thing was intentional, including when I saw them turn off the clock at the very beginning. They actually had like a digital clock in there, like an 80s-style digital clock, and they actually unplugged it when the massage began, which is real weird, and then, of course, they shorted me. So like that's the type of shady stuff that can happen in massage places. I also had it happen where I didn't get the massage, but uh, my then-girlfriend got one in Aruba at uh, like a Marriott or some some kind of American brand hotel there, and they billed her for a 90-minute massage when you got a 60. And it turned out this was a scam they pull a lot at this place because they assume that uh, it's usually the husband's paying the bill and the wife getting the massage, and they figure that they can pull this trick and the husband's never going to question it. He'll just know she went for a massage and assume 90 minutes is what it really was when it was actually 60. So I guess they pull this all the time. And uh, they were acting really shady when I called up to complain about it because I, I didn't notice this till I got home. When I was, I, I said something to her, like, I, I guess I got tricked too. I said to her, well, I didn't know you got a 90. She said, I didn't get a 90. I got 60. I said, you sure? She said, oh, yeah. And it was, it was really 60. I go, shit, we were scammed. So I called up and they, they were trying to play games with me about it. And then I told them I'm going to make a complaint to Marriott, whatever the brand was here that you guys are scamming. And they said, yeah, we're going to check the cameras and we'll get back to you. And they said, oh, yeah, it was 60. It was a mistake. Sorry, we'll refund you. It was, it was such a negative checkoff scam that they were uh, actually worse than a negative checkoff scam. It was just an outright scam. They they weren't even going to negative checkoff because they were still trying to resist giving me the money until I threatened to go further with it. But I, I don't believe they had to check the camera at all. I'm sure this this was something that was premeditated and they do to a lot of people. So a lot of massage places are, are very shady, but I think the casino massages here are pretty straightforward, just way too expensive. Anyway, uh, the history I have so far with the main event. Some people have asked me, are you up lifetime in the main event? And the answer is no, but I'm not that far down. 
I have only cashed in the main event twice. And I have played now, not counting this year because we don't have a result yet, but the, I played in 15 main events that had results from 05 to 19. And in that time, I only cashed twice. However, those two caches were both deep runs. One was 88th and one was 128th. And both were out of uh, very big fields. One was uh, like 7,600-something. The other was uh, like like 8,500-something. So 88th and 128th is obviously very deep. I've never had a min cache. I've never had uh, even a little above a min cache. I've, I've either had like a good deal above a min cache or no cache. However, I've had a lot of close calls to a min cache. just didn't get there. So here's my history of the main event so far. 05 through 08, I did not make it past day one. Though fewer people were making it past day one than in modern times. But I just uh, wasn't doing well in it. But partially because I just didn't play that many uh, No Limit tournaments then. Also because uh, they, they didn't, the structure was different. And, and also partially I, I think I just didn't play it right. But uh, in, in 09 was the first time I made day two. But I was short, and uh, I did get almost all my money back because I, I got to wear patches on TV with Phil Helmuth. So that was the first time I made day two in 09, but it did not cash. 2010, I made day six and finished 88th. That was my first good main event. Well, 2011 looked like I might be following in that footsteps, and I was doing well again. But I got short on day three and missed the money by not that much. Same with 2012, same with 2013. There were three day threes in a row where I did not cash and I was not that far from the money. 14, I got a terrible starting table and then got moved to a second table, which is even worse. And I ran badly. I kept getting in very tough spots, like top two pair against uh, sets, things like that. So I busted day one. That was my only day one uh, bust since 2008. 2015, I made it to day two. 2016, I made it to day two. 2017 hurts me the most because I had a great day one and two. Great meaning that I just played it really well. I didn't get that great at cards, but I was just very, very good at uh, bluffing when people didn't have it and losing the minimum when they did. I probably saw it the best of any World Series I've played, even the ones I got deep in. And yet, uh, day three just uh, was the opposite. Ran poorly, didn't play that well, and... Uh, I was out on day three shortly before the money. So once again, a short short before the money finish for me on day three in 2017. In 18, I only made day two and came in short. 19, the very last one I finished, finished 128th in day five. That was my history so far. So since 09, I've only busted on day one once in 14. And I've had four day threes, one day five, and one day six. The rest were day twos. So we will see what happens here. The years where I did well, which were 10 and 19, did I have a great day one? Answer, no. I had uh, better than starting stack at the end of day one, but neither time was I crushing after day one. So hopefully 2021 follows in that pattern. What will I be happy with? What will If I go home on that uh, five-hour drive back home. Will I be, provided I don't take some sort of frustrating beat or make some stupid mistake to go out, provided it's all pretty standard the way I bust. What do you think would be the minimum I'd have to do in order to not drive home feeling frustrated? What do you think, Calwatt? Minimum result. Okay, so I think 
You didn't seem to be too happy about your day two, so I'm going to assume that you're going to want to at least min-cash, or you're going to be frustrated. What, what do you think, Trader Risk? you think min-cash is the minimum for me to be satisfied with this uh, trip here? No, no, I'd say probably uh, top 500. Okay, well, actually, Kyle Watts correct. Uh, while I'm not looking to min-cash, I don't want people to think that uh, my goal is to min-cash. There are people who come here and their goal is just to min-cash, and whatever they get on top of that is like gravy. For me, that's not the case. For me, I, I want to try to win the big money here. And if I don't win the big I money... I said that's what you're trying to do. I said that, that you'd be you'd be okay with that. Right, but, right. but I would say you're, you're correct. Yeah. I, so I was saying you were correct here that if I'm driving home and I've min-cashed, unless I have chunked it off and didn't have to lose it, or unless I took a really, really awful beat, I'm not going to be driving home frustrated. I'll be driving home going, oh, too bad I didn't get further. But if I min-cashed, I won't be, kind of, like, I won't be pissed off. If I if I don't yeah, you're gonna min home thinking about how jealous Alan Kessler is that you got the min cash, right? Well, yeah, Alan Kessler's doing better than me at the moment. I think he has like like 109k or something. But uh is, Yeah, isn't he the min cashing king. He is. He is the min cashing king. And and that's the thing. I'm like I'm not trying to squeak into the min cash. And there are some people that's really their goal and then from there just whatever happens happens. I really want to get to the big money, and if not the big money, the kind of uh, medium money. Kind of like last year, or not last year, two years ago, when I last played, I got 59K. So that's what I kind of say, like the medium money. Where it's better than a min cash of 15000 by it's substantially better, but it's, it's also not huge money that, that changes anything. But, uh, but So, like, I want to get the medium or big money, and that's, that's the reason I'm here, and that's the reason I'm playing. But, but as far as a result that's not going to irritate me, it will be the min cash. But at the same time, only 15% end up min-cashing. So the odds are still against me right now for min-cashing. It would be a smart bet right now if you had to bet whether I cash or don't cash. Right now, don't cash would be the smarter bet with me having an average stack going into day two here. So we'll see what happens. A what lot of things. Worst way to, what would be your worst way to go out, Druff? You talked about you know the minimum for you to be happy, but what would you be most unhappy with i'd be I most unhappy with if i already finished day one if if i i'd be most unhappy with if i get just before the cash and, and bust of course right bubbling right because you wasted all that time yes right? yes yeah so that that would what be if you went out on like the first hand or something would you be so pissed off or the first hand tomorrow uh that wouldn't be as big of a deal the first hand total no, which... no, literally the first hand total yeah i mean that would be bothersome and that i put all the effort into coming here just the last one hand but at least it's better than playing for days and then just having it yanked away from you at the end when you just barely miss cashing so it's still preferable I but i guess if you feel you played the hand properly even if it was the first hand you know well right like like, like let's say somebody overplayed kings and just we kept raising each other pre and i had aces like i do it Yep. I, I, on the first hand, if I had yep. aces, I would I would keep raising if they keep raising. I'm not going to flat with the aces. If they if if they raise, I'm going to raise back. They're going to raise back. We're, we're going to get all the money in, and there's a chance that king's going to flop, and I'm going to lose. Yeah. In fact, that happened to that the that happened to the buddy of a guy at the table. He said his friend. Ha- it wasn't on the first hand, but early on, his friend had uh, somebody else covered by only a very little bit, like by like six thousand chips. And that exact scenario happened. He had aces. The other guy had kings. And it wasn't even that the king flopped. It was that a one-card straight beat him. (laughs) 
So the, the king won with a one one card straight, and so he was left with six thousand chips, and the guy was just so pissed. And yeah, like it, I'll it, be honest with you though, Druff, I I hear so many of these stories. If I don't see it, I just kind of don't fully believe it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess it's possible. It's not it's that the guy is lying to you, but the friend is often. You know, people don't want to. They're embarrassed about how they went out or whatever. You know, it's a lot of times it's not quite exactly what it really was. You know, I'm actually more inclined to believe this one because he said it was one card straight. Because if he's going to make it up, it's probably going to be the king flopped. That would be the more likely made up story because it's the one card straight. That kind of makes me think it's more likely to be true. Fair enough, but you know what I'm talking. Yeah, about. I know. I know. I know it's people. Always, nah, yeah. No, I know people do make things up because nobody wants to admit I did something really stupid and chunked off my chips. So a lot of times they'll they'll make up a, a hand that uh, didn't really occur the same way that uh, it actually did. Okay, enough about me. I want to talk about something related to this day I played this day one D, and that has to do with a problem that might occur tomorrow. And I guess I'll hear about it as it occurs. But we have almost 2,900 people coming back tomorrow to play day one or day two ABD. So, what is going to happen when day one F has to start their day just one hour later? We play at 11, they play at 12. We're combined. In one combined, meaning we're not playing with each other yet, but uh, we're playing almost at the same time at the Rio. So how much space do they have? There is some concern that 1F is going to be a lot bigger than originally anticipated. And that some people who had originally planned to play 1D, which is always traditionally the biggest day because it's the last of the starting days, are to have decided to wait till 1F, which is the last of the starting days. So 1F may not just be Euros who could only fly in on the 8th and play on the 9th. 1F may be a lot of people who decided not to play 1D, especially because we've only had about 4,500 entrants so far. And in 2019, there were like 8,500 entrants. Now, we probably won't get 8,500 entrants this year because this is a different type of year. However, what are we going to get? Might there be a big day 1F? And might this push the capacity beyond what the Rio can handle. There's only so much space they have for these tournaments, and there's only so many tables they have they can even set up. Now, I'm sure they're going to open up that warehouse again that I got stuck playing in two years ago, not at the main event, but I bet they're going to open up the warehouse, which used to be the bowling alley. I bet they are going to even open up tables that are outside of uh, uh, the Guy Fieri place, which used to be Buzio's. They used to have tables there when they had to. So I, they're probably going to stuff tables wherever they can, but they're going to have 2,900 people coming back. And I think they did not picture that number one, this many people would survive. And number two, that day one D would be as popular as it was. So with, with tw- oh, this should be good. Yeah, this should be good. So, so how much more room do they have with, with 2,900 already coming? What room do they have beyond that? I don't think they have that much. I remember years ago playing outside in some tent thing or something like that. Well, it's funny you mention that. Yes, this is an 07, the, the infamous poker tent, which was not air-conditioned properly in the summer. And it was yeah, like an oven funny. in there. And it was it was absolutely brutal. Now, this was a boneheaded mistake by Jack Effel, who I don't know why he did this. And I actually went up and yelled at him about it at the time. He actually 
scheduled World Series bracelet events in those tents, and yet they were running four dollar, eight dollar limit cash games inside the air conditioning, the air conditioned Amazon room at the same time. <laughs> this is beautiful. And, and I asked him, "What? Why would you do this? Why not just suspend the the four eight cash games? I've I've seen you do it before. I've seen you suspend the cash games before when you need the room. So why don't you do it now?" Well, the World Series of Poker is not just for the people who are here to play bracelet events. It's for a lot of people. Yeah, I got that stupid speech. I go, this isn't the World Series of $4, $8 cash games. This this is the World Series of Poker where bracelet events should always take priority. And he sat there explaining to me how, how wrong I was about this. And guess what they did the next year? The next year they did exactly that. They would They would suspend any event that wasn't a bracelet event to accommodate bracelet events to not have to do that. So 100% what I said they should have done is what they ended up doing in the future, plus they opened up more rooms like Brasilia. But I don't know what they're going to do tomorrow. And fortunately, I have the earlier start time. So by the time they run into the issue, presumably we'll all be seated at the tables we're supposed to be at, which I know where I'm going and it's not any crazy place. It's a, one of the standard rooms. So I hate to see what's going to happen to the 1F players. Now, if you are a 1F player, if you're going to be a 1F player, and you might be. There are some people probably listening right now who are sitting somewhere in the Rio or in their Vegas hotel room, and you're planning to come play tomorrow. Okay. That's possible. Do not come register tomorrow. Don't. Why? Number one, they said that they might make the day 1F 10-handed if necessary. And that's awful. You're going to hate it. It's crowded. Dear it changes God. it changes the play you're not going to want 10-handed so they may make it 10-handed and they may have alternates so where once they can't accommodate any more people which may happen pretty fast because we have 2900 day two people many of whom may not bust that fast as long as they cannot physically have people at the table there will be an alternate list where you have to wait until your turn comes up before you can buy in so that's the last thing you want. So in order to avoid this, I would suggest if you're going to play day 1F, come over to the Rio right now, drop everything, or if you're at the Rio, drop everything, go down and register for 1F right now so you are not on the alternate list. You can't do anything about 10-handed. That's too late. But at the very least, you can not be on the alternate list because I think the alternate list will start pretty early because I think they're going to have a big oh, capacity true. issue tomorrow. One of the slowest tournaments in the world, and going ten-handed with it. Oh my yeah. god, man! <laughs> Ooh, that's some. Imagine if it's it's ten-handed, and you end up with that old guy at your table. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he can't play. At least he already played. Uh, but they actually yeah, said that true. day one D might be ten-handed, and I'm like, oh no, please, no, no, no. And then, fortunately, they decided to change their minds. They said, you know what? We'll just cap 1D. They said 2,500, but I guess they took 2,550. But they said, we'll just cap 1D. And then 1F is where we will consider the alternates and the 10-handed. So 1F is going to be brutal. And unfortunately, that's your only choice to play at this point, unless you just want to directly buy into day two, which you can either... Or you can buy into the other day two, which will be on Wednesday. So that's that's really your your choices here, and 
And it's not even just, I mean, it is going to be slower 10-handed, but it's also, like, when they pack those tables in like that, like, COVID or no COVID, it's just uncomfortable, man. It's just that many people right. on top of each other. That's, that's what I hate about it the most. That, that's what's the absolute worst yeah. of, of that situation, is it just, not forget the, the effect it has on the play. You're just so yep. close to everybody there, and it's just, to sit all those hours, it's just terrible. So definitely this is something that, you'd want to avoid and if you, if you want to play i guess your only options are to either enter a day two directly or not play or just enter this uh, enter day f so we well, will see really, what happens that's tomorrow really interesting Griff. i didn't even i didn't even think about that especially with as you said these extra days being so people from europe could come over and get here they they really could have a rush of people coming in for that and really people who there. just decided not to play day 1d and decided to move it over to 1f and I think oh, it's going to be a mess. Man. I think it's going to be a mess, and I'm going to be watching tomorrow. I, I can't watch physically because I'll be sitting at the table. Well, I guess I can on breaks, but I am going to be uh, during ha- be in between hands refreshing updates about this and refreshing Twitter <laughs> to see all the angry people. <laughs> it will be some uh, interesting uh, tweets I will be reading for sure. Yeah, but- There'll be lots of tears on poker Twitter tomorrow, probably, if if this does end up happening. Yes. I, I, I don't see how it's not with 2,900 people coming in, unless they get a lot of busts a lot faster than they thought before they get going at noon. And that is the best-case scenario. The worst-case scenario could be absolutely fucking horrendous, right? Yeah, I don't know what their full capacity and is, but yeah. And waiting lists and people out the door and, oh my god. Like, let's say the whole capacity is 3,600, so they get in 700 people, and let's say there's there's uh, 2,000 who want to play, they're going to have 1,300 waiting? It's possible. <laughs> they, they could have something like that. Maybe they'll do like a... They'll do it at night or something like that? Like, they'll just run it 24 hours a day? Could they do that? The problem is... They have to play the following day. They have to play their day two the following day, so they can't go that late. Oh man! They don't even get a break. Yeah, yeah this is this is a. I think this is a mistake. I think they what they were trying to do is not push it back too much because the, by adding these two flights, they were able to only delay the whole thing one day. Where day three, where it's all combined, is only one day later than it was originally scheduled. But really, given this problem, they probably should have made it two days delayed, and not combine day two with day one F because it's going to be a mess. It is going to be a big mess, and I don't think they thought this out well, and we will see tomorrow if uh, disaster occurs. So, okay, I want to move on I and talk. to be a pessimist, Druff, but, it, you know, it being Caesars, I, <laughs> I'm leaning towards it's probably going to be horrendous. You know? Yeah, I, I think so, too. I, I was kind of saying to myself, okay, they couldn't have been that stupid, could they? Go... No, they they could be. <laughs> I've been here so many years that they've made boneheaded mistake after boneheaded mistake, and I think they just didn't think this one through. And I, I'm just surprised they haven't done so anything biased. yet. I hate to be so biased about it, but they do have such a history of it that it just wouldn't shock me if it really did end up being that terrible of a decision to do this. You know, what surprises me is at this point they haven't announced, "Hey, we're going to change something." Like, even if it's starting a few hours later, like, okay, we're not starting at noon anymore, we're starting at three, or uh, I, or, or sorry, but we're going to delay the day twos by one more day. But I guess, I guess they're so afraid this is going to disrupt people's plans, and that uh, 
there's going to be such an outrage of all the people who have to wait an extra day to play day two. They may not have hotel rooms for this long. I can see all the bitching that's going to come. So maybe mm. they're just, you know what? We'll just go with it. <laughs> we'll just go with it and try to deal with it. <laughs> well, I, this will be really interesting. I'm going to monitor poker Twitter tomorrow. I want to check it out. It kind of reminds me of Firefest. They're just like, let's just do it and be legends. Forget all the problems. Forget no acts are coming, and we don't have anywhere to anyone to stay. We don't have any food. Just let's just do it. Let's just do it. It'll be fine. Kind of have that feeling coming up. All right, I want to talk about Vanessa Cade and give you an update on her. Remember, she got COVID, and now there's no question she had COVID. Some people last week were saying, yeah, maybe she had a false positive because it was a test she ordered from Walgreens that you get an instant result by. Uh, peeing into like a, a pregnancy style test which has those two bars on it but I thought from the symptoms she was describing she probably had COVID well she definitely had COVID because as I speak Vanessa Cade cannot smell or taste at all so that pretty much seals the deal so she definitely had COVID and yeah, not not being able to smell at the poker tables, especially ten-handed, is probably going to be an advantage. That's right. You know? That's I didn't even think of that, yeah. but the, the inability to smell or yeah. taste is actually a big advantage for the World Series. The smell is obvious, but even the taste—you know—you got to eat at the Rio, and now yeah. you don't—it's—it's it's no problem. You won't be able to taste the food. Yeah. That's a big. You advantage. may have an edge. I didn't even think of that, but yeah. Well, <laughs> Vanessa, if you remember, got COVID in late October. And now we know for sure it was COVID. But she got a positive test. So we had to assume even then it was COVID. And she figured out from when the very beginning of the symptoms were starting, but they weren't severe enough to where she suspected it was COVID yet. But she figured out what was the first day of symptoms. And then she announced it on Twitter, which I gave her credit for announcing it because nobody knew. And she could have been a scumbag and said nothing. But she announced it on Twitter because she wanted anyone who played with her to go get tested she was trying to do the right thing so okay point to her for that one and regardless of any other criticism that i bring up about this in her direction i will give her a big point for that that she notified everybody when she could have said nothing and a lot of people would have said nothing so okay good she told everybody however okay once you've told everybody i have covid i tested positive for covid at that point what should kick in would be the World Series rule, which I read you guys last week, that if you had COVID or were even exposed to somebody who had COVID, you needed to wait 14 days from that time before you could play at the World Series. That's what the rule said. 14 days from the point where she said that she first realized she had COVID would have put her too late to enter any flight of the main event, even day two. It would have put her one day too late, I believe. So she decided, and she just decided this on her own. At the time, the World Series did not say anything either way. She decided on her own that since the CDC said that you can return to normal life after 10 days following your first symptom, that that's what she's going to do. That if it's been 10 days and your symptoms seem to be going down, that it's fine to return to normal life. This is according to the CDC. Now, she's right. The CDC does say that. However, as I said last week, the reason the CDC says this is because not everybody has access to rapid tests, and uh, not everybody's going to take a test. And a lot of people 
when they have COVID, the question they have is, when can I go back and do things? When can I see people? When can I go back to work? When can I get out of isolation? So the CDC has to give an answer that is something that is reasonable. And they landed on 10 days somehow. That doesn't mean after 10 days you're totally safe. That means they've determined that on average, the typical person who's had it for 10 days and their symptoms are declining probably aren't that contagious to where it's okay to tell people to go back. But that doesn't mean they're safe. That just means the average person can probably go back and from what we know right now, it's probably not going to be that bad. Because there's not that much known about COVID transmission. It's not like the CDC has proven that after 10 days, you're not contagious. They have not proven that. This is just a guess. If it's an an average, they're probably not saying, oh, after 10 days, it's totally fine for you to go back in a room with over 3,000 people and sit there for eight hours. Right, that too. You're right. like a worst case scenario. (laughs) Right. So so (laughs) this is crazy. So... To compare this to other events, if you test positive for COVID and you're an athlete, for example, you cannot return to the team until you have a negative test. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how many days it's been. So if you're on the Dodgers and you test positive for COVID, you can't come back to the team until you actually present them with a negative test. Same with other major sports same with a lot of other organizations. That is the requirement, is a negative test. But for the World Series to allow her back before a negative test and before the 14 days is crazy. But that's what was done. But it's even worse. Mm-hmm. Not only did Vanessa Cade come, come back, but she decided, and I have no idea why she decided this. I, I find this the most offensive part. You'd think if she's going to come back after getting COVID in late October, she'd at least have the decency to play 1F? No. She played 1C. <laughs> what? 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 1C? What? Why? Even I didn't play 1C and I didn't have COVID. Why would you play 1C? Why would you play three days before you could still play? Why not give that extra three days? Even if she's going to say, okay, 1F is a total clusterfuck, it's going to be 10-handed, it's going to be a mess, which she didn't know at the time. But let's say she had something against 1F. Fine, she could have played 1E. Why 1C? Well, 1C is because 1C was 10 days since she had the COVID symptoms. So she's like, okay, 10 days, ding, okay, I can play with everybody now. I couldn't believe it. She couldn't even wait a few more days, which... Would have been fine to wait. She could have still entered day one of the main event. She's not even arguing, hey, I don't want to directly buy into day two. Hey, I don't want to miss it. You can just enter a different day one, and she didn't do it. And that kind of negates somewhat, in my mind, the good that she did by announcing she had it in the first place. So I admire that she did that. But why? Why 1C? Even if you think you can, why? Well, not that she thinks she could. She cleared it with the World Series. She said that she went to World Series officials and she asked, can I play 1C? It's been 10 days. Here's what the CDC says. And they said, yeah, okay, cool. See you at 1C. And she played 1C. She finished with this. I agree with you that it from she should have waited until as late as possible. But, but honestly, I mean, I kind of blame the World Series. I mean, I feel like they should have had policy in place to handle this already 
that would do something kind of like what you said where you would have to produce a negative test otherwise we're going to give you a refund you know sorry about that see you next year yeah i I think so too and at the very least if they won't then make the 14 days thing mandatory and i don't know how she dodged that i mean you can you know what i mean you can blame her and i agree that you know she should be a little more ethical about it and all that kind of stuff but i i really kind of blame the world series i mean if you're going to hold an event like this you have to be the one to lay the framework and i i also do have some sympathy for he mentioned there was a um uh, one of the poker players who didn't play because he didn't want to get vaccinated i don't have sympathy for him for not getting vaccinated but i do have some sympathy for him being pissed off at this situation you know he stayed away because he didn't want to get vaccinated, he stayed away, and now someone who got it is allowed to sit down without producing a negative test? Like, I think people have a right to be pissed off about that. Yeah, and uh, totally, because somebody who got it and, and currently can't even smell and taste, and they got it less than two weeks ago, they are a much bigger danger to everybody at the table than somebody who's unvaccinated that has no indication that they have COVID. It's, it's much worse to have the person who actually has COVID at the moment to be at your table. I mean, she can't smell and taste. She had it less than two weeks ago. She had a bad case of it. Bad meaning like she wasn't in the hospital, but she said it was like the sickest she's ever been. So, okay, this is who you want to stay away from right now. It hasn't even been two weeks yet. And for whatever reason, she didn't wait three more days, which she could have, and enter 1F. It's crazy to me. And I agree. The biggest issue is with the World Series allowing this. And they should have at the very least said, okay, at least enter 1F, because at least 1F will be 13 days from when you got it. And that's just one day short of 14, so fine, because it's the main event, we'll let this one day slide. Okay, I may actually have been all right with that, but but to to let her do 1C, why didn't someone say, wait, why do you want to play 1C? Shouldn't you wait a few more days? I would... I think the right move from them would be that you have to produce a negative test. I, I don't see. I don't think they should just give a pass and say, "Come on, the last day or whatever." You know. No, I agree. But I, I mean, it, and and as much as I want, I do want to put most of the onus on the WSOP. It's not a hundred percent, right? I mean, she still could <laughs> could be a little less selfish about it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I want to know why one C. Like, I, I, what, what what is her idea? Why one C? is the one she should be entering. She she knows she had COVID less than two weeks ago. You, you can't wait till the end. Why 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 do the third out of six days then? Why not just give a little more time? Just because she prefers 1C for whatever CDC. reason? No, the CDC said 10 days, so she's going to do that, even though <laughs> that was an average and not a absolute worst-case scenario, which an event you know at the World Series of Poker kind of is. But let me ask you a question, Drew. If you sit down. Whenever it is next that you go to sit down, that this could possibly happen, you sit down, and she sits right next to you. Vanessa Cade sits right next to you at your table. What are you thinking? What, and do you say anything to her at all? Well, I think, number one, I'm happy I got that booster, <laughs> my first thought. And, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and my, my next thing is, like, I, I don't know if I would actually say anything at that point and create any problem, but I, I would be annoyed. And I, the only good thing about seeing her at 1C from a selfish standpoint is that she will not be with me until day three, potentially. She cannot play with me tomorrow because 1C is not yeah, playing the tomorrow. The next day that it can happen is what I'm saying. The next day it can happen, she's at your table. She's sitting right next to you, and, you know, she's licking her fingers and doing all sorts of <laughs> stuff, you know, that's freaking you out. Like, what are, you, what are your thoughts? And I mean, I, I would be thinking I, I wish she wasn't here. I would also be thinking, okay, now at least it's been uh, – 
um, 14, I think it would be 15 days by then. But uh, so it's a little safer at that point. And I just had the booster. So I, I wouldn't be like sitting there really scared. But I, I would be still kind of annoyed. I've still been saying, like, why, why has she not had to produce a negative test? Now, if I'm wrong, by the way, if I'm wrong and I'm falsely accusing her of not producing a negative test, and she actually did, then I apologize. And if she wants to correct me on this, I will make a correction on the next show. But I saw nothing on her Twitter from when I looked that she had taken a negative test. She was just basically saying, hey, I cleared her with the World Series. It's been 10 days. I'm coming back. I mean, just from an ethical standpoint, if it were me, I, I honestly probably would not come back until I took a negative test. You know, I just wouldn't want to spread it to other people. No matter what the CDC website says, I would want to do that. I wouldn't try and skate by with the bare minimum. You know, I mean, I would, I don't know. Yeah. I, and, you know, it's going to vary from person to person. People might be like, eh, you know, fuck it. Who cares? Uh, I don't know. Well, I'll t- let know. me compare this what to Master you, Scaler. What would you do if this happened to you? Well, okay, so what I'll, I'll tell you both these things. First of all, Mr. S- Master Scaler... He got COVID on October 31st, 2020. So it was a year ago. And I was helping him schedule these tests because it was very difficult to schedule COVID tests in LA. It was very strange, but uh, see, he had a hard time doing it. So I was helping him schedule these tests. So I got to see the results too. He did not test negative until December. So it was over a month until he got a negative test, even though he felt fine after about two weeks. So it just lingered. He felt 100% fine after two weeks. He had kind of a moderate case. It was kind of like a mid-grade case. Fortunately, he didn't get any permanent damage from it, but he got kind of like a mid-grade case, didn't get hospitalized, didn't have breathing problems, but he was very sick. Anyway, after two weeks, he was better, and he could not test negative for whatever reason until December. It just kept being positive, positive, positive. He couldn't believe it. He's like, I feel fine. What's wrong? Has it positive? I said, I don't know. Again, <laughs> But it was positive over and over until finally, like I, December 7th, somewhere around there, he finally got a negative test. Now, I told him, I said, and I forgot when I told him this, but after it had been a while that he felt completely fine and had no symptoms at all and it had been at least three, three and a half weeks, whatever it was. At that point, I said, you know, I wouldn't worry about infecting anyone at this point. Maybe stay away from like really old people, but I think you're probably safe. I think for whatever reason, you're testing positive and you're probably not that contagious as my guess here because it had been so long. So like, I wasn't that worried about him infecting people in early December when he had COVID on October 31st and was, and was better after two weeks. So he just was one of these people who just kept getting these lingering positive results. But that's not the case here with Vanessa Cade because she was playing after 10 days. It's not like she just kept testing positive after a month and said, look, I don't know why this is happening, but I doubt I'm really that contagious now. This is after 10 days. Now, here is her actual tweet about it on November 4th. She started off with three hearts, which I don't know why, but three hearts start off there. And then she wrote, not going to lie, that was the most sick I've been in my life. And being relatively healthy and vaccinated, I didn't think it could be that bad. Almost normal now, except absolutely no taste or smell. Technically, I could play tomorrow, okayed by the World Series, but I plan on firing on Saturday. <laughs> so she, I guess she could have played 1B. So maybe 1B would have been the 10-day the mark. But whatever it was, she said the World Series actually said she could play 1B, but she's being nice and she's only going to play 1C instead of 1B. <laughs> Gotta be kidding me. How about waiting three days after that? You ever think of that, Vanessa? Yeah. So, and 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 Druff, I'm actually on the CDC website. 
and you're right that they say uh, you know ten days and twenty four hours with no fever and other symptoms are improving, but they also say that that that's a guideline, and in severe cases, you have to wait up to twenty days. Right. It doesn't so, sound like her case was severe, but this is not. Uh, this is like a moderate case. This one. This was a thing. This, this was like a mid-grade case, is what it was. It's it was not one that hospitalized her, but it sounds like she was kind of like a step below that. She said it was the sickest she's been in her life, and she's in her mid-thirties. So you can imagine, and she had a she fever. Was vaccinated, right? What? You said she was vaccinated. Yeah, she had to be. So she the vaccine. Yes. So uh, I don't know if she got the Canadian uh, AstraZeneca vaccine or she got the right. U.S. Pfizer Moderna ones or but whatever it was. She was fully vaccinated. Or she pulled an Aaron Rodgers and, and lied about it. You know, I mean, no, I, I think she really got the vaccine. I think it just broke through. But yeah. uh, whatever. Uh, that that's what happens. I have a feeling she got vaccinated like back in April or when like kind of like when I did, and it probably just degraded. And just like I was saying early in the show that. Your protection from being sick like that is nowhere near as good as it once was. Uh, by the way, here's a little interview they did with her. Didn't mention the COVID thing, but uh, Jeff Platt was going around doing interviews for uh, CBS Sports, who now broadcast the World Series, and they found her at the end of day 1C. All right, it is the last level of the day, walking through the Amazon room on day 1C and finding one Vanessa Cade, who has torn up the poker world over the last year or so. Vanessa, stand up real quick. Yeah, she may tear up the poker world in a different way. I won't steal you for too many hands, I promise. Or for any hands at all. <laughs> How excited are you to be back here at the main? Man, I, it's unreal. There's nothing like the main event here. It's so good to be back. What's this last year or two been like for you? I mean, we've seen you accumulate score after score after score. It's been probably the best year of my life, both poker-wise and outside of it, I think. You set high expectations for yourself in this tournament? Uh, I mean, I'll just take it one hand at a time and see how far I can get there. Okay, speaking of, go play this next (laughs) one. Thanks for the time. appreciate it. Just take it one hand at a time, one infection at a time. Each hand can infect a new person. Depends who's in it with now, me. Now, she's wearing a mask. That's not mandatory, right? So that's something That is true. She was wearing a mask. And I will say, she didn't take the mask off during the interview. So I, I will give her that. One of the dumbest fucking things anyone can do. I don't understand. <laughs> you know? Like, you, you don't take that... If, if, you, if you're wearing a mask for a reason... And I've, I've caught my son doing this. I tell him not to do it. If, if people can't hear you, you don't take the fucking mask off. It's, <laughs> it's explicitly there... To prevent when you are exhaling shit. You know what I mean? Oh, drives me crazy. Well, I'll tell you what I did. I'll tell you what I did uh, yesterday with a mask. I did bring a mask, but not for health reasons. I brought it for poker reasons. I did Ooh, not want the sneaky. I did not want the disadvantage of having my face being able to be read when others could not. So when I was in a hand I put the mask on, and when I was not in a hand I took it off. Now, I would have kind of felt like an asshole if nobody at the table had the mask on at all, but but like half the table were wearing masks, and uh, so there's no reason these guys should get an advantage over me because they have it on the whole time. So I I would put it on and off, and the, the table kind of, they, they, they called it my ritual. They go up, oh, he's put it on the mask, go, wait, wait, you, you raised before you put on the mask this time. <laughs> and then I had to make sure I wasn't and doing Trump, some kind of... How far could you take this? How far could you take this? Could you wear like a full one of those full facial mask things? You know well, what I'm talking about? Believe it or not, it, it kind of is because you have the mask covering the bottom of my face and then including my nose, yeah. and then you have the sunglasses covering my eyes, and then I have a hat on, so you really could see very little of me when I'm in these in these hands. But you know, I'm not going to cheat. But I th- this is something that 
is allowed, is fully allowed this year to wear a, a mask, and a lot of people are doing it. So I'm not going to give that up. Otherwise, I'm I'm hurting myself. So you know, I'm, so I'm I, saying you could wear like a full on like the balaclava. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> where it's just a slit for the eyes and nothing else, and you could probably get away with it this year. Yeah. Hopefully, nobody gets COVID from Vanessa. But let's let's move on to a, a similar topic. A similar uh, COVID at the World Series topic. This is about some drama involving who else but uh, Justin Bonomo. I, I love how, like, for some reason, this, this COVID drama seems to stick to people who are in drama anyway. So we have Vanessa Cade, who was in a ton of drama over the last year. And now we have Justin Bonomo, who's, who's always in, in some kind of drama. So uh, Justin Bonomo decided to call someone out. But in what seems to be a pattern these days, you have people going on poker Twitter calling people out for bad behavior but not naming them and then shortly after that the person comes forward and says oh they're talking about me this has now happened like a few times in the last few months uh, over different matters not with bonomo but just in general so justin bonomo called out uh chris hunichin but not by name yet but he called out uh chris hunichin who's also known as a big huni i guess because he's a big guy about Something that he did regarding uh, Chris not saying that he had COVID and had been with Justin. So here's what happened. So Bonomo tweeted this on November 7th at 9.47 a.m. Pacific time. Look, people, I get it. Our politics are different. You like the orange man. You, you like the orange man. I like the mittens guy. All I'm saying is this. If you get a deadly, highly contagious virus, tell people you've been close to so they can reduce the spread. Not everything has to be controversial. So that was his cryptic call-out to Chris Hunichin, who he had heard had COVID while they played together and that Chris had not yet contacted him regarding having COVID, that Justin found this out a few days later through the grapevine, and he was pissed off. So, okay, I'm going to start off by saying that provided he felt that Chris Hunichin had a way to reach him, I don't know how close they were, if they had any way to message each other. I, I guess he could have, like, added him on Twitter. But, like, you can't just message someone on Twitter unless their follow had a way to tell him. I would agree that it is the right thing to do that if you remembered playing with someone, you know who they are. Like, obviously, you know who Justin Bonomo is if he's at your table. And you got COVID. That uh, it is the right thing to do to contact Justin and say, hey, Justin, uh, guess what? I tested positive for COVID. I did not know that I had COVID when we played, but uh, I've since tested positive and I since have symptoms. So uh, you may want to be careful here. So, okay. I agree with him that it's reasonable that he's annoyed. Chris Hunichin uh, responded back. And he responded back after Bonomo tweeted this more specifically. He he tweeted, just found out today that 17 days ago, so this wasn't about anything current, it was about uh, two and a half weeks prior, that 17 days ago I played poker next to someone who had COVID with symptoms at the time. This person tested positive for COVID immediately after the tournament, played with me two days in a row, has my contact info, and still made no attempt to let me know. So I guess he did have a way to contact yet. But Hunichen knew that was coming soon enough, so he decided to just out himself. So Hunichen then responded by saying, Justin is talking about me here. First, this is very dramatic and overblown. 
I didn't know I had COVID until after the 50K event. That was the one they were playing together. After playing, I hung out with seven to eight of my best friends as well as my wife and cousin. I smoked hookah, blunts, joints, etc. with everyone. Also, was in much closer contact with them than anyone at the 50K final table, which I was only there for 20 minutes. Every single one of them, of my friends, wife, kids, cousin, tested negative the next couple days. I bought 40 rapid tests, and everyone tested constantly. If just one of them had tested positive, then I understand the point here. But if all of them are negative, there's no way anyone from the 50K was infected by me. Okay, let me stop there. That, that's not true. <laughs> that, that's, that's not a good excuse of, well, the, no one I was close to got infected by me, so nobody in poker could have either. It doesn't work that way. It, it's not even known why certain people get infected and others don't. There's some interesting phenomenons like, like people in the same house. Sometimes people in the same house who spent a long time together like in a car. And one of them had COVID and didn't know it. And then one catches it and one doesn't. And it's not just symptomatic. Like you, you test them and the one who has no symptoms also tests negative, And then the other one is positive and symptomatic. So it is weird how you can put multiple people in the exact same space with someone who has COVID and one can get it and one can't, even if they're together for a very long time or live together. So that's one of the mysteries of COVID, which has not been solved yet. Now, it's possible that some people just are not susceptible to catching COVID. It's possible there's something in certain people's makeup, even people directly related to one another, like in the same family, that some people just can't catch it and others can. We don't know. But Hunichen can't just say, well, you know, nobody in my family got it from me, and I spent a lot more time with them, so uh, nobody in poker got it. Y- y- you can't say that. That's that's a dumb metric to say, hey, I'm testing people I was with more, and if they didn't get it, then you didn't. He went on to write, I also was very fucked up from COVID and focused on staying alive and out of the hospital. Okay, so it sounds like he had a fairly bad case, but not bad enough to end up in the hospital. kind of sounds like he had about what Vanessa Kay did. Now, Remember, he calls himself Big Huny, and as far as I know, he is a big guy. So it makes sense that a large guy who gets COVID will start to worry because people who are overweight are much more susceptible to very bad COVID outcomes like death or like hospitalization than people who are not very overweight. That's why when Sean Deeb got it in Mexico, he was very scared for a short time that that he was going to die because obviously he's very overweight. Sean ended up okay. He was very sick, but he didn't end up... Uh, I think he ended up in the hospital in Mexico. But he, like, when it was all done, nothing happened to him. He didn't end up on a ventilator or anything like that. So I understand why Chris was worried, given his size. And he's saying, look, I was, I was very sick, and all I was thinking about is I don't want to die. So sorry, Justin, I didn't think of you. But uh, again, that's not a complete excuse. Anyway, he goes on to say, in hindsight, I probably should have said something, but I definitely don't think it's wrong that I didn't. See, I, that, that statement, <laughs> if he hadn't said that statement, he was kind of starting to get a little of my sympathy here. If, if he was really in a panic, like let's say he said, yeah, Justin, I should have said something, but all I could think about at the moment is that I'm a big guy and I'm afraid I'm going to die from this. I'd kind of go, okay, you know what? I can understand why Chris wasn't thinking straight if he was really worried this is going to kill him because of his size. But, but then he said, I, I probably should have said something, but I don't think it's wrong that I didn't. <laughs> That's not a very good statement. They said every single person... Terrible, terrible, terrible thing to say. Come on. Come on. 
Every single Come person on. in close contact after the 50K tested negative. So no reason to mention it to Bonomo or anyone else for the 50K. Why not? Why not mention it? Additionally, Justin Bonomo, did you get tested immediately after EDC? If not, this is very hypocritical. And we'll get to the EDC thing in a second. If you have immunocompromised... It's kind of like, you know, I, I found out I had herpes, but the the first girl I slept with after that didn't get it, so no one else... Needs yeah, that's just like that. That's just like that. It's fine. Fine. So he says, if you have immunocompromised people in your family, because I think Bonomo said that he's not worried about himself, but there's immunocompromised people in his family, then hopefully you got tested immediately after attending EDC. Claiming you were worried about World Series of Poker being a super spreader, but then going to EDC is a bit ironic in itself. If you want to DM me like you did, then immediately blast me on Twitter. At least ask more questions to get all the facts, because this is just nonsense. So, okay, I don't like this response very much, as you can tell. And up till this point, I think Bonomo was was pretty much correct. That yes, Hunichin should have contacted him. And the only excuse I think that Hunichin has is that he was very worried what was going to happen to him. And he wasn't thinking straight. But that's not even what he's saying. Instead, he's saying, I was very worried, but I don't think it's wrong I didn't contact you anyway. So even if I wasn't worried, uh, it's fine that I didn't. Which, And then this weird logic of, if nobody else around me tested positive, then there's no way I'm transmitting, which is totally false. So, I, th- so far, and I'm, I'm very surprised I'm actually letting these words leave my mouth, but so far, I agree with Justin Bonomo, which I... Oh my God, bro! Are you okay? Yeah, I've, uh, right. I I feel dirty saying that. A little time. I feel dirty saying that, but then Bonomo kind of got himself into some hot water because some people started pointing out that Bonomo is not exactly acting like someone who is all that concerned about these quote immunocompromised people in his family. Because someone responded back to Bonomo saying. Hey, look, you're not an old guy and you're vaccinated. What are you so worried about? Which I don't even think is that great of a response. This didn't come from Hunichin. This just came from some guy on Twitter. But someone asked him, what are you so worried about if you're in your 30s and you're, uh, and, and you're healthy and you're vaccinated? What are you so concerned about? But, you know, COVID is COVID. And we see their breakthrough cases. And we see that uh, the, the vaccine doesn't protect you against mid-grade illness, which can cause permanent damage. So you can't just say, well, because you're not 70 years old. He has less to be concerned about, but that doesn't mean he can't be concerned. Yeah, he, and he, I mean, he, right. And he could say, I wasn't concerned I was going to die from this, but I'm concerned about some long COVID things or, or permanent COVID damage. So uh, I don't think that's a fair thing to ask, Justin, of what are you so worried about? But the person brought up a second point, which actually is valid. They asked him... If you're really so worried about these immunocompromised people in your family, why are you going to EDC and why are you playing the World Series at all? Why, why are you doing so much that uh, could get you a breakthrough case if there's these people in your home that could get COVID from you, especially because a lot of the COVID transmission happens when you're pre-symptomatic, not once you're symptomatic. And so, what is EDC, Dref? Uh, EDC is the Electric Daisy Carnival, which is a... Uh, Big event they have in Vegas, and uh, Justin is one of the older people there. It's it's mainly for young people, and they dress up in these uh, uh, crazy, colorful outfits. And there's a lot of girls who are very uh, scantily clad there, and they, it's it's electronica say, music. He's one of the older guys there. We know why he's there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> so, so it's I'm polyamorous, baby. Yes. So it's uh, if you see people around Vegas 
in these crazy colorful outfits and uh these girls walking around like uh with, with almost nothing on with with these colorful outlet outfits and if a lot of them look like they're on drugs it, it's it's this whole like electronic music festival it's it's a very big thing and and bonomo goes to it but his critics brought up a good point that he really isn't behaving like someone who's that worried about the immunocompromised people who he has a lot of exposure to. Now, if he didn't have this exposure to them, and he was just an average mid-30s guy who is doing these things, okay, fine. I mean, look, I'm at the World Series of Poker, and I'm a good deal older than him. Of course, I'm triple-vaxxed. I don't know if he's triple-vaxxed, but whatever. Uh, If it's just about you, you can say, okay, I want to do these things. I'm taking the risk. But he made the point, and maybe he was just exaggerating to sound better, but Bonomo's point was, hey, I'm not worried about myself at all. I'm worried about the immunocompromised people with me. And then some people are saying, okay, well, if you're that worried about them, are you getting tested? You may be getting tested now because of what you found out about Hunachan, but are you regularly getting tested after going to all these events where it's dangerous to catch COVID, like uh, playing the World Series event after event after event and going to EDC? Is this, uh, is this something that someone should be doing if they're that worried about uh, killing grandma, who, who they're seeing all the time? And that, that's a fair point. So the crowd started to turn on Bonomo somewhat and uh, attack him over that. So what happened as a result of this whole thing is both of these guys had a lot of people bashing them on Twitter. As you can imagine, a lot of people did not like Chris's response. And uh, a lot of people had some bad things to say to him. And then a lot of people were bashing Bonomo. In fact, some people were saying that Bonomo was just doing this to be dramatic and that he just likes creating drama and that this whole thing was for him to posture about his moral superiority, not because he was that concerned. And while I agree with what Bonomo was saying, that Hunichen definitely should have told him, and that it is pretty outrageous that Hunichen does not even believe that he should have told him, and that Hunichen's response was pretty lousy, I do have to wonder, like, what was Bonomo concerned about? Is it possible he was doing this more to be dramatic? Is it possible that he was doing this just to uh, posture? Is it possible that he was just kind of irritated or insulted that Chris didn't tell him rather than being scared for himself or people that he supposedly has in his life that are immunocompromised? Because it is a good question. If you're that worried for those people, why are you putting yourself in the spot? So that is kind of a good point. I don't know, Jeff. He doesn't seem like the uh, the kind of guy that likes to attract attention or drama or, <laughs> or anything like that. So I, I don't think that that uh, seems like a reasonable stance here. Uh, so th- this is one of these cases where, where <laughs> n- nobody walked away from this one looking okay. And and the funny thing is, Bonomo could have just shut this all down if he didn't bring the Im- immunocompromised people in his life angle to this. If he just said, look, there's still other things that can happen to me with breakthrough cases that could permanently harm me, so I just would have liked you to have told me. Th- th- then then I would be 100% in agreement with him. Because I would have been annoyed. I think... When these things happen, when this type of drama breaks out, I think to myself, okay, I'm going to picture myself in their spot, both Justin's spot and Chris's spot. So if I'm in Justin's spot, yeah, I'm annoyed that someone who played there and found out they were COVID positive later didn't tell me. I I would be annoyed like Justin was. And if I were Chris and I got COVID, I would think, hey, you know, I wonder who caught it from me. I probably should let people know. I would think that too. 
However, at the same time, if I was really getting worried about what was going to happen to me and really thinking that my, you know, are these the last few days I'm going to be alive, then I do admit that I'm human and maybe that uh, that would be my dominant thought process and not so much about, uh, hey, I got to tell these people. I, I would want to tell these people. I'm just saying that if going through it and if I'm just thinking, oh, my God, like, is this going to be it? Am I going to be dead in two weeks? Like, if I started really thinking that was a possibility for me, then maybe I wouldn't think that's straight. But that's not even his, his full excuse here. He's, he's kind of saying like, well, that was going on, but it's, it's not that big of a deal. I didn't tell you anyway. <laughs> so, it makes me think that's not even the reason he didn't say it. He just kind of felt like he didn't need to say it, which is dumb. So neither... I feel like there's fault on both sides, like you said. I, I don't think there's so much fault on both sides. I, I, yeah, I think that Sorry? I, I think I don't think Justin did anything wrong in that. I don't think there's fault for him, but I think we're. I think Justin well. did too much. I think he did too much <laughs> posturing here. Is what I'm saying. I think I think the problem was he was trying to come off like a saint in this whole thing. So when someone asked, like, "Why do you care about this? You're in your mid 30s and you're healthy and you're vaccinated," he's like, "Oh, um, but, 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 but what about immunocompromised people in my life? Huh? What about them? What about them?" And he's like, oh, "I got them there." And they're and they're like wait a minute, then why are you going to all these things? And he's like, oh, shit, didn't well, think uh, of that. You, you've, <laughs> you've heard the story of the boy who cried wolf, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is like that, but it's the llama who cried drama. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's, it does seem to always come from these, Kate, where it gets just a little bit overblown, a little bit more than it should, you know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of his in, people that he has that, that are close to him that are immune compromised and all that. Yeah. No, I mean it's it's there's uh, a lot to his story that doesn't make a lot of sense. So while I agree with the basic premise of what he's bringing up, I, I can't uh, fully get behind him anymore here because of uh, these little flaws in his argument that were pointed out, and and then that kind of grew in the days following it. Like Brett Ritchie put out a tweet laughing at this, and then he got like 175 likes. So a lot of people related to how it seemed like. Bonomo is just uh, doing this to create drama and to uh, assert moral superiority. And I really believe he's annoyed, too. I'm not saying he just is inventing sure. false outrage, but I think he this also might have had an element to it that he was wanting to be dramatic and wanting to uh, posture about how moral he was about the vaccine and it uh, and about about his how responsible he is with COVID, and it uh, it didn't work out. And this is you got to watch out for this. When you're going to go on Twitter and you're going to posture like this and 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 call out someone like this uh you've got to make sure that something can't come back on you along the same lines that makes you also look irresponsible so like uh the point about the edc was great the point about the why are you going to so many events is these are very good points if you're that worried about your relatives so that's why uh, you don't say if you if you're really not that worried about your relatives. See, I don't think he's really that worried about his relatives. I don't think he's probably seeing him that much. I think I think it's just something he said. So if if it's <laughs> if that's not the reason that you're concerned here, if you're just kind of annoyed that the guy didn't tell you, then just say so, and then you'll look okay. Don't don't yeah. invent these reasons to make yourself look like a saint, and then you look like a fool when people poke holes in your story. So that, that that's what it looks like happened here. I I I don't know how much time. Justin Bonomo spends with immunocompromised people every day, but I have a feeling it's less than he's portraying. Yeah, he probably hasn't seen his Uncle Bill in, in two and a half years or something like that, you know? What I mean? <laughs> but, 
But, you know, both of these things can be true, Ruff, right? Like, the, the guy should have reported it, that he had this. He should have made more of an effort to contact people. And his argument that just because a couple people close to him didn't get it is, is nonsense, you know, that that's not going to wash. That can all be true, and it can also be true that Justin could be milking this just a little bit, you know, trying to get just a couple extra little little bits of clout, little couple extra likes, you know. Both of these things can be true. And it's the kind of situation that I would just kind of shake my head and walk away from both of them. Be like, I'm glad I don't deal with these people on a regular basis. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I want to move on to the next uh, topic here. And that is regarding a dramatic arrest which occurred at the Rio during day 1A of the main event. And it was a dramatic, not just an arrest, but a very dramatic arrest. And, uh, Rumors flew about it, but it ended up a bit different than was originally Did believed. Did this involve masturbation in a Starbucks bathroom or anything like that? No, because Ken doesn't play poker. Otherwise, we would have had that. You but I've gone in there for the coffee. You never know. <laughs> but uh, could you get arrested for that? By the way, I guess could you for oh for that? Um, I guess it depends if anybody else is in there. If if nobody else is in there, then yeah, if there's then nobody no. else in there. I don't see how you could. Like, what what did you do wrong? That's a good point. We'll, we'll have to ask Ken Scaler. I'm sure he. I'm sure he's up on the legal. Yeah, he probably he probably researched it. He probably went into the library and did some uh, legal research on the matter. So, so if you're if you're in there, so you're theoretically saying that if you're in there jerking off, everything's fine. But if someone walks in and discovers you doing it, then you're in trouble. I think I they have to. Sense. That, I that think they'd have true. to discover you and maybe even see you. If you're actually in a stall where they can't see you, it's probably okay because it's not indecent exposure. Because in a stall, right, you are allowed to take off your clothes, obviously, to, to go to the bathroom. So, if you're doing something well, else while in the stall, it's supposed to be one of those uh, bathrooms that only one person is in at a time. So, where you have an expectation of privacy, is it then? Oh, then then 100 percent is fine. Then 100 percent is fine. The business can kick you out, but there's there's no way you could be arrested there. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so here's what happened Here's what happened at the Rio on uh, Thursday, which was day 1A of the main event. It was the November 4th. Rumors started to fly that there was a bomb threat at the Rio. In fact, there was a lockdown in the parking lot. The, the, there really was a lockdown. The, the, the bomb threat wasn't verified, but there was a rumor that the lockdown was occurring because of a bomb threat that had been made against the World Series. And I'm reading this going, crap, I'm going to be there in a few days. I hope nobody wants to bomb the World Series. That's, that'd be crappy. Even if someone's threatening to bomb the World Series and isn't intending to actually do it, I, I'd still be crappy. Like I, I, I was wondering if that sort of thing would ever happen. So rumors were going around Twitter that a dramatic arrest occurred where five police officers jumped on a guy. Some of them were undercover and quickly showed their badges and put the guy in cuffs and they said his name out loud, Jeremy, but that's all they said. That's the only information people were getting about this is that some guy named Jeremy was dramatically arrested and the parking lot was locked down and they had heard something about a bomb threat. And all of this did have some element of truth. But when you add it all together, it's not what it seems to be. So here's what really happened. 
Jeremy Francom, who, as far as I know, has not played any World Series events. He's from the Vegas area. And he got a job with Poker Go. Poker Go does the live streaming for the World Series and live streams other things on their service. So Poker Go hired him fairly recently. And they hired him as what was known as a spotter, which is someone who uh, goes around to look for players that uh, they want to... that. that Notable players that are together at a table so they can uh, make a featured table out of them. So he's basically someone going around looking for notable players. That was his job. So this is a fairly recent hire. And apparently he got this through some sort of connection. Not a big connection. He wasn't friends with uh, Carrie Katz or something. He He had some friend of a friend who worked for Poker Go. And got him that job. You don't need much of a connection to get a spotter job. (laughs) No, especially these days. So Poker Go was having a very hard time filling jobs like that, as all businesses are with filling low-end jobs. So this friend of a friend knew that they were looking for people. They knew that this uh, Jeremy Francom was unemployed and, and wanted any job he could get. So they gave him this job. What they didn't know... And I guess they didn't do any kind of background check because they were so desperate for employees. They just said, okay, you're hired. What they didn't know is that uh, Jeremy Francom allegedly was a serial robber around Las Vegas and that he was doing it through a very unique way. What he would do, and this is all alleged, of course, this hasn't been proven in a court of law yet, but this has been uh, alleged, that he would make bomb threats against a business he wants to rob, and then I guess he even had a fake bomb with him. I don't know how that would be used, but there would be some kind of fake bomb that he would maybe leave on the premises or whatever, but he would make bomb threats, and in all the panic that would ensue, then he would just steal things during all the panic and uh, and run off with whatever he stole. So apparently this happened as many as 20 times over the last few months. All these uh, fake bomb threats that he would make which, again, included some sort of fake bomb. And he would just steal stuff in the panic. Now, he is not accused, to my knowledge, of saying, give me this stuff or I'm going to blow up the place. So it wasn't like an extortion routine. It was that he would make everybody the business afraid that a bomb is about to go off there. And then while everybody is uh, running around like chickens with their head cut off, he would steal stuff. So that was, that's what's been alleged against him. The police have been looking for him. They, he was the suspect in this whole thing. They, they knew who he was, and they were looking for him. Whatever reason, they couldn't find him, though. So something new I learned is that apparently the Rio and probably all other major Vegas casinos, not only do they have facial recognition to be able to tell when people are in the casino who've been banned, but the facial recognition must interface with law enforcement in some way. So what happened was, since Jeremy was at the Rio, which is a casino, Rio's facial recognition saw him and then saw that the police were looking for him. So they must have access to some sort of uh, police database, including the police database of people's faces. And the Rio, the software, not, not any employee at the Rio, but the software itself discovered that a wanted man 
was on premises. So the police were alerted. So the police came down, some uniformed officers and some undercover, and they discussed with management of the Rio what to do about this, because they definitely have wanted this guy for a while, and they definitely were not going to let him get away. But the Rio expressed concern that this is going to disrupt the World Series. That, like, it's not a good time to jump on this guy while they're, they're streaming on Poker Go, for example. Nor is it a good time to jump on him uh, while the tournament's running and the guy's walking through the tournament floor. That they want, they want to find a way to arrest him to where it's safest and least disruptive. So the Rio and Las Vegas police came to an agreement that what they're going to do is they're going to wait until he walks as far away from the tournament area as possible and that it'll be during a break. So that presumably during a break, he'll, you know, maybe he'll walk outside at some point. Maybe he'll just walk away from the main tournament area. Whatever. Just wait for him to get away from the main tournament area and have it be during a break over whatever uh, um, tournament's going on at the moment. Though I guess other events will still be going because not everything has a break at the same time, but whatever. That they're going to look to do it during a break and that he walks away to grab him at that point. So that's what happened. There was a break from some event, maybe whatever, when they were filming for Poker Go. He walked a little bit away from the tournament area, but not out. He didn't leave the Rio. He just walked kind of away from the tournament area. And that was the time they struck. So the undercover officers jumped on him first. Then came the uniformed officers, and they arrested him. And they uh, they said Jeremy to make sure you know, that he acknowledges he's Jeremy. He said he was. So that's all the information people had at the time was some guy named Jeremy was jumped on by, by cops, including undercover ones, and that something involving a bomb was uh, going on there. I don't know where they got the bomb part, but a fake bomb was actually found in his car in the parking lot at the Rio. However, the Rio was not in any danger because the bomb was completely fake. It had no ability to explode. It was just for show. Apparently, this was the bomb that he was allegedly using for these robberies. Also, apparently, he was not looking to victimize the Rio or the World Series. That This was actually his legitimate job. So I guess he wanted, maybe he was trying to go straight, or maybe he... he uh, he just needed a job because he was trying to cool down from what he was doing. But I guess he wasn't cooling down that much because he still had that bomb in his car. But, uh, or a fake so bomb Griff, in his you're car. You're telling me this bomb was fake and all it was there to do was to kind of get people's attention? Is that what it was there for? Yes. I think we could call it the uh, Bonomo bomb. The Bonomo bomb. That would yeah. be uh, fitting. <laughs> I think that would be fitting. So uh, they, they found that in his car, which, of course, is pretty strong evidence right there. But it is not believed that he was ever going to target the World Series, that this was his like normal job where he was going to be just a, a regular dude and not cause any trouble, and the bomb was going to be used elsewhere to commit more robberies. So strangely enough, the bomb thing was kind of true, but it wasn't a real bomb, and it wasn't going to be used to scare anyone at the Rio or the World Series. And he was being arrested not for anything he did. He didn't commit a single crime at the Rio or at the World Series. He was arrested because that's where he was after having committed other crimes, allegedly. So kind of weird. Kind of weird that someone arrested like that was arrested for something they did elsewhere. I had no idea they had that kind of facial recognition running at, uh, at the Rio. 
Yeah. I had no idea either, and that is interesting. I guess just given given all of the fail that goes on there, it, I just would never assume they would have anything. Yeah, it's, it's something on the Rio actually worked. The, the most surprising part of this whole story is that uh, something the Rio had in place actually functioned properly. Right. It should be the wrong person got arrested. <laughs> uh, this whole thing was broken by Haley Hintz. The clarity came from her. Because there were all kinds of rumors flying around Twitter. I saw Haley yesterday. Haley was walking around uh, taking pictures for the site she works for now. And she saw me and I waved to her and she came over and uh, and we talked a little bit. And she told me that she had to put a lot of work into getting the full story on this one. And that she said she actually had to go through the records of arrests that day just looking for the name Jeremy and scrolling through them all and trying to figure out which was the right one. And she, anyway, she finally figured it out and then she unraveled the whole thing. So very good job on her part. She was the only one who was able to get the true story here. Prior to her article, nobody knew, or if they did know, were not saying what had really happened. And for a little while, people thought there really was a bomb threat against the Rio, which there was not. So, Good job, Haley Hintz. And then uh, the story was tweeted out by a number of people since then. But uh, I still heard, heard the rumors yesterday. Oh, you know, there's a bomb threat on day one. And I go, no, 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 there wasn't. There was not a bomb threat. So moving on here, Ryan Lang has had a good World Series results-wise. And if you look at his results only from the 2021 World Series and you might be pretty jealous of how he's been doing. He's been around for a while. He's not a new poker pro or anything. And he, he's not a young guy. He's not old, but he's like a middle-aged guy. And he's been playing a while. He has about $3 million in World Series of Poker Cash's lifetime, which is about three times what I have. This year, he has a number of caches, including some very big ones. So, on October 1st, he ca- he was 247th in the reunion, that $500 event. It's not that exciting for 3K. But he won the eight-game mix six, six-handed on October 11th. So, he won a bracelet for 137K. Then, he finished second in the monster stack on October 15th. So, the guy gets first and second within four days of each other. And the monster stack, second, he got with 377K. So this guy almost won two bracelets. Then he went on and got uh, 25th at the PLO8. Or not, not just PLO, not PLO8. At the PLO event on uh, the 20th, $1,500 buy-in. He played the $1,000 double stack, no limit, and got 344th, kind of like a min cash. Then he got a min cash at an online event. And then he looked like he might actually get that second bracelet after all. Because he was playing the 50K Poker Players Championship, the six-handed event that began on October 31st. And he was down to the final three. Now, this is a very tough event. This is a 50K buy-in, and just about every player in this event is good. Because it's not just a no-limit hold'em game, which is going to attract some rich recreational players. 
you have to know a lot of these games very well in order to be competitive in this Poker Players Championship. And it's six-handed. So this really tracks, attracts a very, very good pro-heavy field. And here he was, three-handed in this event. So at worst, he was going to finish third at this point. So without saying anything further, you'd say, wow, he had an amazing series. He had some min caches, he had a win, he had a second, and here he was down to the final three at a very prestigious event, the 50K uh, Poker Players Championship. It was him, Paul Volpe, and Daniel Cates, Jungle Man. Well, they got in a hand, and Jungle Man was short-stacked. They were playing Limit Hold'em. Remember, this is a mix event. So they're playing Limit Hold'em, and Jungle Man was short. Jungle Man had King-Queen, and Ryan Lang had Ace-Five. And the flop came like Ace-Jack-X. So Jungle Man had a gut shot draw, and Ryan had a top pair with a low kicker. Now again, Jungle Man was short, and this is Limit Hold'em, so you can't go all in. But uh, if Ryan had just simply bet the whole way, and Jungle Man called the whole way, unless Jungle Man improved, which means either get a runner-runner two-pair, runner-runner trips, or the gut shot straight draw, then Jungle Man was going to be out because he was short-stacked. So it's pretty straightforward at that point. And as a limit hold'em player, and as anyone who even who isn't a limit hold'em player, but just as a hold'em player would know, in that spot where you flop top pair against a short stack, uh, you just start putting the money in. And you expect that your opponent is probably going to call off pretty light because they're getting desperate to win a hand. They can't just wait around. They can't say, oh, you know, I only got middle pair here, I'm going to fold. You know, you, you've got to put it in. So you, like, even if Jungle Man had flopped a jack there, Jungle Man's going to put it in. So at that point, you don't have to get tricky. You just start firing. But for whatever reason, Ryan Lang decided to slow play this. He decided to get tricky with it. So uh, in this hand, he checked, and uh, and, and Jungle Man. Uh, or let me, let me let me get the right action here. I'm sorry. Bring this Ruff, up. How often do we slow slow play in limit hold'em, Druff? Uh, usually, it's usually not a good idea. That's one of the mistakes people make is they try to yeah. slow play too much. Uh, but but here especially there, there are, not when the uh, opponent is short stack cases, but almost never. <laughs> yeah. So let me get the exact hand action down here. So so okay. So it was it was Ace Jack Seven, as I said, and yeah. So he he uh, he checked. Lang checked, and keep in mind, Lang was the one who uh, raised pre-flop. So instead of betting, he checks, and then uh, so did Jungle Man. Then on the turn, so sorry, he checked called. He said, let me start this over. Lang checked, and then Jungle Man, thinking he could just bet him off, bet. <laughs> so, so a weird board to raise pre-flop and then check to. Yes, okay. yes. So he, so Jungle Man bets, and you would think at that point Lang should be like, oh sweet, okay, I got him to put one bet in here. Okay, now, now, I'll, now I'll pot commit him, and if he's just bluffing, then he's going to be out anyway. So you think you check-raise at that point. If, if you're going to take that line to check, and it worked, 
you would check raise him. Well, he didn't. He just check called. The turn was a meaningless card of nine, so it's now ace jack seven nine. So Lang checked again, and uh, uh, and, and Jungle Man bet. Or sorry, ju- I'm messing this roughly up. Lang, they both checked. Lang checked and Jungle Man checked. Then on the river, a king hit. So Lang won. But now Jungle Man has hit second pair. So Lang bets, and Jungle Man raises. Now keep in mind, he's only raising half a bet because Lang bets six hundred thousand, which sounds like a lot, but that's one one limit hold'em bet on on the river. And all Daniel Cates Jungle Man had was nine hundred K. So all he could do is call that bet and raise another three three hundred K. So that's what he did. So Lang said Don't tell me, don't tell me, Druff. He doesn't fold yes no. lang actually said no well I'll, I'll play it to you I'll, I'll let you guys listen to this and jungle picks up a good hand let's see what happens so he's going with a flat this makes Critical sense That's a big one. And queen against ace five a broadway gutty against top pair advantage lang wow lang checks this flop and jungle bets for value oh. interesting situation Really unorthodox line being taken. By- I don't think that was a bet for value necessarily. I think it was like a uh, just a bet to put an end to the not hand. A value bet. Yeah, just a bet to put yeah, it into the hand. He doesn't have a pair yet. He just wants the hand to be over and get some chips. Ling here inducing yeah. Jungle to take initiative. He took his one shot on the flop for a small bet. Does not bet. fire bet. in position on the river. And now Jungle wow. has hit the king. And Lang comes out swinging. Yeah. All in. Please, all in. Now the reason... Let me stop right here. The reason that... Jungle Man went all in instead of just calling. Is that he thought that Lang had nothing the way the hand went down, and that there's no way Lang would have an ace here. So unless Lang had either a queen ten and made a straight, or you know, did something really weird, that that his king queen was probably bad. So that's, he, he Jungle Man also probably figured what am I going to do with 300k at this point? So he actually was pretty convinced he had the best hand with that king. With the best kicker. But Ling played it so weirdly. If You have to be conscious of how you played it and how you look. He played it so weirdly. He can't fold here. Right, right. It's That's insane. the whole point. Is that he played it so weirdly that it's not like he's getting raised on the river where he's looking very strong the whole way. He looked weak the whole way. So when you're getting raised when a king falls, you, you can't just say, okay, well, he's got to have me beat. But listen to the way he reasoned it out. How much is it? I mean, I'm never good here. How much is it? I'm never good. That's not true. <laughs> a lot of times you're good here, including here. Three wow, hundred to call the win. What? What are we talking? Three point three million. And not just that to knock him out. If you call and win the hand, then it's going to be heads up for the bracelet. So you also get a huge money bump. If, if somehow the hand was played normally, then I agree. Like he should never be good here. But he played it all screwy, man. Right. And for that price, you have. To, I don't. Right. That that's that's the difference is because he played it weird. If he just if he just bet 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 the whole way and all he has is ace with a five kicker and and then uh he gets raised on that border of ace seven jack nine king, you think okay, why he's not going to put his last 300,000 if he can't beat ace five. But uh, you, you still have to call there because of the situation, but but there you can at least confidently say I'm not good here. But the way he played it exactly. There's no way that you can conclude that. And, and you're way better at limit hold them than I am, but I mean 
how many times have you bet and someone raised, you know, all in some tiny amount and you're like, just snap calling it because you're just like, okay. Well, you have to. Because <laughs> you know what I mean? I take a general line in tournaments that when people are very short, they're in desperation mode and they do weird things. So you can't make tight folds to that. Yeah. When people do these just raises all in, uh, you just go, you know, they could just be firing it in. There, there's many just nonsensical reasons people fire it in. That's the another reason you just don't lay it down. But so let's let's play this out here. The last minute of this clip. Yeah. Oh my gosh! So thick. I'm never good, but like, how can I ever? Is Ryan oh. really thinking of folding after taking this unorthodox line? It's only three hundred thousand more to call. He's getting eleven to I one. Save one bet. Crazy. All he has to do is click call, getting an insane price here, Chris. And jungle's done. Yeah, and jungle thinks he has the nuts with King Queen the way this hand was played. He, this is crazy. Oh my god. So he folds it and shows the ace. So then jungle is elated. Wow. <laughs> the laughing's actually from jungle. He actually laughs like a maniac. He's dancing around. Jungle can't believe it. Oh my god. What just happened? <laughs> what just happened <laughs> is that. <laughs> Why did he do that? Ryan Lang. <laughs> Jungle can't believe it. Nice hand, Jungle. Yeah, you're raising for value, I guess. I don't know. It's a bluff. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Didn't click Jungle's call, and That's in the process, thing. cost himself and Paul Volpe $185,000 in lockup money. Yeah, that was, that's a big factor that had to be considered there, too. As I said, because you're knocking a guy out if you call and you're right. Rough. 11 to 1, and you're knocking him out. I mean, and you took that unorthodox line? I mean, come on. Yeah, so this has been described by many in poker as the worst fold in history. <laughs> <laughs> and guess guess who won the event, by the way? Jungle Man. Tell me it's not... No. Yes. Oh, my God. Jungle Man won the event that he had no right to win. He really should have finished third. Oh, my God. He got a second life, and he made the most of it, and he won. And a very, very uh, different payout there as well. Uh, Jungle Man got 954K for winning this event. Lang finished second. He lost heads up to Jungle Man as the final kick in the ass. He got 589k, and Paul Volpe got uh, 404k. So uh, Jungle Man, instead of finishing third for 404, got 954. So Jungle Man got an extra 550,000 plus a bracelet at this very prestigious event because he was nonsensically given another life here. So as you can imagine, Ryan Lang was being treated the same way that Bill Buckner was treated in the 86 World Series when that ball rolled through his legs, which ultimately uh, led to the Mets winning the 86 World Series over the Red Sox, who hadn't won in ages at that point. So he really became the Bill Buckner of poker, which is really too bad because you heard what kind of series he was having. He had a first, a second, and was down to the final three at this Poker Players' Championship and had some in-catches also. And all anybody can talk about Ryan Lang's series here is... This hand. So there was a lot of uh, really nasty stuff on Twitter. Not nasty in the way that like he's a bad guy, but just just brutally bashing him, just uh, how terrible he is, and how can he do this, and and uh, just really really uh, bad stuff on Twitter about this uh, from a lot of people. Sure. And 
Well, Drew, who do you think was more pissed off, Drew? Do you think uh, Lang was more pissed off or Vulcan? Vulcan? Well, that was brought up, too. That's what people were really going after Lang on Twitter, was that he screwed over Paul Volpe by doing this. <laughs> Volpe finished third when he shouldn't have. He should have at least finished second. And and so that they just let Jungle Man come back alive here. And, wow, that was uh, a complete mess. And so Ryan Lang decided to go after this head-on. He decided that he just can't uh, hide from this. And he decided to make a statement on Twitter. And I'll, I'll and read he it. He humbly said, I realize I made a mistake, and that was that, right? Pretty much. So this is what he wrote. and but He needs to learn how to use these multiple Twitter messages better because he, uh, he separated some of them. I, I think maybe he continued later, but he, here's what he wrote. Lots of people are talking about that fold versus jungle, so I want to address a few things. First, to the people who sent me supportive messages saying things like, keep your head up and we all make mistakes, y'all the best. I have so much love for all of you. Some of you have never met me and still go out of your way to try to pick me up when you think I'm hanging my head. You're a wonderful, caring people, and it brings peace to my soul to know the world's filled with people like you. To the people saying it was the worst fold in the history of poker, I completely agree with you. Saying it was bad is an understatement. It was atrocious, abysmal, absolutely horrendous, bottom line. Good for him. Yeah. Good for him. Let's start with the fact that I somehow didn't even recognize it was only half a bet, even though it's still a pure call, even if it's a full bet. If I was sitting at home watching Poker Go and saw someone make the exact same fold, I would think it was terrible. So what lessons can we learn from my mistake? For one, let's take ownership of our mistakes. I speak with a lot of poker players who make every excuse they possibly can before they own up to the fact that they could have done better. Stop it. I made a terrible fold. I am to blame. Not Jungle. Not anyone else. Secondly, let's analyze how or why I could have made such a bad decision in such a big spot. I was absolutely mentally drained by the end of that tournament. And there is no doubt that physical fitness or lack thereof played a part in that. Playing long hours several days in a row, especially versus elite players in games that I'm not confident in and don't have years of repetition and well, a well of knowledge to fall back on, is going to require a lot of endurance. So, so by the way, let me stop there. He was originally a no-limit player, and he's just started to learn these limit games more recently. So he was saying that he just didn't have that much limit hold'em experience, and that contributed as well. I need to take a page out of the books of guys like Jason Kuhn, Alex Foxen, and Chance Cornuth. Seriously, you may not notice it, but ask to feel that guy's abs. Dude, this has been putting in work. I hope Ryan Lang isn't feeling Chance Cornuth's abs. That's kind of weird. It's kind of gay, actually. But uh, uh, he, he's saying this because if you take a look at Ryan Lang's pictures recently, you can tell he's gained weight. You, you see older pictures of him and newer pictures, he, he's gained weight. So... Uh, I think he's actually blaming this somewhat on his lack of recent physical fitness, which kind of goes back to Calwatt's question of, was was I attempting to work out or do anything to prepare myself for these long days at the main event? And my answer was no. But I've actually never felt that problem. I've never felt where, like, I was drained or I felt I wouldn't have been drained if if I worked out more. I've never really had that feeling. I've just, I have had days where I just show up there just really not as... uh, mentally sharp regarding the way I'm seeing everything at the table compared to other days. But it isn't from, like, fatigue. It's more of uh, just some days I'm better than others. 
So, well, but maybe if you uh, felt Chance Cornu's abs, you would have different. Uh, maybe, maybe I would maybe touch them and go, "Oh my God, those abs! I must have those. I must have. If I can't have you, yeah. Chance, I must have them myself." So then, so then he yeah, says, "Trap, hold up. Let me ask a question. Do you think if he said raise instead of all in, he still would have mucked?" Yeah, I think so because he, he. I think he said he believed it was a full bet left instead of just a half a bet, but. I, I don't. I think he would have mocked either way. I think the way he was seeing is like, how could Jungle, who obviously is a great player, raise him on that board, and how could an ace with no kicker be good? And the huge mistake was obviously not thinking. I played it super weak and was checking the whole way. Of course, he could think it's good <laughs> with, with with worse than an ace. You, you, bet, you make you a good bet, point, though. Bad second pair. Sorry, uh, come on. No, you you make a good point, though, Trader Ruski. Like it. If he really was that kind of drained and out of it, him saying, you know, I'm all in might have, you know, kind of triggered the no, no limit holding player in him to kind of made him kind of inflexibly fold. You know what I mean? Yeah, maybe. I, I understand oh, where you're totally. going. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. He should have said that, too. That wasn't part of the the, the explanation here, but it maybe should have been. So he finally he wrote, uh, lastly, and something I've always preached to students and friends is do not be afraid to look stupid sometimes. Fear of doing something dumb hinders experimentation and growth. Experimentation? What, like touching uh, Chance's abs? Look, (laughs) look dumb, laugh about it, move on. I'll show you how to do that in the days to come. Deep run in the main incoming and or a win in the post limbs. Okay, so I've got a few things to say here. First of all, pretty good response. He's owning it. He's not making excuses. He's not trying to make it not seem as bad as it was. He's not going to say, well, it wasn't the best fold, but there's been much worse out there. And let me tell you, if you look at it from this way, it actually wasn't that bad. And the, or, or Jungle, you know, him raising was such a bad play, I couldn't imagine why Jungle would raise it. Like, he's not saying any of that. He's saying, yeah, this is as bad as all you guys are saying. It, it really is the worst fold in the history of poker. I agree. It was a terrible move, a terrible play. And I was tired. And I think maybe because it's because I've gained weight recently. I, w- I wasn't physically up to this. And uh, I screwed up, and I think more people, when they play a hand as awful as this, they need to just say so also. And, and here I am leading by example. I am admitting this was an awful hand. I screwed it up badly, and there's no excuse. So, like, so that, that's a yeah. good answer. Uh, I, I do like ha- the way he came out and owned it. I think he did good in owning it. That was great. He didn't whine about it. He didn't complain about people piling on him. He's like, you're right. It was terrible, you know? He should have just ended there. Don't even get into blaming it on possibly gaining weight or whatever. Just be like, yep, it was stupid, you know, whatever. And then good to go. I think he's got a good attitude about it. I like it. Yeah. Now, at the end there where he says that he's going to show how he can come back from this with a deep run in the main and or a win in the in the ones after the main, you don't have to say this. You have a first, a second, and another second in this World Series. Like, how many other players have Drift done better be this satisfied. World Series than him? Yeah, Druff would be satisfied driving home with that, I think. <laughs> so, I, now, I could see why you don't want to come off arrogant here after making a fold like that. You don't want to say, well, what are you guys criticizing me for? Do you have a first and two seconds in the World Series this year? I think not. Like, so you, uh, you don't want to come off like that guy. But, but uh, you, you also don't have to say at the end, hey, I'm going to make up for it and show what a great job I do in the rest of the series. You... you what he could say is, um, I, I'm 
satisfied with the rest of my performance this World Series. That was one really bad hand, unfortunately, which uh, I have no excuses for. Uh, I, I was just exhausted and I messed it up. And uh, this will happen. And, and we, we all will have these moments and, and it sucks. And I, I wish I could take it back. But that's that's the way poker is. And uh, and that's it. Like He doesn't have to say, watch me prove myself. He already proved himself. He's, he's done great this series. There's, there's nothing to prove. But uh, so I... I think the end was unnecessary, and also if he then bricks the main, and I haven't looked how he's—I haven't looked if he's played yet. But if he bricks the main, or that goes out day one, or doesn't cash in anything else he plays, he's already setting up an expectation that if he promises, watch how great I'm going to do in these, and then doesn't, people go, ah, look at him, look at—he's still affected by it. Like you don't even want to set yourself up for that. You you don't want to say, watch me come back from this. You don't have to. He, not with the series he's had. Because this wasn't just a guy in a big spot messing things up. This was a guy in a big spot messing things up that also has had one of the best World Series of anybody that has played the World Series in 2021. He's been one of the top I'd 2021 players here. <laughs> so I would certainly take it. But you're, I mean, it, it, to his credit, Druff, it really could have gone the other way, right? We've heard plenty of poker players go the other way, like, you know, Shut up. Who are you to tell me, you know, how many bracelets do you have? All that kind of shit. We see that all the time. So good for him. He just said, yep, it was stupid. You know? Yeah. No, over, overall, I like the response. And I think that the main thing, the main takeaway was that he owned it. He didn't make excuses. And he didn't try to downplay how bad the fold was. And that was that. And I responded to it. And I told him he had a great series i said he has anything to be ashamed of and also that anybody who has played a lot of tournaments and says that they've never made some kind of big boneheaded play in a big spot is lying maybe not quite as bad as this one but close to as bad as this one most people have had just some moment after you play enough tournaments it happens you just have a moment where you do something real dumb and afterwards go what how could i have done that and it can happen in many ways. It can be just a bluff that makes no sense at all, that you know 100% is going to get caught, and you do it anyway. Or a terrible call where you know you're not good and you call off like a ton of chips for no reason. One of many things that can happen. Or a terrible fold, like this one. There's many things you can do where you kind of just have this freeze-up in your brain where you just don't make the right decision. That it was an unfortunate time to have this happen, whereas if he did this at some non-televised table on day one, uh, no one's going to ever know about it. I also don't believe people should try to kick him when he's feeling down like this. You see, he knows he made a terrible fold. So for people that just want to really come after him and just bash him, like, the, it, he's feeling bad enough about it. There's no reason to do something like this. Now, if he had a history of being a jerk and, and berating others then i would say yeah go for it but he doesn't he's 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 always been a nice guy on twitter he has a good reputation he's never involved in in much drama from what i've seen so this is someone who you don't want to pile on just because he made a stupid fold in a high profile spot now draft play with me here for a minute if the same exact thing happened with Justin Bonomo, what do you think his reaction would be? You think it would be as contrite, or what do you think would be going on there? I think he'd be saying, you know, 
I realized that at the time that this was a, a bad fold, but the problem was I have immunocompromised people at home, and I, I wanted to be out of the tournament as fast as possible, so the chance of infecting them was smaller. <laughs> I, I would think you would say something kind of nonsensical about the dynamic at the table, or you know, you weren't there, or whatever. Now, what what about like Phil Hellmuth? How do you think he would take all the people piggypiling on him if he makes this fold? Yeah, he would say, "Who who has?" Who has uh, 17 bracelets? Who has that? <laughs> and and also, look at the way this guy played. Look at the way he play. he's raising with king-queen. Why would he do that? This guy's supposed to be good. Exactly. This is why I went so many bracelets, because this guy's got second pair, and he's raising with king-queen for his tournament That's life. 100%. That's 100% what he would say. So I thought, 100%. how could he be this stupid? I folded because I said he just isn't this stupid, but he actually is. That's what I learned here. That's what Phil Helmuth would have said. 100%. That was beautiful. <sighs> nice job. Okay, so let's talk about uh, David Williams. And, Does you know. all feet? I, I was going to say. This is, I was going to try to make it a. I know him for. I know him for magic and. And uh, foot fetish porn. That's the only thing. Oh, I hold, hold on. He finished second at the well, he, main event. That's that's a pretty. Yeah, and he rubbed. Uh, yeah, I've got a gif of him rubbing his hands on his titties at some final table. That's right. And he also, a, this isn't as well known, he also had sex with the Matador's daughter from Tilt in 2005. Oh, yeah. Good for him. Though. Yeah, that was, that was good. I, I saw him with her. Anyway, David Williams, I believe, busted from the main. You know, when you bust from the main and you're expecting that you're going to have a nice main event and you're feeling good, you're feeling confident, and you bust day one when 76% of the field makes it, you feel kind of shitty. I get that. But he's proposed something that would be a major change to the main event. And I want to discuss it out here. So this is what he wrote. This was earlier today. Hot take. The World Series of Poker needs re-entry. He's talking about the main event. Not unlimited, just one entry per starting day. No more debate on which day to start. Play them all. Can you imagine the prize pool if people could spend 60k on entries? Re-entry is part of tournament poker now. WPTs have it. Then he he went on to say, uh, and I'm not, I'm totally not just saying this because I'm out, I promise. I, I think that yes, is why he's saying he totally it. totally is. <laughs> you think if he's totally like the chip is. leader right now, he's saying, you know what would be nice if we had re-entries? It would be great if we had more players still in the field that are good. Yeah, I don't Not think so. Not a chance in the world. <laughs> a number of people actually agreed with him. Then a number of people disagreed with him. So two hours later, he, he wrote, and I don't know if he was... Uh, being honest, but he said, man, I was just fucking around and don't give a fuck, but wow, I triggered some people. A-plus troll levels here. Also, lots of arguments against that don't make logical sense. All emotion. Someone else playing like a monkey because they can re-enter is good for one bullet. So, uh, it's hard for him to... It's hard to understand what he's saying here. This is two, two hours later, after he took a lot of heat for proposing this, and uh, he's saying, I was just fucking around and trolling everybody. But then he's like, yeah, but some of the arguments against me are bad. So wait a minute. So Wait, do you agree that uh, we should have re-entries or not? First of all, this would majorly change the main event. Because a big feature of the main event these days, as I've already mentioned, 
earlier in this show is the fact that it's very, very slow. The structure is slow. Each level's two hours. And the play is very cautious. That you don't have that many people who are firing it in and gambling at the beginning. Because you only get one shot at it. Because the field is softer than any other 10K event that goes anywhere. So everybody wants to maximize their chances here. And pick the best spots because you have time to pick the best spots and you only get one chance no matter how rich you are so you have your one 10k entry and if you shove it in in a gambly sort of spot and you lose you don't get to come back until the next year so what david is saying here is people should have up to six chances because that would inflate the prize pool and can you imagine the prizes that would be on top if you have a bunch of people re-entering? Well, the problem is, number one, I don't think you're going to have a bunch of people re-entering. I think you're going to have a lot of good pros re-entering. So, first of all, this makes the field a lot tougher because you're adding basically carbon copies of these good pros who bust because they can enter again. It's like their their twin brother with the exact same knowledge they have, can then enter after they bust, which you don't want. So the higher percentage of entries that are good pros, the harder the event is. That's the way to think of it. Every time somebody busts who's good and can re-enter, that makes the event harder. Even if the prize pool is bigger, this makes it to where the field is tougher. But second, this would very much change the dynamic because people would no longer be scared to gamble. I shouldn't say people. The people who can re-enter would no longer be scared to gamble. Now, David says, well, what, what are you complaining about? Because if they're taking unreasonable chances that they otherwise wouldn't take because they can re-enter, then good. They're getting their money in bad more often, and uh, that should be good for the field. Well, not necessarily, because they may not be getting it in bad, they would just be getting in it where it's not really, really good. So let's say you're in a hand against somebody where uh, they have about a 50-50 chance of winning. And uh, and they are getting kind of the idea that you don't have the nuts. So this person then puts a lot of pressure on you, and you who are not going to re-enter, you fold because you know you don't have the nuts, you don't have anywhere close to the nuts, and you're just going to let it go. That person is much more willing to put the pressure on you and get you to fold because you're probably not re-entering and they are. So that gives them the advantage because they can play with more confidence. They can make more moves like this because they don't have the same hesitation to make these moves since they can enter again. And this can get you to make folds that you otherwise wouldn't have made because they would not have done this to you otherwise. So this becomes a strategic advantage for these people. And this can allow people to accumulate chips a lot quicker. So it really just changes the entire dynamic of the event. This allows for a lot more players to play a tricky and aggressive style in a very slow event because they're deep-pocketed and can keep entering up to six times. And maybe on time number six, then they'll get more conservative. So it just changes the event. It's not the same event anymore at that point. 
And that's yeah, a problem. That's what I was going to say, Druff, is that, you know, it wouldn't be the main event anymore. You know what I mean? It would play very, very different. Yeah. It, it, tr- it would play tremendously differently. And that's a big problem. So this this isn't just, oh, we found a way to in- increase the prize pool. And we found a way to get some deep-pocketed pros to just fire off. This just changes the event. And it also, as I said, increases the percentage of players in the event who are going to be very tough, especially because the average recreational player isn't going to show up with 60,000 to put into this. The average recreational player is going to show up with 10,000 to put into this. And if they bust, then they go home. The only people putting in 60,000 will be the deep-pocketed pros. So you'll get six of them, up to six of them, depending on how many times they bust. So that'll really start to tilt the entries to being much more good pro heavy than it presently is. So this would make the event tougher. It would change the event and make it tougher. So it's a it's a terrible idea. Now, I'm not saying the World Series is going to do this or that they're considering it, but him bringing this up has started this conversation. And it's surprising you actually have a number of people who are for it, but I think a lot of people who are for it are ones who would benefit from it, the ones who would like to play that style, but they don't because they're afraid of busting. And the reason they're afraid of busting is not because they're going to lose 10K, but because they won't have the opportunity to continue playing. These players who are not playing this crazy style are thinking, hey, I want to wait till the later stages, and then I can start using my superior skill to get very deep and maybe win millions of dollars. So I, I don't want to take the chances that I... I I make some sort of very aggressive play into a recreational player who either can't fold or has a better hand than I think, and I'm out and I don't get another shot at it. So it's a very big difference when these pros know that there's a lot of value to stay in the field and not bust. So I I think that's a horrible idea. As far as I know, it's not being considered, and... Hopefully the World Series will not succumb to the money grab approach that they've been taking with a lot of other events, and they will keep this one pure. Hopefully this one, they will keep the same year after year after year. It also kind of ruins the legacy of the event, because then you won't be able to compare main event winners to each other. You can't say, well, you know, this guy won in, in uh, 2025, but there was a rebuy event then. So is it really the same event? You want it to be the same event. No, yes, I know the fields are way bigger now. You can't really compare people who won it in the 80s and 90s to today because the field is, is huge, whereas before it wasn't. But that's at least just about field size. And yeah, there's been some other changes like structure and, and stack size, but it has still been a 10K buy-in freeze out the entire time. And I feel that's the way it should stay. So I don't know if David was serious or... It, it is possible he just put out something he knew would be controversial because he was pissed off about busting. That's also possible. He just fired that out because he was mad and wanted to upset people <laughs> because he was upset. So that's possible too. Now I want to talk about a story which is actually growing in uh, size today as far as how people are paying attention to stories out there, and this is becoming a big one, about the Lammers. And everybody's pissed off about the Lammers. And I agree, it's a, it's a pretty outrageous situation. So I want to give you an introduction, a very quick introduction to what, about tournament Lammers. 
and at the World Series, how the Lammers thing works. So if you go play a satellite to it, at the World Series, a satellite is an event where you're not going to win cash. You're going to win... It, you're going to win tokens, which are called Lammers, which can be used to enter any tournament at the World Series. Now, usually satellites have some sort of specific purpose that's named. Like, for example, you could play the Limit Hold'em satellite to the 10K Limit Hold'em event. So it's $1,100 to enter. And if you're in the uh, top 10%, then you get $10,000 worth of Lammers that you could use to enter the 10K Limit Hold'em event, but you could also use to enter any other event or events at the World Series, or you could even sell them to people because these are just physical tokens and they are not uh, directly attached to you. So for many years, there have been people who just hang out and play satellites all day, and they really don't enter World Series events. They play satellites, and they sometimes think the satellites are good value because the better pros don't bother with them. So they play satellites, they win Lammers, and then the way they get the money from the Lammers is they go to the registration line for the World Series of Poker bracelet events, and then after they sell it to them then the transaction is done right there. And then the person who sold the Lammers walks away. So by the time the person uses the Lammers to buy into that event that they bought, the person who sold it to them is long gone. Now, I have been approached many times over the years about buying Lammers. And what I always say is, okay, but you have to come to the cage with me. And I want to complete the transaction. I want to see that the Lammers work okay. And once I get my tournament ticket, I will pay you. And if they say no, then okay, goodbye. It's not doing me any good, so I don't care either way. They're not doing me a favor. It doesn't help me at all. It's neutral to me. So if they don't like my terms, they can find somebody else. Well, actually, every single time they've been willing to do this because they're just happy they have someone who will buy them. So they go up to the cage with me and then... I've never had a problem. Now, I was doing this to prevent any counterfeit issues. This way, I know there's no way I can get fucked because the guy doesn't get paid until after I have successfully registered with those Lammers. But most people are not as cautious as me. Most people who are willing to buy them just buy them on the spot, and the ones who are not willing to buy them just say no. But it doesn't take that long to sell your Lammers off, so people really are just like World Series of Poker Lammers pros. That's all they do there. This has gone on for many years, many, many years. Well, a change has occurred today, and it's getting a lot of people upset. Shane Schlager, a veteran in the poker community, been around a long time, said, FYI, the World Series of Poker Cage is saying they're not accepting satellite lammers for buy-ins unless you can verify that you won them yourself. Seems ridiculous, but I would recommend that you don't buy Lammers off people selling them at the registration line. So then, about an hour later, KevMath clarified and said, they are noting who's won tournament buy-in chips, referring to Lammers, in a conversation I just had with operations manager Tyler Pipple. He told me he, to, he, told me he or an associate in player serve that were not noted to that player. So they've gone from what Shane Schlager heard earlier today to where you just absolutely can't use them if you've been sold Lammers tough luck. 
to, okay, there's a one-time exception for everybody, and that's it. But the one-time exception has to be approved by either the operations manager, Tyler Pipple, or someone who works for him. It's not like an automatic at the cage, okay, here's your one time. But this is pretty awful because they are changing this in the middle of the series. So you have people who have been encouraged to play these satellites knowing they could sell these lammers at full price. And now all of a sudden, near the end of the series, they can't sell them. So what about people holding a lot of lammers that they won? Just tough luck? Because who's going to want to buy them now? I I think this is really going to kill the lammers market. Which was really not really a market. It was really just something people people were doing to be nice to fellow poker players. No one's going to want to buy them now to have to go through all this bullshit and use up their one time with with using lammers that that aren't registered to them. So, like, let's say somebody approached me in line and they said, "Will you do it?" I would say, "I can't anymore because uh, one, I don't want to have to go get special permission from some person I have to go find to give me that permission, and second... I don't want to use up the one time on someone I don't know. If I'm going to use up my one time, maybe it'll be a friend of mine that has lammers that he really needs to get rid of. And okay, I'll use up my one time for him. I'm not going to use it for some stranger in line. So now anybody holding lammers is not going to be able to sell them unless they can find people ignorant of this rule. So the poker community is very angry about this. They think this is the World Series being greedy. They think the World Series is doing this because they want people to be ending up with lammers they can't use because once the year is over, you can't use them for the next year. That's it. That's done. So lammers must be used by the end of the present year. So at the end of the series, which we're near the end of it, you cannot sell or use your lammers at all. That's just done. So some are saying that the World Series is hoping that people end up with lammers they can't use and they get to pocket the money, the World Series. Furthermore, They say that they're hoping that this will force just additional money into World Series coffers because if people can't buy lammers, then those who have the lammers have to just use them to enter tournaments and the people who otherwise would have bought the lammers are now putting their own cash into it instead of giving it to that person. So this makes the tournament fields bigger. And of course, the World Series collects more rake. Also, criticism was coming at the World Series saying that these lammers were won in raked satellites. In fact, fairly highly raked satellites. So what's their problem? If people want to sell these, it shouldn't hurt the World Series at all. It really shouldn't matter to the World Series how this is being paid. Now, the question comes, why would they choose to do this now? Is this just an asshole move to do this near the end of the series so some people end up with a lot of lammers they can't use? Or did something happen to cause this? Well, it actually may be the latter. Recall that you cannot use tournament chips as currency because it's a violation of the law. There's only one legal currency to use in the U.S., and that is the U.S. dollar. You cannot use any other currency. Casino chips cannot be used to pay debts. It technically isn't allowed, for example, let's say I owe Calwatt $1,000. It technically isn't allowed for me to hand him a $1,000 chip and say, okay, my debt is settled with you. Now, I could do it, and probably no one would see it or catch it, and I could probably pay him this way, but if Calawat were to go to the cage and try to cash it in, and they say, oh, where'd you get this? And he said, oh, Todd Wittellis gave this to me. He owed me money. They would actually take it from him and not cash it, and they could legally do so, and this has happened before. In fact, this exact 
thing happened to Nolan Dalla with a 5K chip that he just got confiscated because he stupidly said to the MGM that someone gave it to him for money they owed him, which was true, and they took it from him. I was surprised Nolan didn't know that, being a veteran of the industry like he is. This happened like in the mid-2000s to him. So I think this is along the same lines, that when you win Lammers, they are not currency. And I think there may be some legal issue where players selling them to one another to enter tournaments may technically be against the law and that the Rio has just looked the other way all this time. But maybe they're starting to get some regulatory heat about this or they're afraid that that heat might be coming and they decided quickly to shape up. So it might be along those lines rather than greed. I don't know, but that would be my guess that it has to do with that. However, it still screws players. Also, it is a bit strange that they are allowing this as a one-time courtesy for people if they really are doing it to avoid breaking the law. There's no such thing as a one-time courtesy to break the law. You either can or you can't. So that does make me think that this isn't something essential that they are being required to do by the government. It is possible they're just trying to bring the incidence of this down because they're afraid they might get in trouble if this occurs on a regular basis rather than just occurring occasionally because an exception is made. So maybe they haven't been warned yet, but maybe they're afraid that such a warning is coming and they're just trying to clean things up. Whatever it is, since we're near the end of the series, why not let the series end and then introduce this rule for next year and be very clear about it? In fact, make sure everybody knows before they register to a satellite that any Lammers one can only be used by them. So if they do not plan to enter any tournaments with these Lammers, they should not be playing the satellite. This needs to be very clear. Yeah, it feels like doing it midstream like they're kind of doing now. It just seems terrible. You're right. Why not just wait? I don't get it. It's even worse than midstream. This is end stream to where the opportunities to sell these lammers. Did hear some? We're back. I think we're yeah, back. Yeah, you've been fading in and out. <laughs> uh, the real internet sucks. Okay, I think we're back here, folks. Every so often you'll every so often you'll go off air for like a couple seconds and then come back. But That's not good. Okay, well, we'll have to make the best of it with these the Rio broadcast. But anyway, yeah, it's it's very bad at the end of the stream to do this to not allow people to sell lammers they've accumulated and don't have even much of an opportunity to use them themselves. Even you tell people, look, you can't sell these, you're going to have to use them. People are like, look, I, what can I really enter at this point? There's not much left. So they, this is really should be something they start next year and need to be very, very clear about it. I, I hate in general when anything changes and it's something you've been used to for a long time and then they expect the customer to just deal with it even though they purchased the product or service not knowing the change has happened. I brought this up about an airline years ago where they... Uh, had a very low pitch between the seats, which is basically the space they give you, the leg room, the space between seats. They very, very much lowered it at Discount Airline. And uh, this is Air Canada Rouge, which is the discount version of Air Canada, which I didn't realize when I bought it. And I was very frustrated when I read the reviews that said, if you're like over five foot eight, you're going to be hating life. So it's not like you have to be abnormally tall to not fit in those seats. You, you have to be like like... 
even an average height male is going to be too tall for them. And someone who's a lot taller than average, like me or you, will have a big problem there. And I did. Yeah, you and I would have a bad time. <laughs> so, so I said what's ridiculous here, this should be illegal. It should be something where they have to disclose that if you're taller than a certain height, you're going to have a very hard time fitting in the seat. Do you understand before purchasing? Yes, no. It has to be like really clear, not buried in the fine print, or not even just not disclosed at all, as they don't disclose it at all. And I said the reason for that is because people are used to flying for all these years where even the worst legroom seats aren't so terrible that you just don't fit. So if they're going to make ones like that, they need to disclose it. You can't just have people find out the bad news when they get there, when they have an expectation of something. So similar with the Lammers, you can't run these satellites for years and years and years where everybody can expect they can sell the Lammers, and then all of a sudden, towards the end of the series, they can't one year. That's just not fair to them. So people are very reasonable to be pissed off about this. That's really too bad that the World Series is doing this. Okay, so I want to go to... uh, talk about the final World Series topic, and that is Landon Teese and his chunk off of his remaining stack. Now, he was not doing all that great anyway, but he definitely had a playable stack that he could have brought into day two. Instead, he brings in an event-low 1K stack into day two. (laughs) When I looked at the 1D survivors... I saw he had 1K, and I go, that had to be a misprint. He didn't. He's not really bringing 1K into day two, is he? But yes, he's bringing 1K into day two. So if you remember, he's a young guy. Well, these short stackers are just getting out of control. These short stackers, <laughs> I mean, come on. This is just getting ridiculous. He's a young guy. He's kind of a disciple of Matt Berkey, who had a good day 1D, by the way. Landon, he's listed on his Twitter profile as a 22 professional poker player, keep moving forward. He has a lot of followers now because he's just been self-promoting so much and has gotten older poker pros to help promote him. But he has 17K followers. He infamously lost this heads-up match with Bill Perkins where he gave Bill Perkins nine big blinds per hundred and couldn't even come close to keeping up with that and had to concede, which is kind of embarrassing. But uh, he's still been plugging on and... People give him a lot of leeway because he's still young and somewhat naive in some ways. But he played the main event. I think this is his first main event. I could be wrong, but I think it's his first main event. And uh, he had mentioned he had like 40K at dinner from starting 60. So definitely he wasn't doing that great at the dinner break, but he wasn't like hopelessly short. But then he didn't give any update. Yeah, he had 42K. He wrote 42K on dinner break long tournament. But then people were like, okay, then what happened? So the day ended, he still didn't update, and people thought it was strange. And I had remembered I saw that 1K stack he was bringing in. I go, hmm, is this really true? Is he really bringing in 1K? Well, the answer is yes, he's bringing in 1K. He described the hand finally, as people were so curious about it. Last hand of the night for everyone curious. Open queen-jack suited in the hijack. The big blind, three bets, I call. So he came in with, uh, I believe, 40K here. And again, he opened up with queen-jack suited and the big blind, three bet him. So that's already a sign the big blind strong in this tournament. 
In this tournament, the big blind is not three betting like that in most cases, unless they have a very strong hand. You just don't see very much uh, big blind squeezing like this on this at the stage of this tournament. And he didn't say this player was doing it a lot or anything. So my guess it was just some regular player there that wouldn't do this unless he was very strong. So he called with a queen-jack suited. Okay, I, I don't know how big the three-bet was, but fine. Queen-jack suited has some ways to crack these hands that might be doing it. You just got to proceed carefully if you flop top pair or something, and you know you're probably not good. So he says, at this point, the pot is 13K. And the, pot com- or the flop comes king-two-two with one spade. So, okay, at this point, this is when you give up. Someone has three bet out of the big blind. You have queen jack suited, and the board comes king 2-2 two, two with one spade. Now, if this were limit hold'em, yeah, you could take one off and see if you, you, get, uh, you pick up some draw there. In no limit hold'em, with the pot already being bloated the way it was, it's going to be too expensive to call. Well, I will say that the big blind didn't bet that big. The pot being 13K, Landon claims the guy only bet 3K. So he called. Now, I would have let it go here anyway, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, the 3K isn't that much, but there's no way the turn is going to put you in a spot where you're confident, no matter what it is. The best you can do is hit second pair, as far as a made hand. Or you're going to pick up a draw, and then they can put a ton of pressure on you, and you're going to be stuck uh, wondering if you're drawing dead. So, like, what if the guy had pocket kings, which is very possible, three betting out of the big line? So he makes the, the small bet to entice you in. So let's say you pick up a straighter flush draw. Okay, you could be drawing, you'd be drawing dead there if you've got kings. So a flop like that, I'm tossing it. 100% toss. Even for th- 3K, I'm tossing it. Anyway, landing calls. First mistake. Turn. Another king. So it's now king, king, 2-2. Two, two. And there's no flush draw. King, king, 2-2. Two, two. Only one spade is still out there. So at this point, you're definitely done, right? So he says with an existing 20K pot, the guy bets, uh, the, the guy checks to him. So then Landon thinks, oh, look at that. The guy doesn't like the yeah, two kings nice. on the board. I know what I can do. I can run him off the hand to make him think I have the king. So Landon bets 13K into the 20K pot. The guy calls. Pot is now 46K. Okay, so Landon tried and failed. Now, the problem was Landon does not have a big stack. Landon's now eating up a lot of his remaining stack uh, trying this bluff. So the pot is now 46K. The river is an 8. Obviously, it doesn't matter. King, king, 2, 2, 8. Or king, 2, 2, king, 8, basically. Landon shoves. So pot is 46K, and the guy checks, and Landon fires in his final 24K. Or actually, 23K, I guess it was. So he left himself with, for whatever reason, left himself with 1,000 in case he loses. He fires in 23 of his 24K. The guy tanks and finally says, ah, oh, man, I don't know. Okay, I guess I call. And flips over aces. I was about to say, he's got aces. <laughs> he said the guy took four minutes to tank, but made the right move and landed bagged a single 1K chip. Now, I don't know what Berkey's teaching him, but Berkey needs to go over a few main event lessons with him. This is not what you do, especially when you only have like 40 or so K yourself. Yeah. And this is going to eat a lot of your stack. Is this guy a rec player? 
the guy he was playing against? He didn't say. So that's that's a good question. Okay. But uh, it kind of sounds like it. I mean, it's a situation where the rec players can be like, okay, well, I can't fold my aces, so I call. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's so funny. He actually posted his day two assignment in Pavilion Two Forty Five, and it's like uh, seat one, uh, Juan Carlos Ramirez Parodi of eighty-seven thousand five hundred, which is almost exactly my stack, by the way. Uh, then seat two, uh, Landon Tees one thousand. <laughs> oh, and the seat three, uh, David Yingling, uh, or no, no, seat, sorry, seat four, Igor Yazoslevsky from Ukraine, sixty-four seven. David Yingling, uh, forty-nine thousand. Craig Rallo, one hundred twenty-eight thousand. Like they're all <laughs> these five and six-figure numbers, and he's got one thousand. That I is funny. He's going to double up three times. And get just a glimmer of hope, and then he's going to get busted up. Well, guess what? I think he's also in the yeah. big blind. They often start the the button on seat nine. Oh, so oh, I think he's going to have one hand. <laughs> he's going to have one hand decide to, uh, and he's obviously going to be all in. Uh, so, well, let me ask you a question, Druff. If if that hand was limit and it was free bet pre. You can't fold to one small bet even on No, you you can't because what you can Queen Jack. Yeah, because you the thing the huge difference yeah. in limit hold'em is that they cannot hit you with this big ass bet on the turn to make if you're drawing to have to make you make this decision where yes, I have a big draw now. Like let's say you get the best possible card, which would be the ten of spades. So now it's uh right. the straight and flush draw, which you could still be drawing dead, but uh and limit hold'em at least they can only put in a, a fixed amount which is worth calling yep. there. And, and because, you know, in many cases, you're not drawing dead. Like, here you wouldn't be with the aces. But uh, uh, in no limit, what you don't want to do is call a small bet on the flop and then get to the turn where they can put a lot of pressure with a big bet, even if you hit the perfect card. So that's, that's why you just have to give up. So I don't well, fall- I bring it up because it's a perfect example of the, the difference in play, right? It, it's a spot where if it's three bet pre and it's a king deuce deuce board and you've got queen jack, you're going to peel one off for one small bet in limit, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely a different spot. And also, if this was uh, a different tournament, this wouldn't be as bad. I still wouldn't do this, but, but if this is a tournament where everything moves faster, you're thinking, okay, I'm trying to accumulate chips here, and that's going to help me because everything moves up so fast, so I'm trying to accumulate chips, and maybe I'll get caught with this bluff, and okay, then I'll be out. But, but here... He doesn't have to do things like this. He can just wait and find much better spots to accumulate chips. Or if he wants to make moves, he can make small moves that are not going to risk such a big percentage of his stack. So here he just got obsessed with trying to ram this through. And he was he was convinced correctly the guy didn't have a king. But he was, he was trying. He just couldn't give up on this bluff. He just figured, I'm going to represent the king. I'm going to keep betting big. This guy's going to be scared. He's going to feel too stupid calling off with, with uh, anything but a king. And he's not going to do it. Well, he did it. And that's the other problem is you can't always expect your opponent to mm-hmm. fold when maybe you would fold if this was being done to you. So that's the other thing. You can't just always know when your opponent is going to lay down a hand they should lay down. I remember in, in uh, one of the years, I think it was 17, I, I flopped a set of deuces. And I got a guy to put in a lot of chips with ace-jack on like a jack-six deuce board. And I was surprised how much I got him to put in it to, to the point where I was a little worried maybe he's going to turn over sixes. But no, he, he just said ace jack. So I was very happy to see that and, and doubled up. So I'm, I'm sure that uh, 
Landon's regretting this. I'm, I'm sure uh, Matt Berkey's shaking his head about this whole thing. <laughs> That's what happens when you're 22 years old and you're trying to make a name for yourself. So I, this is like a last-minute ad to our agenda. I said, I've got to talk about this. It's just, it's just so funny. It's, it's much funnier that he's coming back with 1,000 than busting with us. Now, did, are we still on air, Druff? You check it? Because you cut out for a few seconds. Yeah, it's showing we're on air. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be able to complete this here. We're having a lot of connection issues with the lovely Rio Internet. Okay, so that's the end oh, of the bad, world. I have bad news. You're going to have to complete it without me. I'm sorry, Druff. I, I, I did what I could, but I got oh, Okay, well, I, I appreciate your time here. We somehow lost Trader Ruski also. But uh, thank you for being with us for these hours here, and I'll try to complete the show if the Internet allows. And uh, thank you very much. Good to have, it, have you on here for a few hours. And uh, hopefully I can do something with my uh, non-1000 chip stack tomorrow. At the day luck, number two, man. I got Thank my you. fingers crossed for you in the tournament, and also for uh, staying on air on the Rio Wire. Yes, that that may be tougher than the tournament. All right, we'll talk to you later. All right, so moving on here, have some topics that are unrelated to anything in the World Series, but the world still goes on even when the World Series of Poker is happening. So let's touch on those. First of all, I want to talk about a situation at the bike, the bicycle casino in Los Angeles. And you may remember that they got raided in 2017 when there was some allegations of uh, money laundering going on there. And some of you may not be aware of uh, how much money laundering is a problem in, uh, in in card rooms. So, if you think about it, money laundering is where money that is obtained illegally, such as drug dealing, is then funneled through some other means to where it comes out on the other side looking like legitimate money. So, what you want is where you can spend the money in some way or invest it in some way, which isn't really detectable, and then it produces legitimate money on the other end. So then you can explain where the money came from if uh, authorities come asking. So, of course, money laundering has gone on for a very long time. And card rooms are a perfect place to do it. Because if you think about it, you're not even playing against the house. You're playing against other players. So if you buy in for a certain amount and then you cash out for a certain amount, then whatever you cash out, if it's more than what you bought in for, then those are just poker wins. And as long as you can fake that you won the money at the card room, then you've laundered the money successfully. And obviously, criminals have learned this over time and they have targeted card rooms for this. Casinos are often also used for laundering money, but it's a little harder at casinos because you're betting against the house, and the house keeps records of what you won and what you didn't win. Whereas at the poker table, nobody's keeping records. It's just a matter of what you buy in and what you cash out. And there's many ways to creatively make it look different than it actually is. So the bike got shut down, if you remember, in 2017 
And at the time, there was an actual raid, and it was because of suspicion of money laundering. But we got a little more information on what was going on here, and it's a lot bigger than I thought it was. The Bicycle Casino is going to be paying a large fine over a very, very large money laundering series of incidents that took place in 2016. The fine they're paying is... One million dollars. No, but half of that. $500,000 fine they are paying because a Chinese guy was showing up there with duffel bags full of money that totaled... One hundred billion dollars. No, but one hundred million dollars. Yes. One hundred million dollars was allegedly laundered through the Bicycle Club in 2016 by one guy. And that's what those raids were about. This player was described only as a Chinese national, and he made over 100 visits to the bike over an eight-month period in 2016 and would arrive with duffel bags full of cash. And he had an assistant with him who would exchange millions in cash for chips. And then he would cash out. And overall, he cashed out $100 million during these eight months. Now, the assistant did fill out a number of these forms because whenever the assistant um, buys in, whoever buys in for more than $10,000 in cash, they have to fill out what's known as a CTR form. And then the casino is required to submit a suspicious activity report known as an SAR if they think that these buy-ins are as a result of uh, something going on more than just somebody looking to gamble. However, the casino was filing these forms in the name of this assistant rather than the guy actually doing the gambling there. And that's a violation of the law. They were also basically looking the other way with everything else, including with uh, the suspicious activity reports. They were not uh, filing anything like that. They were acting like they were not suspicious. There is a very good chance, though I don't really see anything here about that, that the people working at the bike who allowed this were probably getting paid off for it. They were probably getting tipped very, very, very well to just do what was being asked of them. So the casino finally reached a non-prosecution agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice. And the bike has agreed to pay that $500,000 fine. Plus, they have agreed to new anti-money laundering protocols that they didn't have in place before. The casino's attorney, Johnny L. Griffin III, said the company acknowledged it made a mistake. And they were looking to ensure that all of their compliance and reporting programs are strictly followed and updated. I am pleased that the government, through its extensive and lengthy investigation, has determined and confirmed that there are no systemic faults within the Bicycle Hotel and Casino's compliance and reporting program, said Johnny Griffin, their attorney. The Bicycle Club actually had money laundering issues going way back to 1990. In 1990, the DEA and IRS seized the Bicycle Club when it was determined that it was actually constructed using laundered drug money. And then 
After that, it was sold from the government to a group of investors. Also, in 2016, the Normandy Casino, which is nearby, lost its gaming license and their owners were forced to sell because of a money laundering probe. And it was eventually bought by Larry Flint and renamed to Lucky Larry Flint's Lucky Lady Casino. So basically what this guy was doing was he was uh, having his assistant buy a bunch of chips. Because you have to have chips to gamble there, so uh, someone had to buy them. So he had somebody else buy the chips, give the chips to him. Then he was presumably playing fake poker sessions. I don't know who he was playing them against. I don't know. if Maybe they were real poker sessions. Maybe he was just playing poker at high stakes and then cashing out the chips. I don't know what he was actually doing regarding playing. But the whole purpose of it was for this guy to acquire a lot of casino chips and then cash them out. And all the forms were being filled out in the name of his assistant. And I don't even know if they were filling out any forms and he was cashing them out. And I don't know if those were the assistant's name too or if they just weren't filling them at all. But the whole point was to make it look like that uh, he was winning. I mean, presumably, since it was probably money laundering... I presume they were probably filling out his name as the winner and filling out the assistant as the loser. Now, you may wonder, well, why do this? Well, let's say his assistant buys in uh, $3 million worth of chips, and then he cashes out uh, $2.8 million worth of chips. Well, that hasn't accomplished anything for money laundering because it looks like he lost 200000 there. So the only way he can claim winnings is if it appears he walked out of there with more money than he bought in for. So here, he gets to show that he just won tons of money at the bicycle club. And in reality, these trips were handed to him by his assistant, which were bought with his money. So that was the purpose of this whole thing. So I'm not sure what the money laundering was for. I'm not sure what this business was that they were trying to use the bike to launder money. But that's clearly what was going on. And at the Normandy, around the same time, there was also money laundering going on. I wonder if it was the same people. But these card rooms have long been a target of this. And even before I heard of these card rooms getting busted for this, I used to think of that as I watched all this money and all these chips changing hands at high denominations of these high-stakes games, even ones I would play in. And I would say, hey, you know what? It's really easy to fake a win here or fake a loss here. There's no one watching. There's really no record of it. I have to imagine they erase whatever they have on camera very quickly if nothing bad happens. So it it shouldn't be hard to stage a fake poker game where you win all kinds of money and you're justifying that this is legitimate income. You just look like you're a really good poker player. And you just won a ton of money in these card rooms. So it's very, very tempting and pretty obvious for these uh, criminals to go this way and do this. Much easier than a casino. Casino, they can pull up all the records and see what you actually won and lost. These are also used for laundering, and sometimes the casinos are complicit, and they've gotten in trouble for this before, but poker rooms are much easier. Okay, I want to tell you about MGM and what they're going to be doing with the Mirage. It's kind of end of an era there. MGM, which is one of the two major casino corporations in Las Vegas, 
they own a lot of properties on the Las Vegas Strip. The Mirage was built in 1989, and it was built by Steve Wynn. And it was the first mega resort on the Strip. The Mirage was actually the start of the revolution in Vegas to where the Strip became the place to be. In Vegas, up until when the Mirage appeared, the place that most people wanted to be was downtown. Downtown was where the action was. Downtown was kind of considered the center of Vegas for tourism purposes. The Strip existed, but it was secondary. There were some well-known hotels on the Strip, but downtown was really the main place to be, main place to go. The Mirage was really the first mega resort. And then in the next four years, others followed and completely changed what the Strip was and really changed what became the destination for most who would visit Vegas. And downtown became and still is secondary. Prior to the Mirage's opening in 89, the property was once occupied by a hotel that was never that well-known, a hotel casino known as the Castaways. The Castaways was never a major casino, but it was there from 1963 to 1987, at which point it was wrecked. The Castaways was really not a major player even during its heyday. By the time it was destroyed in 87, it really was a has-been. But even in the 60s and 70s, if you were old enough to remember Vegas from that back then, you didn't really think much of the Castaways back then. Once the Castaways was destroyed, they started the construction on the Mirage, and it opened in 1989. Treasure Island, which was right next door. It was built later on. I think it was built four years later in 93. But they also became part of MGM. And they were sold off earlier. Some years ago, Treasure Island was sold to an independent owner. So first went Treasure Island and then went the Mirage, or soon will go the Mirage. Because MGM has announced that they are going to sell operations of the Mirage and it will no longer be an M-Life property. MGM bought the Mirage in the year 2000. So they've been operating Mirage and uh, various other properties that they bought uh, all at the same time, including the Bellagio. They bought these from Steve Wynn in 2000. It's been an MGM property ever since. M-Life came a little bit later, but it's uh, been an M-Life property now ever since M-Life came to exist. And soon it's going to not be. I'm not sure who they're going to sell it to. might be another independent owner. But it will be completely separated from MGM. The land and buildings were already sold, as is very common these days in Las Vegas and elsewhere, that these casino operators are deciding they only want to be in the business of operating casinos and not really as landowners or real estate investors. So what they do is they actually 
will sell off everything but the right to operate it. And then they will actually, as part of the sale, have mandatory lease agreements that leases them back the property. To the customer, this is invisible. That's why that's not a big deal when you hear this is happening. So you hear, oh, such and such property is being sold in Vegas. You go, wow, is it being sold? Who's the new owner? And then it turns out it's just one of these deals where they're just selling the physical property, but it's still operated by the same company. And to the tourists visiting there, it's the exact same thing. But that's not what's happening here. That already happened in the past. What's happening now is the operations are being sold. Hasn't happened yet, but... This was put out in a November 3rd letter. Bill Hornbuckle, who's CEO and president of MGM Resorts, put out the following. Colleagues, today we are announcing that after careful consideration, we have made the decision to sell the operations of the Mirage to another operator, a move that we believe is best for the long-term success of both the property and MGM Resorts. The Mirage is a world-class, iconic property with unique attractions that is ripe for the continued investment and development. It will be a crown jewel in another operator's portfolio, which is why we believe a sale makes strategic sense at this time. We are committed to continuing to maintain and develop our existing Las Vegas portfolio with no plans for other changes on the Strip at this time. So they're trying to make people feel better that you know, we're, we're not going to sell everything. We're not on a selling spree. It's just this. I want to thank our valued team members at the Mirage for making it such an amazing property and for being excellent ambassadors of MGM Resorts. You truly embody what it means to serve others and create memorable experiences for our guests, and I know you will continue to do so during this transition. On a personal note, I always had fond memories of the Mirage as I was part of that team that opened the property in 1989 and spent the early part of my career there. It's a remarkable resort with great brand recognition and a strong, loyal following. I know many of our Mirage team members and their colleagues will have questions about the future of the resort and their role in it. I'm confident in the leadership team at the Mirage and know they will communicate openly and transparently during this time. Please know that we have not yet sold the operation to the property to another buyer, so for now and during an eventual transition, it's business as usual. The Mirage has served us well over the years, and I'm certain it will continue to be a success with a new operator in the future. Thank you. They haven't uh, announced a timetable of when the Mirage will be sold, but they're saying it's going to happen. It's not like they might do it. They're, they're going to do it. Now, if you remember, MGM bought the Cosmo, which is probably the reason for them getting rid of the Mirage. And I say this because sometimes they are required to do so, so they do not uh, dominate one market too much. Sometimes uh, they are required to do this in order to get permission to buy something major like the Cosmo. Or in other cases, they just feel that they actually have too much and would prefer to sell one of their properties and have more cash flow. Or have more operating cash, not cash flow. They actually announced formally that they have acquired the operations of the Cosmo during the same call where they said that they will be selling the Mirage. Though that was already known prior to that, so that wasn't breaking news. In late September, they acquired the operations of the Cosmo, but this was not officially announced until that same call that mentioned that they're going to be 
selling the Mirage. As he mentioned, there is a transition process, so even when this sale is complete, there will be some sort of intermediate period of time where it still remains an M-Life property and then transitions over to become operated by the new owner, and they will not take over operation until a little while after the transaction is complete. The Mirage was once a very big deal in the 1990s Las Vegas poker scene. If you remember, the poker room was actually featured in the movie Rounders, which was released in 1998, which was five years before the poker boom took place in 03, because the Mirage was the place to play poker in Vegas. It wasn't the only place to play, but that was a big center for middle and high stakes games, and it was a very busy room. And it continued to be a very busy room until the early 2000s when the action started to move over to Bellagio. And then eventually Bellagio basically took over the action that Mirage once had, even though Mirage continued operating. Now, these were both owned by the same company, and they right now still are owned by the same company. First, they were both Win properties, and then they were both MGM properties. Uh, soon enough, they won't be. The poker room recently closed permanently, but in reality, it hasn't been a factor in the Vegas poker scene for a long time. But for some time, the Mirage was a very big deal in Vegas poker. If you were a pro poker player in Vegas in the 90s, you played at the Mirage. That wasn't the only place to play, but that was a big place you would go to play. It's kind of like equivalent to what the Bellagio was in the 2000s and the early 2010s. Now the action is spread out some in Vegas where there isn't one room that's super dominant. There's some bigger than others, but uh, the Mirage was a very dominant room in the 90s in Vegas. The Mirage has that volcano outside, which doesn't look that impressive by today's standards, but it it does kind of like a fake eruption with uh, lights shown on it to make it look like lava coming out of the volcano. In uh, 1989, this was a big deal. There was nothing else like this outside of a property. I wouldn't say it's a little show. The first real show outside of a property was what Treasure Island did. But this was something that was outside of a property that people would stop and watch. And that was the first of its kind. If you think about it, before 1989, there was no such thing. There were memorable signs that were outside of properties, but there was not some kind of attraction that you could just stop and watch that was right outside any kind of uh, Vegas property until the Mirage came forth with their volcano. So the Mirage is definitely a big piece in uh, 1990s and uh, 2000s Vegas history, and I bet a lot of you have stayed there. And it's going to feel kind of weird to not have this be part of MGM anymore. I know it wasn't part of MGM till 2000, but prior to that, it was part of Steve Wynn's portfolio, and it was associated with things like uh, the Bellagio, and this is going to be the first time that it, it splits from all that. I know it was there before those, but it's it's now splitting away from all of those properties, just as uh, Treasure Island did when that was sold. So I'll let you know when uh, more news comes out about that. It's not known yet who is going to buy it or even if they definitely have a buyer that is uh, 
about to complete the transaction. Just a sale is going to happen of the operations. Bad story out of Parks Casino in Pennsylvania. There was a follow-home robbery, which unfortunately resulted in a murder. Pharmaceutical executive Sri Aravapali was on his way home from Parks, and he was allegedly uh, followed by a 27-year-old man named Jakai Reed John. And Jakai Reed John allegedly uh, went into his house to rob him. And during the robbery, Aravapali was shot dead. Aravapali's wife and kid were upstairs during the robbery, but were not harmed. He had cashed out 10K from Parks, which was what made him a target to be followed. The way they found out that uh, Jakai Reed John was the man that they were looking for was because, first of all, they checked surveillance and tried to see if anybody was following him around the casino. And indeed, they found uh, two men that were following him around. I don't know what happened with the second one, but they found two men, and uh, one of whom left around the time Aravapali left and got in a pretty unique-looking BMW to follow him. And then by pulling up traffic cameras, they were able to see that this same BMW was following Aravapali all the way home, and that was registered to Jakai Reed John. And in fact, when they came to question him about the murder, they found that same BMW parked right there at his house. So he couldn't even claim it was stolen or whatever. But it was a pretty strong piece of evidence tying him to this. And in addition, he was actually on camera himself following Aravapali around parks and then eventually following him home in that unique-looking BMW. I guess he had modified it some to where it looked different than uh, typical BMWs. Unfortunately, this isn't too uncommon. When people cash out for large sums of money, a lot of times criminals will take notice, especially ones that are here for that purpose, that are at the casino only to follow home those carrying a lot of cash. And they figure it's a lot easier to rob someone like that than to try to rob a bank or a store or anything else that is a business that either might... uh, have weapons to defend itself or uh, may not even have that much cash that is even available to be taken. So here they just have to overpower one individual who isn't suspecting anything and probably doesn't have any security measures in place. So if you leave a casino with thousands of dollars, especially with tens of thousands of dollars or even just 10,000 in this case, you need to be very careful that you're not being followed. And you need to look around you, and you need to look if somebody is walking out behind you. Now, there, there, may, people, there may be people walking out behind you, especially in a busy casino, because there's always people walking in and out. But if you notice that one of those people who's apparently following you out or, or leaving the same time as you seems to be walking the same direction as you, or there's suddenly a car that is behind you going the same place as you are, you're not just being paranoid, you are probably being followed in which case you should not go home, and the proper thing to do is to go to a police station 
and also to call 911 and have them alert the police station that you're coming and that you're being followed. If you do just go to a police station, it's not likely that the criminal is going to commit a mugging right in front of a police station. Usually, even if you haven't even called the police to have them meet you there, the criminal doesn't know that. So if you are driving into a police station, not only are they unlikely to want to commit a crime in the parking lot of a police station, they also don't know if you have called them and if the police are going to be coming out to meet you there and arrest whoever's following you or trying to commit crimes against you. So definitely what's going to happen at that point is the person following you is highly likely to turn around and leave and stop following you. Do not ever go home believing that you're just imagining this and you'll be safe because this is a real crime which really does happen and it has happened a number of times over the years all over the country. If you do think you're being followed but you're not sure of it, because it it can happen where some cars just happen to be going where you are, what you can do is you can start making abrupt turns and see if the other car behind you makes an abrupt turn. For example, let's say you're approaching an intersection. Rather than signaling for a while that you're going to get in the left turn lane, uh, as you get near the intersection, just abruptly jerk your car into the left lane and see if the other car follows into the left turn lane. Then do it at another intersection. Abruptly change where you're going and see if they abruptly change where they're going. Or, even if you don't want to do abrupt things like that, try making a bunch of successive turns that otherwise people wouldn't do. So first turn left, then turn right, then turn left again, then turn right again. If, if you do that and this car is doing exactly what you're doing, then it's very unlikely that they just happen to be going the same way you are. Because you could drive in a way where it would be very unlikely for someone to really be taking that route for any purpose other than following you. And you know what? If you're wrong, then okay, great. Then you were wrong and you were just uh, you just thought you saw something that actually wasn't happening and then you can just return to driving normally. But don't ever fall victim to the thinking of, oh, this won't happen to me or, oh, I'm just paranoid or, oh, no, no, no one's really following me. That's crazy. Because, yeah, they might be. Especially if you walked out with a lot of money. So keep that in mind. I don't know what led to the actual murder. Presumably, this was just a robbery that turned into a murder. I'm sure the guy who committed it was not looking to kill someone. But it's possible that uh, Aravapali didn't want to give up the money. Or maybe Aravapali said, all I have is this 10K and and Reed John didn't believe him and and shot him. Or maybe uh, Reed John was believing Aravapali was trying to make some kind of aggressive move to foil the robbery when he really wasn't and just shot him because he was too jumpy. Whatever it was, you just don't want to ever be in a situation where some criminal is holding you at gunpoint and is demanding things from you, especially you may not have what they were hoping you have and they may not believe you and they may kill you. Or they may even kill you just to prevent any witnesses from identifying them. So the way to avoid this is to not be a victim of this in the first place and not give them the opportunity to make a victim out of you. Parks Casino is in uh, Pennsylvania, by the way. Now I want to talk about something unrelated 
to anything in poker or gambling, but it was something that was pretty amazing last week. It occurred over the weekend of Halloween. And that was how a burrito actually caused one of the biggest gaming platforms to go down for several days. So what happened was that Chipotle entered a marketing partnership with Roblox. Roblox is a very large multiplayer game. And it's mostly frequented by kids, by little kids. My son plays it, for example. And it's very, very popular. It is one of the biggest multiplayer games in the world. And they have a number of marketing partnerships that they have done. But this was the first of its kind because Roblox was actually going to be giving away a real burrito through their partnership with Chipotle. See, on Roblox, you can get all these kind of uh, digital items to put on your character. You, ha- you have a character in Roblox, and you can, you can buy hats and shirts and pants and backpacks. and uh, You can have all these different accessories on your character, and these often cost money. Or it's actually bought with in-game currency called Robux, which you usually have to buy. So that's how Roblox makes money. And then there's a lot of internal games within Roblox that are mostly written by third parties, not even by Roblox itself. But most of the games on Roblox are written by users of Roblox or game developers for Roblox who don't work for Roblox, but just individual developers who develop games on that platform. And it has like hundreds of thousands of games on there to choose from. And these developers actually can make money if you play their games and spend your Robux in those games. So they kind, of, kind of have like a little partnership with Roblox in that way. And that's, that's the model of Roblox. But it's very, very successful. Anyway, there's all kinds of giveaways over time with Roblox where there's some kind of promotion related to some kind of outside company. And you get something for your character related to that company like maybe they're promoting a movie and you'll get something that the movie character wears for your character that'd be the type of typical promotion we'd see from roblox what they've never had before was a promotion where you can get something that is physical you can't get a tangible item through roblox but now you could roblox was giving away through chipotle tiny promotion started And users could get a certificate for a free burrito at Chipotle once the promotion started. And then once they all ran out, that would be the end of it. On October 26th, they put out a press release that was Chipotle. said, uh, Chipotle today announced it will celebrate the 21st year of Burrito, a fan-favorite Halloween event, by being the first restaurant brand to open a virtual location on Roblox, a global platform bringing millions of people together through shared experiences. In the Chipotle Burrito Maze experience, Chipotle will make $1 million in free burritos available and offer access to new virtual Halloween costumes and exclusive Roblox items. So they were giving away Roblox items, but also allowing people to get these free burritos that they could actually bring in to exchange for a physical burrito they could eat at any Chipotle location. From October 28th through October 31st, beginning at 3.30 p.m., 
Pacific Time, each day, the first 30,000 Roblox users who visit the cashier at the virtual Chipotle restaurant in costume each day will receive a free burrito code for use on orders placed via Chipotle.com or the Chipotle app at participating Chipotle restaurants in the United States. Limit one free burrito per player. As a digital innovator, we are always experimenting on new platforms to meet our guests where they are, said Chris Brandt, chief marketing officer of Chipotle. Roblox's popularity has boomed over the past year, and we know our fans will be excited to celebrate the next evolution of Boo-Rito in the the metaverse. Boo-Rito is spelled B-O-O-R-I-T-O. You like boo, like for Halloween? So it's a Halloween Chipotle promotion where they had a Chipotle maze and you could go to the virtual cashier and get a free code to then redeem for this burrito. It's the first 30,000 visitors per day from October 28th through October 31st when they would be giving it away. So I guess they had some period of time where they'd be giving it away and then they'd stop for the day once they gave away 30,000, and they do this for four days in a row. So I guess 120,000 of these Burrito certificates were going to be given away. So this doesn't sound like a bad idea, right? Well, it's only a good idea if your system can handle it. Now, Roblox has had problems over the years when some kind of event they're holding gets more participation than they expect, and it crashes all of their servers, and then they have to put them back up. They've even had it where very popular games that get too popular on there will start to stress out their servers and their servers crash or slow down to where they're unusable. So This is not the first technical issue that Roblox had, but this is the worst one by far. So within minutes, actually I think less than a minute, of when they were offering these burrito codes, Roblox had a major crash. I know this because I heard this from the source. I heard this from Benjamin and one of Benjamin's friends. Now, Benjamin, I don't think he went to go get the burrito, but one of his very good friends was excited about this and went to go get it. And this friend told me, because the friend was over and I even asked them about it, that Roblox crashed, quote, within 10 to 20 seconds of when the burrito became available. And Roblox did not come back up for three days. Three days! Now, Roblox was denying that the crash had anything to do with the Chipotle promotion, which I don't believe. There's no chance that that type of coincidence happens, where 10 seconds after this was made available that the whole thing crashed for three days. That would be one of the biggest coincidences ever. That's by far the worst crash they've ever had. When I say by far, I really mean by far. At most, it's been down for a few hours in the past. It's never been down for days. On October 29th, the day after the crash that occurred on the 28th, They said, still making progress on today's outage. We'll continue to keep you updated. Once again, we apologize for the delay. We know this outage was not related to any specific experiences or partnerships on the platform. (laughs) 
Yeah, totally not related to any partnerships, guys. Totally not related. It just happened to be 10 seconds after you release the burrito certificates. It has nothing to do with that. It's just, a, it's just an outage. Just happened. Just a three-day outage. So it didn't come back up until the daytime on Halloween. Ben actually was a Roblox character for Halloween, and, and one of the kids out there told him that your system is down right now. <laughs> the kid was actually wrong. It had actually just gone back up, but it was funny how they said that to Ben. Uh, I don't know how much money they lost, but it was a ton. They, they bring in a lot of money every day from their platform with these millions of players playing on there. And for it to be down, not just three days, but three days over a weekend. Remember, this started on Thursday. So it was down on Thursday night, all of Friday, all of Saturday, and part of Sunday. That's pretty bad. They also had something on their homepage. Because you, you would play Roblox actually by going to Roblox.com. And... On Roblox.com, it said that they're currently offline because we're making Roblox more awesome and we'll be back soon. Sure, they're making it more awesome. That's why it's down for three days. Ten seconds after the burrito giveaway. Yeah. I was trying to figure out what likely really happened here. I mean, we know it had to do with a burrito and a server overload, but how does it make it go down for three days? Now, if the servers were overloaded, all they should have had to do was reset everything, disable the promotion, and it all should have been fine. But instead, it was down for three days. Now, since they won't even admit that the burrito caused this whole thing, we're never going to get the truth about this. However, I have a feeling that they probably had some kind of data corruption. In fact, that's what Ben said he heard. So they couldn't go back up with data corruption because then kids will find that all the stuff their characters had weren't wasn't there anymore like all, all the stuff they bought over time wouldn't be on their characters and they'd freak out and the parents would then freak out so they could not go back up until they brought the system back to the state it was previously in so my guess is there was some kind of massive data corruption over this i'm not sure how one caused the other this shouldn't have happened but it probably did probably the overload caused something screwy to happen probably data was corrupted and they probably took three days to figure out exactly what was corrupted and then restoring it all from backups that's what i think took the three days i was concerned that maybe there was such a massive crash and maybe their backups hadn't been current enough to where they were not going to be able to restore to a current backup and that people would just lose things they bought and there was going to be a gigantic clusterfuck but from what I hear, that's not true. Apparently, they were able to restore it to what it was prior to the crash. It just took three days to do so, and there's a reason for that. They weren't making it more awesome, as they said, nor was there any kind of upgrade to Roblox that anyone noticed when they went back up. So it's not like they were down for three days and popped back up and there were all these new cool features. It was the same old Roblox that was there three days prior, and on a, obviously the three days were being spent trying to fix the damage. That was one expensive burrito for Roblox. Roblox is a publicly traded company now. They're RBLX on the stock market and the NYSE. 
And I was wondering if this was going to affect their value. Because, remember, Roblox crashed on that Thursday night. And so, okay, it wasn't back up on Friday, but keep in mind, the New York Stock Exchange closes at 2 o'clock Pacific time. So there wasn't all that much time to panic yet because, yeah, it had been down a while, but it hadn't even been a full day yet. However, I said that if it did not come back up by Monday when trading started again, that there could be a big crash of the stock. Well, taking a look at the stock prices, the close of Thursday, October 28th is just before the crash happened. It was 82.75, $82.75 per share. On the 29th, it definitely didn't go down. It went up to 84.02. But as I said, that makes sense. However, it was falling then in after-hours trading, possibly due to that crash. Well, by November 3rd, it had gone down to 78.36. So it was 84.02 at the close on Friday. And by Wednesday, November 3rd, it was down to 78.36. So not a massive crash, but it did lose about 7%. And it was kind of in a straight downward slope. I really do think that is related to that crash. However, then it went back up on November 4th to 82.53. And since it's fallen back to $77 at the close today, November 8th. So what does that part mean? I don't know. But I have a feeling that the crash did play into this, but we have seen some ups and downs with Roblox stock in the past month, so who knows? This could be totally unrelated. But if it was still down on Monday without them giving a real explanation of what was going on, we could have really seen a crash of that stock, and I bet they knew that. I bet they were really, really, really trying to get the thing up in time on Sunday. And I don't mean Sunday at 11 o'clock p.m. I mean early enough Sunday to where the kids all report to their parents that it's back up and that the word doesn't get around on Sunday that Roblox is down to where people are itching to sell it on Monday morning. All because of a burrito. I thought that was interesting. When I showed Ben what they were saying on Twitter, he said, yeah, They just don't want to admit their whole system crashed because of a burrito. (laughs) He's right. (laughs) Okay, finally, I want to talk about the Las Vegas Raiders, and we'll shut this down. Las Vegas Raiders players are having some issues, to say the least. Two big stories have come out recently about bad things happening with Raiders players in a short time. The worst of the two is that of Henry Ruggs, or Henry Ruggs III. He had a fatal car crash, and his blood alcohol level was more than twice the legal limit. And he slammed into the rear of a vehicle causing an explosion, and it killed a 23-year-old woman. Henry Ruggs is 22 years old and on the Raiders. He was driving 156 miles per hour at the time of the crash. 
Not 56. 156. I mean, I've heard the song, I Can't Drive 55. This was I Can't Drive 155. He was driving 156. How do you drive 156 miles per hour? (laughs) How or why? Even if you're drunk, most cars can't even go 156 miles per hour. But if they can, why? I don't care how drunk you are. What would be the reason that you would choose to drive 156 miles per hour? So that has really, really made people hate him. Because it's one thing to drive drunk and get in an accident and kill someone. And that's tragic. And that, of course, can and should result in a pretty stiff criminal penalty because you did kill someone because of your irresponsible behavior. But the excuse people use when drunk driving happens, even if something bad occurs when drunk driving happens, is... I didn't realize I was drunk. I knew I had been drinking, but I thought I was okay to drive. I thought I was driving safely. Turned out I wasn't, and something bad happened, and I'm very sorry. And that shouldn't get people out of the consequences of what they did, but at the same time, you can look at them and say, okay, at least they weren't knowingly doing something that they thought would hurt someone. They they knowingly were driving, believing that they weren't too drunk to do it, that they could still keep their car under reasonable control. And they were wrong, and they shouldn't have, and they should have known not to, but at least they were trying to drive safely and just weren't realizing that they were not. Well, you can't say that here, because the guy was driving 156 miles per hour. And that's what everybody's saying now, that whatever sympathy you can have for him and his situation goes away when you learn he was driving 156 miles per hour. He was in court for felony charges of a DUI and a DUI resulting in death and reckless driving. Las Vegas Justice of the Peace Joe M. Bonaventure said he was troubled by the initial review of the case and said that in his 16 years as a judge that he had never heard of a crash where the person who was driving was going that fast. I haven't either. 156 miles per hour. Crazy. However, he didn't set the the bail as high as prosecutors wanted. Prosecutors wanted bail of... One million dollars. Which still isn't that much for a professional football player, for an NFL player. But instead, the bail was set at $150,000. However, he needed to have home confinement electronic monitoring, no alcohol, no driving, and a surrender of his passport so he can ditch the country to avoid prosecution. He did post the $150,000 bond and was released from jail on uh, Wednesday evening of last week. The woman who was killed, name was uh, Tina O. Tinter, and... uh, Her dog died as well. She was in the car with her dog. She was driving a Toyota RAV4, and after it was slammed into that hard by a 156-mile-per-hour vehicle, it uh, exploded into flames. And uh, this actually occurred on a major street a few miles west of the Las Vegas Strip. The computer records 
of the airbag showed that uh, he actually did slow down from 156 to 127 before the crash actually occurred. So he must have saw that he was headed for the car and was trying to stop, but didn't apply the brakes in all that much time. It only went down to 127 before actually hitting the RAV4, and then that uh, ruptured the fuel tank of the RAV4, and a big fireball exploded that killed uh, Tina, Tina Tintor and her dog. The Raiders released Ruggs just hours after the crash, so he's no longer on the Raiders. He was actually in the car with his girlfriend at the time, which is crazy. I don't know how his girlfriend was like okay with being in the car going 156 miles per hour, but uh, she was in the car. She was injured in the crash, as was he. She got a severe arm injury, and he got uh, a, uh, a neck brace for some kind of neck injury, but, but neither had super major injuries. He retained famed Vegas attorneys David Chesnoff and Richard Schoenfeld. Now, Chesnoff and Schoenfeld are known in Vegas as miracle workers. If you get in trouble in Vegas, even though they're expensive, you really may want to hire them because it's amazing how they are able to get people's charges reduced. How many slap-on-the-wrist sentences that they achieve. Brian Mikon can tell you that. Brian Mikon, who was accused of, uh, I wouldn't say a serious crime, but one that could have resulted in some real jail time for running an illegal poker site in the state of Nevada in competition with legal poker sites in the state of Nevada. He was running an illegal Bitcoin poker site. And uh, I, I thought the case against him was very strong. And he was in Antigua. They, they stupidly searched his home but didn't arrest him, which allowed him to legally go to Antigua because he was not arrested or instructed not to travel anywhere. So he left, which was actually smart, and then was able to negotiate from a position of strength from out of the country. But he remotely retained Chesnoff and Schoenfeld for probably a lot of money, I'm sure over $100,000. And they got him a slap on the wrist. He had no jail time. He had like two years probation and the requirement to get a job, and it looked like he kind of just got a job that he didn't really have to go into every day through a friend. And uh, once he completed that, he went back to Antigua and lived his life normally. And he now he you know, he came this year to the World Series of Poker and played a bunch of events. I don't know if he's playing the main. I haven't seen him around. But he played a lot of events earlier in the series. And he can come and go to the U.S. and to Nevada as much as he wants. And that case is done. So... He's not wanted for anything anymore, and uh, yeah, he has a, a misdemeanor on his record for it, but compared to what he could have had, that was, that was nothing. He didn't have any jail time. He was quickly booked and released when he came back into the country after the agreement was reached, and aside from that, he was not in jail at all. I, I thought he could get up to years in prison for what he did, so that's a great result for him. So obviously he made the right move hiring Chestnut and Sean Feld. And I've, I've known of other people who've really gotten surprisingly light sentences or plea bargains compared to what they could have. And when I say what they could have, I don't mean the maximum sentence that they wouldn't have gotten. I mean what you kind of think they would get. I've even wondered 
if Chesnoff and Schoenfeld have some kind of connections here in Vegas. You know, Vegas didn't have the most uh, noble beginnings. There's a lot of history in Vegas that involves a lot of shady activity. And some of this in Vegas remains today. So I always wondered, how are Chesnoff and Schoenfeld so good at this? Is it just that they're really, really good defense attorneys? Or do they have some connections to make this happen, or both. Or it could even be just that uh, they're known to be such good defense attorneys that the prosecution doesn't want to go against them and will just uh, give sweetheart deals to their clients in order to avoid losing. So at least they get some conviction down. I don't know what it is. I'm just guessing at these things. But whatever it is, I can tell you that if I were to get into any kind of serious criminal trouble in Nevada, I would want to hire them. And I think you should too, if you were to get into any serious criminal trouble in Nevada. Because it seems like whenever they're involved, they do a great job and somehow the accused walks away with a much lighter punishment than one would expect. And that's the type of defense attorney that you want to hire. Now, a counterpoint was brought up on the forum of Poker Fraud Alert when we were discussing this. The counterpoint was brought up by one member who said, this case is too high profile. Whatever magic they worked, and no matter how they did it, regarding someone like Brian Mikon, or people even less known than Brian Mikon, it's a big difference there, and a... Las Vegas Raiders player who drove 156 miles an hour and killed someone while drunk. That's a much, much more high-profile case than the other ones we talked about here. So this would seem that no defense attorney could do all that well and that any competent defense attorney would probably get around the same result was the point that was being brought up by somebody on the forum, which might be true. It might be true that there's only so much that Chesnoff and Schoenfeld could do. Like, I don't think that Ruggs is going to get off of this with a slap on the wrist. He's not going to get two years probation, and that's all. Like, that's not going to happen here. He's going to get some real prison time for this, for sure. But there's a wide variance on what he could get. So I still say, especially since he can afford it, I know he's only 22, so I, I don't know what his contract was, but he's not getting as much as the veteran NFL players. But still, he made the right hire. Now, I'm not hoping he gets off for this. He deserves serious, serious prison time for this. His blood alcohol level was 0.161, more than twice the legal limit. And he was driving 156 miles per hour. So that's crazy. So that's the first case we're going to talk about. But there's a second one. doesn't involve anyone being killed, but it's still uh, a situation that the Raiders aren't very happy about. That's involving cornerback Damon Arnett. So Damon Arnett was a first-round draft pick for the Raiders in 2020, and he's gotten himself recently into all kinds of hot water for things he's done off the field, including making death threats while pointing a gun at someone in a video that was leaked on social media recently. 
it was found that he was doing a lot of other bad things around town, they decided to just get rid of him. There was even a report from Vital Vegas on Twitter that he spat on a valet at one point. Now, his behavior was always a concern for the Raiders. There is some worry that there would be something like this eventually. His character was an issue, and the Raiders felt they could help him, and they thought that maybe they could get him to become a better citizen. So he was one of these guys who was considered to be an excellent player, but the guy just had a lot of issues with his behavior. The Raiders thought they could tame him, and apparently not. Apparently, uh, he was just as bad as he was before he was drafted. The general manager, Mike Mayock of the Raiders, said, At the time, we thought it was an acceptable risk after doing more homework on our net than anybody we've done in the years I've been here. And obviously, we missed, and that's 100% on me. So he thought that he looked into Arnett enough to feel they could turn him around, and now he's conceding, no, we couldn't. (laughs) He was behaving very badly. If you remember, I talked about Vital Vegas and how he was putting out notice on Twitter that a lot of Raiders players were misbehaving and mistreating employees around Vegas. That not only were a lot of them zero-tipping, But even worse, a lot of them were extremely rude or condescending or caused trouble and just felt that they could do it because they were Raiders players and tough luck. And Vital Vegas was saying that if this continues, that he's going to name names and shame these players for what they've been doing. Now, he didn't ever name anybody, to my knowledge. But it's interesting that he put that out there. And then since then, we've had uh, two very high-profile stories at the end of October and beginning of November, of Raiders players who behaved very badly being cut from the team. So then that makes us ask the question, if these are just outliers or unfortunate incidents for the Raiders that just were a result of drafting people who were irresponsible or just bad people, or if maybe the city of Las Vegas itself is bringing out the worst of some of these guys. And in fact, Mike Mayock was asked if these players living in Vegas could uh, bring on issues like this. And he responded, can a country kid live in a big city or vice versa? We do have to be aware of Vegas. But my thing is, in just about any mid to big sized city in the country, if you want to find trouble, you can find it. And our job is to find the kids who will get past that. So there is a big question here. If you bring in people to Vegas who are getting a lot of money, who are expected to make even more money as time passes, who probably have a big ego because they are professional football players, and they have access to the whole... Las Vegas party lifestyle that's right at their fingertips, might this bring out irresponsible behavior that may not be as bad elsewhere? Now, I don't think that Henry Ruggs or Damon Arnett would have been model citizens if they were anywhere else. There's a good chance they would have gotten in some kind of trouble. But is it possible the trouble was worse because of where they are? 
And Mike Mayock saying, look, in any middle or bigger size city, you're going to have opportunities to get into trouble if that's what you're looking for. Okay, that's true, but is the general atmosphere of Vegas being like a party town, a place where you can just have fun and there's debauchery all around you, does this lead these players who already have a lot of money and a lot of arrogance down the wrong path? And the answer might be yes. Notice these are all young players this is happening with. So these are guys who haven't matured much yet. These are ones who haven't had the time to develop the uh, restraint that they otherwise might have if they spent parts of their career elsewhere. Let's say they came here when they're 32. You might be seeing something different. But these are young guys who are making a lot of bad decisions. A lot of which is not even being reported. But like I believe what Vital Vegas is saying. I believe that these players really are mistreating service employees. And I'm not talking about mistreating service employees like if the service employees do something wrong or, uh, or are rude to them. I'm talking about just ones who are just assholes because they want to be assholes. Because they look down on them. But I believe this is happening. And I believe it's because they feel like they're kings here and they can do what they want. And I think some of this trouble is probably related to the general atmosphere of Vegas. In fact, I've seen where people come to Vegas and it really does break them. Or it brings out parts of them that were kind of semi-suppressed before and were semi-manageable before where they were previously. But once they're in Vegas, then it all comes out. And I've said for a long time that it requires a a certain personality type to be able to make it in Vegas long-term. Because otherwise, people succumb to various behavior patterns or temptations in Vegas that lead them down very bad paths and uh, end up being destructive. Sometimes these are not criminal paths. Sometimes it's things that are self-destructive, such as uh, drug addiction. But nevertheless, I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen with people in poker that I've personally known. And I've even seen people go back to where they came from and they significantly improve. And I've seen it the reverse, where they come from somewhere and they've got some issues, but they're not that bad. And then just everything falls apart when they get to Vegas. But these are not always people with a lot of money or resources or with the belief that they're important because these are just regular people. These aren't like professional athletes. And keep in mind, the Raiders are a new team. And this is the first major sports team aside from the NHL. And the NFL is a lot bigger than the AHL. Having a football team here is a much bigger deal than having a hockey team. Now, the hockey team has more games. The hockey team has over 40 home games a year, plus the playoffs. The NFL has like eight home games a year. But as as far as uh, what's exciting for the city... Getting an NFL team is a lot bigger than an NHL team. But since the NHL team came first, it was very welcomed. People got very excited about the Golden Knights because it was the first 
professional sports team, major professional sports team that came to Las Vegas. So we will see over time if we keep seeing incidents like this and if in Las Vegas there is more of an issue with young players behaving badly than in other cities. When the Golden Knights had their first season and it was very successful, they had a very, very good home record. They had a better home versus road record than other teams did. And one theory for this was that visiting players would come into Vegas and they just kind of go crazy and then they wouldn't be ready for the game. And, you know, it's possible. It is possible that having your home stadium in Vegas is an advantage to you if the visiting players can't control themselves. So this was attributed in the first year of the Golden Knights as to why they did so well. I mean, that wasn't the only reason. Obviously, the team was a lot more talented than was originally thought. But we know there's a decent chance that was part of what gave them some of their success. They got all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals that year. They have made the playoffs in every season so far, the Golden Knights. The Oakland A's are seriously considering moving to Las Vegas and becoming the Las Vegas A's. That would bring a Major League Baseball team to Las Vegas. So we could see some of the same issues here. Now, there are not as many young baseball players as there are young NFL players. The young baseball players tend to be in the minors for longer. So... Maybe it won't be as much of a problem, but it also could be. Now, it's not a done deal that the Oakland A's are coming to Vegas, and this will pretty much be decided by the end of the year, so it's not going to be too long from now when we will find out whether or not it's going to move. By December 31st, we should know, at least so they say. But I do think there's something to that theory that Las Vegas is a bad place for some of these players to be. And I think the Raiders need to be aware of that. And rather than saying, yeah, this guy had some problems in college, but we can fix him. We can help him mature. We can help him be a better citizen. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Because of where you are. Like, if, if he was going to Green Bay, sure. Maybe the Packers could help some of these people grow up in Green Bay. Not that you can't find trouble in Green Bay, but it's different than Vegas. Even something like New York or L.A. or Miami is different than Vegas. There's a whole vibe in Vegas which is different than other cities. Because the only city which promotes itself as a place to let loose and have fun, is Vegas. You could say maybe Miami too, but it's not the same. And I've known people who've moved to Vegas that have absolutely no connection to the gambling industry 
or to the hospitality industry or to any industry that is here, nor do they have any desire to become professional gamblers, nor do they even like gambling much. And I have asked these people, why did you come from, say, Illinois over to live in Las Vegas? If you're not not interested in gambling and you're not interested in working in the casino or hotel industries, and if you came even without a job, like, what did you come here for? Why did you travel across the country here? And their answer would be, I don't know. I just kind of felt like coming there. And what they really mean when they say that is that Las Vegas just seems like a fun and interesting place to go to. And if they're going to start over, why not there? That's really what they mean when they say, I don't know. They definitely know. You you know why you go somewhere. You know why you uproot your life and move across the country. Also, a lot of the hookers you will find in Vegas, and a lot of the strippers you'll find in Vegas, did not come to Vegas to be hookers or strippers. And a lot of them are not natives of Las Vegas. A lot of them are girls who came to Vegas with that similar lack of knowledge of why they were really coming. Just, they went there because it seemed cool to come to as a new place to live. And then they work some crappy job for a while, and then they hear about all the money these girls are making stripping, or they hear about how much these prostitutes are getting just for one night with some random businessmen in the town, and they say, you know what? I'm not going to work this waitressing job anymore. And so it begins. Anyway, we're done. In less than 12 hours, I will be at the uh, main event day two. I apologize if there's some cutouts and stuff here. It's uh, not very good internet here. And I would like to say this won't happen again, but I hope it does happen again. That means I'm here in a week, which means that I'm doing very well in the main event. Odds are I won't be here in a week, but one never knows. Let's see, a week from today, I guess if uh, day three is going to be on uh, Thursday, then, uh, yeah, I'd be really, really far. (laughs) Because that would put me, like, on day seven. I've never gotten to day seven before. There's not going to be any further breaks in the World Series after Wednesday for me. So I'm going to play tomorrow. If I get past tomorrow, I have a break on Wednesday, and then I play straight starting Thursday until I bust. Or win. I guess I could not bust and win the whole thing. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? When will the next show be? Let's assume I don't win the World Series. Let's say just... I'm in cash and bust on day four. Let's just say that. Well... We just had a show on Monday. So we'd probably be looking at a show sometime next week after Monday. Either Monday or after. Maybe Sunday. But, you know, there's got to have stuff to talk about, too. I'm not sure how much time I'll put into editing this one. I don't don't want it to become too behind since we're talking about, like, World Series stuff, main event stuff that's happening. So I I don't want it to become obsolete. 
But at the same time, this show needs some editing because it's uh, of all the fail with Rio Internet. So I'll, I'll probably try to throw a quick edit together, but it may not be as edited that well compared to uh, other weeks. I thank Halwat for coming on. I thank Traderuski for the brief time we had him here. And I hope this is another good main event here for me. But only time will tell. That is all. Shalom. Shalom.